Chapter 8 The Monetary Policy of Etatism Section 1 The Monetary Theory of Etatism Etatism as a theory is the doctrine of the omnipotence of the state, and as a policy, the attempt to regulate all mundane affairs by authoritative commandment and prohibition. The ideal society of etatism is a particular sort of socialistic community. It is usual in discussions involving this ideal society to speak of state socialism, or, in some connections, of Christian socialism. Superficially regarded, the etatistic ideal society does not differ very greatly from the outward form assumed by the capitalistic organization of society. Etatism by no means aims at the formal transformation of all ownership of the means of production into state ownership by a complete overthrow of the established legal system. Only the biggest industrial, mining, and transport enterprises are to be nationalized. In agriculture and in medium- and small-scale industry, private property is nominally to continue. Nevertheless, all enterprises are to become state undertakings, in fact. Owners are to be left the title and dignity of ownership, it is true, and to be given a right to the receipt of a reasonable income, in accordance with their position. But in fact, every business is to be changed into a government office and every livelihood into an official profession. There is no room at all for independent enterprise under any variety of state socialism. Prices are to be regulated authoritatively. Authority is to fix what is to be produced, and how, and at what quantities. There is to be no speculation, no excessive profit, no loss. There is to be no innovation unless it be decreed by authority. The official is to direct and supervise everything. It is one of the peculiarities of etatism that it is unable to conceive of human beings living together in a society otherwise than in accordance with its own particular socialistic ideal. The similarity that exists between the socialist state, that is, its ideal and pattern, and the social order based upon private property in the means of production, causes it to overlook the fundamental differences that separate the two. Everything that contradicts the assumption that the two kinds of social order are similar is regarded by the etatist as a transient anomaly and a culpable transgression of authoritative decrees, as evidence that the state has let slip the reins of government and only needs to take them more firmly in hand for everything to be beautifully in order again. That the social life of human beings is subject to definite limitations that it is governed by a set of laws that are comparable with those of nature. These are notions that are unknown to the etatist. For the etatist, everything is a question of macht, power, force, might, and his conception of macht is crudely materialistic. Every word of etatistic thought is contradicted by the doctrines of sociology and economics. This is why etatists endeavor to prove that these sciences do not exist. In their opinion, social affairs are shaped by the state. To the law, all things are possible, and there is no sphere in which state intervention is not omnipotent. 
For a long time, the modern etatists shrank from an explicit application of their principles to the theory of money. It is true that some, Adolf Wagner and Lexis in particular, expressed views on the domestic and foreign value of money and on the influence of the balance of payments on the condition of the exchanges that contained all the elements of an etatistic theory of money, but always with great caution and reserve. The first to attempt an explicit application of etatistic principles in the sphere of monetary doctrine was Knopp. The policy of etatism had its heyday during the period of the World War, which itself was the inevitable consequence of the dominance of etatistic ideology. In the war economy, the postulates of etatism were realized. The war economy and the transition economy showed what etatism is worth and what the policy of etatism is able to achieve. An examination of etatistic monetary doctrine and monetary policy has a significance that is not limited to the history of ideas. For in spite of all its ill success, etatism is still the ruling doctrine, at least on the continent of Europe. It is, at any rate, the doctrine of the rulers. Its ideas prevail in monetary policy. However convinced we may be that it is scientifically valueless, it will not do for us nowadays to ignore it. Section 2. National Prestige and the Rate of Exchange For the etatist, money is a creature of the state, and the esteem in which money is held is the economic expression of the respect or prestige enjoyed by the state. The more powerful and the richer the state, the better its money. Thus, during the war, it was asserted that the monetary standard of the victors would ultimately be the best money. Yet victory and defeat on the battlefield can exercise only an indirect influence on the value of money. Generally speaking, a victorious state is more likely than a conquered one to be able to renounce the aid of the printing press, for it is likely to find it easier to limit its expenditure on the one hand and to obtain credit on the other hand. But the same considerations suggest that increasing prospects of peace will lead to a more favorable estimation of the currency even of the defeated country. In October 1918, the mark and the krona rose. It was believed that even in Germany and Austria, a cessation of inflation might be counted upon, an expectation which admittedly was not fulfilled. History, likewise, shows that sometimes the monetary standard of the victors can prove to be very bad. There have seldom been more brilliant victories than those eventually achieved by the American insurgents under Washington against the English troops. But the American continental dollar did not benefit from them. The more proudly the star-spangled banner rose on high, the lower did the exchange rate fall, until... At the very moment when the victory of the rebels was secured, the dollar became entirely valueless. The course of events was no different not long afterwards in France. In spite of the victories of the Revolutionary Army, the metal premium rose continually, until at last, in 1796, the value of money touched zero point. In both cases, the victorious state had carried inflation to its extreme. Neither has the wealth of a country any bearing on the valuation of its money. 
Nothing is more erroneous than the widespread habit of regarding the monetary standard as something in the nature of the shares of the state or the community. When the German mark was quoted at 100 centimes in Zurich, bankers said, now is the time to buy marks. The German community is indeed poorer nowadays than before the war, so that a low valuation of the mark is justified. Nevertheless, the wealth of Germany is certainly not reduced to a twelfth of what it was before the war, so the mark is bound to rise. And when the Polish mark had sunk to five centimes in Zurich, other bankers said, this low level is inexplicable. Poland is a rich country. It has a flourishing agriculture. It has wood, coal, and oil, so its rate of exchange ought to be incomparably higher. Such observers fail to recognize that the valuation of the monetary unit does not depend upon the wealth of the country, but upon the ratio between the quantity of money and the demand for it, so that even the richest country may have a bad currency and the poorest country a good one. Section 3. The Regulation of Prices by Authoritative Decree the oldest and most popular instrument of a statistic monetary policy is the official fixing of maximum prices. High prices, thinks the etatist, are not a consequence of an increase in the quantity of money, but a consequence of the reprehensible activity on the part of bulls and profiteers. It will suffice to suppress their machinations in order to ensure the cessation of the rise of prices. Thus, it is made a punishable offense to demand or even to pay excessive prices. Like most other governments, the Austrian government during the war began this kind of criminal law contest with price raising on the same day that it put the printing press in motion in the service of the national finances. Let us suppose that it had at first been successful in this. Let us completely disregard the fact that the war had also diminished the supply of commodities, and supposed that there had been no forces at work on the commodity side to alter the exchange ratio between commodities and money. We must further disregard the fact that the war, by increasing the period of time necessary for transporting money, and by limiting the operation of the clearing system, and also in other ways, had increased the demand for money of individual economic agents. Let us merely discuss the question, what consequences would necessarily follow if, ceteris paribus, with an increasing quantity of money, prices were restricted to the old level by official compulsion? An increase in the quantity of money leads to the appearance in the market of new desire to purchase, which had previously not existed. New purchasing power, it is usual to say, has been created. If the new would-be purchasers compete with those that are already in the market, then, so long as it is not permissible to raise prices, only part of the total purchasing power can be exercised. This means that there are would-be purchasers who leave the market without having effected their object, although they were ready to agree to the price demanded, would-be purchasers who return home with the money with which they set out in order to purchase. Whether or not a would-be purchaser who is prepared to pay the official price gets the commodity that he desires depends upon all sorts of circumstances, which are, from the point of view of the market, quite inessential. 
for example, upon whether he was on the spot in time, or has personal relations with the seller, or other similar accidents. The mechanism of the market no longer works to make a distinction between the would-be purchasers who are still able to buy and those who are not. It no longer brings about a coincidence between supply and demand through variations in price. Supply lags behind demand. The play of the market loses its meaning. Other forces have to take its place. But the government that puts the newly created notes in circulation does so because it wishes to draw commodities and services out of their previous avenues in order to direct them into some other desired employment. It wishes to buy these commodities and services, not, as is also a quite conceivable procedure, to commandeer them by force. It must, therefore, desire that everything should be obtainable for money and for money alone. It is not to the advantage of the government that a situation should arise in the market that makes some of the would-be purchasers withdraw without having effected their object. The government desires to purchase. It desires to use the market, not to disorganize it. But the officially fixed price does disorganize the market in which commodities and services are bought and sold for money. Commerce, so far as it is able, seeks relief in other ways. It redevelops a system of direct exchange in which commodities and services are exchanged without the instrumentality of money. Those who are forced to dispose of commodities and services at the fixed prices do not dispose of them to everybody, but merely to those to whom they wish to do a favor. Would-be purchasers wait in long queues in order to snap up what they can get before it's too late. They race breathlessly from shop to shop, hoping to find one that has not yet sold out. For once the commodities have been sold that were already on the market when their price was authoritatively fixed at a level below that demanded by the situation of the market, then the emptied storerooms are not filled again. Charging more than a certain price is prohibited, but producing and selling has not been made compulsory. There are no longer any sellers. The market ceases to function. But this means that economic organization based on division of labor becomes impossible. The level of money prices cannot be fixed without overthrowing the system of social division of labor. Thus, Official fixing of prices, which is intended to establish them and wages generally below the level that they would attain in a free market, is completely impracticable. If the prices of individual kinds of commodities and services are subjected to such restrictions, then disturbances occur that are settled again by the capacity for adjustment possessed by the economic order based on private property sufficiently to make the continuance of the system possible. If such regulations are made general and really put into force, then their incompatibility with the existence of a social order based upon private property becomes obvious. The attempt to restrain prices within limits has to be given up. The government that sets out to abolish market prices is inevitably driven towards the abolition of private property. It has to recognize that there is no middle way between the system of private property and the means of production combined with free contract and the system of common ownership of the means of production, or socialism. 
it is gradually forced toward compulsory production, universal obligation to labor, rationing of consumption, and finally official regulation of the whole of production and consumption. This is the road that was taken by economic policy during the war. The etatist who had jubilantly proclaimed the state's ability to do everything it wanted to do discovered that the economists had nevertheless been quite right and that it was not possible to manage with price regulation alone. Since they wished to eliminate the play of the market, they had to go farther than they had originally intended. The first step was the rationing of the most important necessaries, but soon compulsory labor had to be resorted to and eventually the subordination of the whole of production and consumption to the direction of the state. Private property existed in name only. In fact, it had been abolished. The collapse of militarism was the end of wartime socialism also. Yet no better understanding of the economic problem was shown under the revolution than under the old regime. All the same experiences had to be gone through again. The attempts that were made with the aid of the police and the criminal law to prevent a rise of prices did not come to grief because officials did not act severely enough or because people found ways of avoiding the regulations. They did not suffer shipwreck because the entrepreneurs were not public-spirited, as the socialist etatistic legend has it. They were bound to fail because the economic organization, based upon the division of labor and private property in the means of production, can function only so long as price determination in the market is free. If the regulation of prices had been successful, it would have paralyzed the whole economic organism. The only thing that made possible the continued functioning of the social apparatus of production was the incomplete enforcement of the regulations that was due to the paralysis of the efforts of those who ought to have executed them. During thousands of years in all parts of the inhabited earth, innumerable sacrifices have been made to the chimera of just and reasonable prices. Those who have offended against the laws regulating prices have been heavily punished. Their property has been confiscated, they themselves have been incarcerated, tortured, put to death. The agents of etatism have certainly not been lacking in zeal and energy. But for all this, economic affairs cannot be kept going by magistrates and policemen. Section 4. The Balance of Payments Theory as a Basis of Currency Policy According to the current view, the maintenance of sound monetary conditions is only possible with a credit balance of payments. A country with a debit balance of payments is supposed to be unable permanently to stabilize the value of its money. The depreciation of the currency is supposed to have an organic basis and to be irremediable except by the removal of the organic defects. The confutation of this and related objections is implicit in the quantity theory and in Gresham's law. The quantity theory shows that money can never permanently flow abroad from a country in which only metallic money is used, the purely metallic currency of the currency principle. The tightness in the domestic market called forth by the efflux of part of the stock of money reduces the prices of commodities, and so restricts importation, 
and encourages exportation, until there is once more enough money at home. The precious metals which perform the function of money are distributed among individuals, and consequently among separate countries, according to the extent and intensity of the demand of each for money. State intervention, to assure to the community the necessary quantity of money by regulating its international movements, is supererogatory. An undesired efflux of money can never be anything but a result of state intervention endowing money of different values with the same legal tender. All that the state need do, and can do, in order to preserve the monetary system undisturbed is to refrain from such intervention. That is the essence of the monetary theory of the classical economists and their immediate successors, the currency school. It is possible to refine and amplify this doctrine with the aid of modern subjective theory, but it is impossible to overthrow it, and impossible to put anything else in its place. Those who are able to forget it only show that they are unable to think as economists. When a country has substituted credit money or fiat money for metallic money, because the legal equating of the over-issued paper and the metallic money sets in motion the mechanism described by Gresham's law, it is often asserted that the balance of payments determines the rate of exchange. But this also is a quite inadequate explanation. The rate of exchange is determined by the purchasing power possessed by a unit of each kind of money. It must be determined at such a level that it makes no difference whether commodities are purchased directly with the one kind of money or indirectly through money of the other kind. If the rate of exchange moves away from the position that is determined by the purchasing power parity, which we call the natural or equilibrium rate, then certain sorts of transactions would become profitable. It would become lucrative to purchase commodities with the money that was undervalued by the rate of exchange as compared with the ratio given by its purchasing power, and to sell them for the money that was overvalued in the rate of exchange in comparison with its purchasing power. And because there were such opportunities of profit, there would be a demand on the foreign exchange market for the money that was undervalued by the exchanges, and this would raise the rate of exchange until it attained its equilibrium position. Rates of exchange vary because the quantity of money varies and the prices of commodities vary. It has already been remarked, it is solely owing to market technique that this basic relationship is not actually expressed in the temporal sequence of events. In fact, the determination of foreign exchange rates under the influence of speculation anticipates the expected variations in the prices of commodities. The balance of payments theory forgets that the volume of foreign trade is completely dependent upon prices, that neither exportation nor importation can occur if there are no differences in prices to make trade profitable. The theory clings to the superficial aspects of the phenomena it deals with. It cannot be doubted that if we simply look at the daily or hourly fluctuations on the exchanges, we shall only be able to discover that the state of the balance of payments at any moment does determine the supply and demand in the foreign exchange market. 
but this is a mere beginning of proper investigation into the determinants of the rate of exchange. The next question is, what determines the state of the balance of payments at any moment? And there is no other possible answer to this than that it is the price level and the purchases and sales induced by the price margins that determine the balance of payments. Foreign commodities can be imported at a time when the rate of exchange is rising, only if they are able to find purchasers despite their high prices. One variety of the balance of payments theory attempts to distinguish between the importation of necessaries and the importation of articles that can be dispensed with. Necessaries, it is said, have to be bought whatever their price is, simply because they cannot be done without. Consequently, there must be a continual depreciation in the currency of a country that is obliged to import necessaries from abroad and itself is able to export only relatively dispensable articles. To argue thus is to forget that the greater or less necessity or dispensability of individual goods is fully expressed in the intensity and extent of the demand for them in the market, and thus in the amount of money which is paid for them. However strong the desire of the Austrians for foreign bread, meat, coal, or sugar may be, they can only get these things if they are able to pay for them. If they wish to import more, they must export more. If they cannot export manufactured or semi-manufactured goods, then they must export shares, bonds, and securities of various kinds. If the note circulation were not increased, then the prices of the objects that were offered for sale would have to decrease if the demand for import goods and hence their prices was to rise. Or else the upward movement of the prices of necessaries would have to be opposed by a fall in the price of the dispensable articles, the purchase of which was restricted so as to permit the purchase of the necessaries. There could be no question of a general rise of prices and the balance of payments would be brought into equilibrium, either by the export of securities and the like, or by an increased export of dispensable goods. It is only when the above assumption does not hold good, only when the quantity of notes in circulation is increased, that foreign commodities can still be imported in the same quantities in spite of a rise in the foreign exchange. It is only because this assumption does not hold good that the rise in the foreign exchange does not throttle importation and encourage exportation until there is again a credit balance of payments. Ancient mercantilist error, therefore, evolved a specter of which we need not be afraid. No country, not even the poorest, need abandon the hope of sound currency conditions. It is not the poverty of individuals and the community— not indebtedness to foreign nations, not the unfavorableness of conditions of production that force up the rate of exchange, but inflation. It follows that all the means that are employed for hindering a rise in the exchange rate are useless. If the inflationary policy continues, they remain ineffective. If there is no inflationary policy, then they are superfluous. The most important of these methods is the prohibition or limitation of the importation of certain goods that are considered dispensable, or at least less indispensable than others. This causes the sums of domestic money that would have been used for the purchase of these commodities to be used for other purchases, 
and naturally the only goods here concerned are those that would otherwise have been sold abroad. These will now be purchased at home for prices that are higher than those offered for them abroad. Thus, the reduction of imports and so of the demand for foreign exchange is balanced on the other side by an equal reduction of exports and so of the supply of foreign exchange. Imports are in fact paid for by exports, and not by money, as neo-mercantilist dilettantism still continues to believe. If it is really desired to dam up the demand for foreign exchange, then the amount of money to the extent of which it is desired to stop importation must be taken away from those at home, say by taxation, and kept out of circulation altogether, i.e., not used for state purposes but destroyed. That is to say, a deflationary policy must be followed. Instead of the importation of chocolate, wine, and lemonade being limited, the members of the community must be deprived of the money that they would otherwise spend on these commodities. Then they must limit their consumption either of these or of some other commodities. In the former case, less foreign exchange will be wanted. In the latter, more foreign exchange offered than previously. Section 5. The Suppression of Speculation it is not easy to determine whether there are any who still adhere in good faith to the doctrine that traces back the depreciation of money to the activity of speculators. The doctrine is an indispensable instrument of the lowest form of demagogy. It is the resource of governments in search of a scapegoat. There are scarcely any independent writers nowadays who defend it. Those who support it are paid to do so. Nevertheless, a few words must be devoted to it, for the monetary policy of the present day is based largely upon it. Speculation does not determine prices. It has to accept the prices that are determined in the market. Its efforts are directed to correctly estimating future price situations and to acting accordingly. The influence of speculation cannot alter the average level of prices over a given period, what it can do is to diminish the gap between the highest and lowest prices. Price fluctuations are reduced by speculation, not aggravated, as the popular legend has it. It is true that the speculator may happen to go astray in his estimate of future prices. What is usually overlooked in considering this possibility is that under the given conditions it is far beyond the capacities of most people to foresee the future any more correctly. If this were not so, the opposing group of buyers or sellers would have gotten the upper hand in the market. The fact that the opinion accepted by the market has later proved to be false is lamented by nobody with more genuine sorrow than by the speculators who held it. They do not err of malice propense. After all, their object is to make profits, not losses. Even prices that are established under the influence of speculation result from the cooperation of two parties, the bulls and the bears. Each of the two parties is always equal to the other in strength and in the extent of its commitments. Each has an equal responsibility for the determination of prices. Nobody is from the outset and for all time bull or bear. A dealer becomes a bull or a bear only on the basis of a summing up of the market situation, or, more correctly, 
on the basis of the dealings that follow on such a summing up. Anybody can change his role at any moment. The price is determined at that level at which the two parties counterbalance each other. The fluctuations of the foreign exchange rate are not determined solely by bears selling, but just as much by bulls buying. The etatistic view traces back the rise in the price of foreign currencies to the machinations of enemies of the state at home and abroad. These enemies, it is asserted, dispose of the national currency with a speculative intent and purchase foreign currencies with a speculative intent. Two cases are conceivable. Either these enemies are actuated in their dealings by the hope of making a profit, when the same is true of them as of all other speculators, or they wish to damage the reputation of the state of which they are enemies by depressing the value of its currency, even though they themselves are injured by the operations that lead to this end. To consider the possibility of such enterprises is to forget that they are hardly practicable. The sales of the bears, if they ran against the feelings of the market, would immediately start a contrary movement. The sums disposed of would be taken up by the bulls in expectation of a coming reaction without any effect on the rate of exchange worth mentioning. In truth, these self-sacrificing bear maneuvers that are undertaken, not to make a profit, but to damage the reputation of the state, belong to the realm of fables. It is true that operations may well be undertaken on foreign exchange markets that have as their aim not the securing of a profit, but the creation and maintenance of a rate that does not correspond to market conditions, but this sort of intervention always proceeds from governments who hold themselves responsible for the currency and always have in view the establishment and maintenance of a rate of exchange above the equilibrium rate. These are artificial bull, not bear, maneuvers. Of course, such intervention also must remain ineffective in the long run. In fact, there is only one way in the last resort to prevent a further fall in the value of money ceasing to increase the note circulation, and only one way of raising the value of money, reducing the note circulation. Any intervention, such as that of the German Reichsbank in the spring of 1923, in which only a small part of the increasing note expansion was recovered by the banks through the sale of foreign bills, would necessarily be unsuccessful. Led by the idea of opposing speculation, Inflationistic governments have allowed themselves to become involved in measures whose meaning is hardly intelligible. Thus, at one time, the importation of notes, then their exportation, then again both their exportation and importation, have been prohibited. Exporters have been forbidden to sell for their own country's notes, importers to buy with them. All trade in terms of foreign money and precious metals has been declared a state monopoly. The quotation of rates for foreign money on home exchanges has been forbidden, and the communication of information concerning the rates determined at home, outside the exchanges, and the rates negotiated on foreign exchanges made severely punishable. All these measures have proved useless, and would probably have been more quickly set aside than actually was the case if there had not been important factors in favor of their retention. 
quite apart from the political significance already referred to attaching to the maintenance of the proposition that the fall in the value of money was only to be ascribed to wicked speculators, it must not be forgotten that every restriction of trade creates vested interests that are from then onward opposed to its removal. An attempt is sometimes made to demonstrate the desirability of measures directed against speculation by reference to the fact that there are times when there is nobody in opposition to the bears in the foreign exchange market so that they alone are able to determine the rate of exchange. That, of course, is not correct. Yet it must be noticed that speculation has a peculiar effect in the case of a currency whose progressive depreciation is to be expected, while it is possible to foresee when the depreciation will stop, if at all. While, in general, speculation reduces the gap between the highest and lowest prices without altering the average price level, here, where the movement will presumably continue in the same direction, this naturally cannot be the case. The effect of speculation here is to permit the fluctuation, which would otherwise proceed more uniformly, to proceed by fits and starts with the interposition of pauses, if foreign exchange rates begin to rise, then to those speculators who buy in accordance with their own view of the circumstances are added large numbers of outsiders. These camp followers strengthen the movement started by the few that trust to an independent opinion and send it farther than it would have gone under the influence of the expert professional speculators alone. For the reaction cannot set in so quickly and effectively as usual. Of course, it is the general assumption that the depreciation of money will go still farther. But eventually, sellers of foreign money must make an appearance, and then the rising movement of the exchanges comes to a standstill. Perhaps even a backward movement sets in for a time. Then, after a period of stable money, the whole thing begins again. The reaction admittedly begins late, but it must begin as soon as the rates of exchange have run too far ahead of commodity prices. If the gap between the equilibrium rate for exchange and the market rate is big enough to give play for profitable commodity transactions, then there will also arise a speculative demand for the domestic paper money. Not until the scope for such transactions has again disappeared owing to the rise in commodity prices will a new rise in the price of foreign exchange set in. Atatism eventually comes to regard the possession of foreign money, balances as such, and foreign bills as behavior reprehensible in itself. From this point of view, it is the duty of citizens, not that this is asserted in so many words, but it is the tone of all official declarations to put up with the harmful consequences of the depreciation of money to their private property and to make no attempt to avoid this by acquiring such possessions as are not eaten up by the depreciation of money. From the point of view of the individual, they declare, it may indeed appear profitable for him to save himself from impoverishment by a flight from the market. But, from the point of view of the community, this is harmful, and therefore is to be condemned. This demand really comes to a cool request on the part of those who enjoy the benefits of the inflation that everybody else should render up their wealth for sacrifice to the destructive policy of the state. In this case, as in all others in which similar assertions are made, 
it is not true that there exists an opposition between the interests of the individual and the interests of the community. The national capital is composed of the capital of the individual members of the state, and when the latter is consumed, nothing remains of the former either. The individual who takes steps to invest his property in such a way that it cannot be eaten up by the depreciation of money does not injure the community. On the contrary, in taking steps to preserve his private property from destruction, he also preserves some of the property of the community from destruction. If he surrendered it without opposition to the effects of the inflation, all he would do would be to further the destruction of part of the national wealth and enrich those to whom the inflationary policy brings profit. It is true that not inconsiderable sections of the best classes of the German people have given credit to the asservations of the inflationists and their press. Many thought that they were doing a patriotic act when they did not get rid of their marks or Cronin and Marx or Cronin securities, but retained them. By doing so, they did not serve the fatherland. That they and their families have, as a consequence, sunk into poverty only means that some of the members of those classes of the German people from which the cultural reconstruction of the nation was to be expected are reduced to a condition in which they are able to help neither the community nor themselves. Part 3. Money and Banking Chapter 1. The Business of Banking Section 1. Types of Banking Activity The business of banking falls into two distinct branches, the negotiation of credit through the loan of other people's money and the granting of credit through the issue of fiduciary media, i.e. notes and bank balances that are not covered by money. Both branches of business have always been closely connected. They have grown up on a common historical soil, and nowadays are still often carried on together by the same firm. This connection cannot be ascribed to merely external and accidental factors. It is founded on the peculiar nature of fiduciary media and on the historical development of the business of banking. Nevertheless, the two kinds of activity must be kept strictly apart in economic theory, for only by considering each of them separately is it possible to understand their nature and functions. The unsatisfactory results of previous investigations into the theory of banking are primarily attributable to inadequate consideration of the fundamental difference between them. Modern banks, beside their banking activities proper, carry on various other more or less closely related branches of business. There is, for example, the business of exchanging money, on the basis of which the beginnings of the banking system in the Middle Ages were developed, and to which the bill of exchange, one of the most important instruments of banking activity, owes its origin. Banks still carry on this business nowadays, but so do exchange bureaus, which perform no banking functions, and these also devote themselves to such business as the purchase and sale of securities. The banks have also taken over a number of functions connected with the general management of the property of their customers. They accept and look after securities as open deposits, detach interest and dividend coupons as they fall due, and receive the sums concerned. 
They superintend the allotment of shares, attend to the renewal of coupon sheets, and see to other similar matters. They carry out stock exchange dealings for their customers and also the purchase and sale of securities that are not quoted on the exchange. They let out strong rooms which are used for the secure disposal of articles of value under the customer's seal. All of these activities, whatever their bearing in individual cases upon the profitability of the whole undertaking, and however great their economic significance for the community as a whole, yet have no inherent connection with banking proper as we have defined it above. The connection between banking proper and the business of speculation and flotation is similarly loose and superficial. This is the branch of their activities on which the general economic importance of the banks nowadays depends, and by means of which, on the continent of Europe and in the United States, they secure control of production no less than of the provision of credit. It would not be easy to overestimate the influence on the organization of economic life that has been exerted by the change in the relation of the banks to industry and commerce. Perhaps it would not be an exaggeration to describe it as the most important event in modern economic history. But, in connection with the influence of banking on the exchange ratio between money and other economic goods, which alone concerns us here, it has no significance at all. Section 2. The Banks as Negotiators of Credit The activity of the banks as negotiators of credit is characterized by the lending of other people's, i.e., of borrowed money. Banks borrow money in order to lend it. The difference between the rate of interest that is paid to them and the rate that they pay, less their working expenses, constitutes their profit on this kind of transaction. Banking is negotiation between grantors of credit and grantees of credit. Only those who lend the money of others are bankers. Those who merely lend their own capital are capitalists, but not bankers. Our use of this definition of the classical school should not furnish any ground for terminological controversy. The expression banking may be extended or contracted as one likes, although there seems little reason for departing from a terminology that has been usual since Smith and Ricardo. But one thing is essential, that activity of the banks that consists in lending other people's money must be sharply distinguished from all other branches of their business and subjected to separate consideration. For the activity of the banks as negotiators of credit, the golden rule holds, that an organic connection must be created between credit transactions and the debit transactions. The credit that the banks grant must correspond quantitatively and qualitatively to the credit that it takes up. More exactly expressed, the date on which the bank's obligations fall due must not precede the date on which its corresponding claims can be realized. Only thus can the danger of insolvency be avoided. It is true that a risk remains. Imprudent granting of credit is bound to prove just as ruinous to a bank as to any other merchant. That follows from the legal structure of their business. There is no legal connection between their credit transactions and their debit transactions. And their obligation to pay back the money they have borrowed is not affected by the fate of their investments. 
the obligation continues even if the investments prove dead losses. But it is just the existence of this risk which makes it worthwhile for the bank to play the part of an intermediary between the grantor of credit and the grantee of it. It is from the acceptance of this risk that the bank derives its profits and incurs its losses. That is all that needs to be said here about this branch of the business of banking. For as far as money and monetary theory are concerned, even the function of the banks as negotiators of credit is of significance only so far as it is able to influence the issue of fiduciary media, which alone will be discussed in the rest of the present work. Section 3. The Banks as Issuers of Fiduciary Media To comprehend the significance of fiduciary media, it is necessary to examine the nature of credit transactions. Acts of exchange, whether direct or indirect, can be performed either in such a way that both parties fulfill their parts of the contract at the same time, or in such a way that they fulfill them at different times. In the first case, we speak of cash transactions. In the second, of credit transactions. A credit transaction is an exchange of present goods for future goods. Credit transactions fall into two groups, the separation of which must form the starting point for every theory of credit and especially for every investigation into the connection between money and credit and into the influence of credit on the money prices of goods. On the one hand are those credit transactions which are characterized by the fact that they impose a sacrifice on that party who performs his part of the bargain before the other does, the foregoing of immediate power of disposal over the exchanged good, or, if this version is preferred, the foregoing of power of disposal over the surrendered good until the receipt of that for which it is exchanged. This sacrifice is balanced by a corresponding gain on the part of the other party to the contract, the advantage of obtaining earlier disposal over the good acquired in exchange, or, what is the same thing, of not having to fulfill his part of the bargain immediately. In their respective valuations, both parties take account of the advantages and disadvantages that arise from the difference between the times at which they have to fulfill the bargain. The exchange ratio embodied in the contract contains an expression of the value of time in the opinions of the individuals concerned. The second group of credit transactions is characterized by the fact that in them the gain of the party who receives before he pays is balanced by no sacrifice on the part of the other party. Thus, the difference in time between fulfillment and counterfulfillment which is just as much the essence of this kind of transaction as of the other, has an influence merely on the valuations of the one party, while the other is able to treat it as insignificant. This fact at first seems puzzling, even inexplicable. It constitutes a rock on which many economic theories have come to grief. Nevertheless, the explanation is not very difficult if we take into account the peculiarity of the goods involved in the transaction. In the first kind of credit transaction, what is surrendered consists of money or goods, disposal over which is a source of satisfaction, and renunciation of which a source of dissatisfaction. In the credit transactions of the second group, the grantor of the credit renounces for the time being the ownership of a sum of money, 
But this renunciation, given certain assumptions that in this case are justifiable, results for him in no reduction of satisfaction. If a creditor is able to confer a loan by issuing claims which are payable on demand, then the granting of the credit is bound up with no economic sacrifice for him. He could confer credit in this form free of charge if we disregard the technical costs that may be involved in the issue of notes and the like. Whether he is paid immediately in money or only receives claims at first, which do not fall due until later, remains a matter of indifference to him. It seems desirable to choose special names for the two groups of credit transactions in order to avoid any possible confusion of the concepts. For the first group, the name commodity credit is suggested. For the second, the name circulation credit. It must be admitted that these expressions do not fully indicate the essence of the distinction that they are intended to characterize. This objection, however, which can in some degree be urged against all technical terms, is not of very great importance. A sufficient reply to it is contained in the fact that there are no better and more apt expressions in use to convey the distinction intended, which, generally speaking, has not received the consideration it merits. In any case, the expression circulation credit gives occasion for fewer errors than the expression emission credit, which is sometimes used and has been chosen merely with regard to the issue of notes. Besides, what applies to all such differences of opinion is also true of this particular terminological controversy. The words used do not matter. What does matter is what the words are intended to mean. Naturally, the peculiarities of circulation credit have not escaped the attention of economists. It is hardly possible to find a single theorist who has devoted serious consideration to the fundamental problems of the value of money and credit without having referred to the peculiar circumstances in which notes and checks are used. That this recognition of the individuality of certain kinds of credit transactions has not led to the distinction of commodity credit and circulation credit is probably to be ascribed to certain accidents in the history of our science. The criticism of isolated dogmatic and economico-political errors of the currency principle that constituted the essence of most 19th century investigation into the theory of banking and credit led to an emphasis being placed on all the factors that could be used to demonstrate the essential similarity of notes and other media of bank credit and to the oversight of the important differences that exist between the two groups of credit characterized above the discovery of which constitutes one of the permanent contributions of the classical school and its successors, the currency theorists. The peculiar attitude of individuals towards transactions involving circulation credit is explained by the circumstance that the claims in which it is expressed can be used in every connection instead of money. He who requires money in order to lend it or to buy something or to liquidate debts or to pay taxes is not first obliged to convert the claims to money, notes or bank balances, into money. He can also use the claims themselves directly as means of payment. For everybody, they therefore are really money substitutes. They perform the monetary function in the same way as money. They are ready money to him, i.e. present, not future money. 
The practice of the merchant who includes under cash not merely the notes and token coinage which he possesses, but also any bank balances which he has constantly at his immediate disposal by means of checks or otherwise, is just as correct as that of the legislature who endows these fiduciary media with the legal power of settling all obligations contracted in terms of money, in doing which he only confirms a usage that has been established by commerce. In all of this there is nothing special or peculiar to money. The objective exchange value of an indubitably secure and mature claim, which embodies a right to receive a definite individual thing or a definite quantity of fungible things, does not differ in the least from the objective exchange value of the thing or quantity of things to which the claims refer. What is significant for us lies in the fact that such claims to money, if there is no doubt whatever concerning either their security or their liquidity, are simply on account of their equality in objective exchange value to the sums of money to which they refer, commercially competent to take the place of money entirely. Anyone who wishes to acquire bread can achieve his aim by obtaining, in the first place, a mature and secure claim to bread. If he only wishes to acquire the bread in order to give it up again in exchange for something else, he can give this claim up instead and is not obliged to liquidate it. But if he wishes to consume the bread, then he has no alternative but to procure it by liquidation of the claim. With the exception of money, all the economic goods that enter into the process of exchange necessarily reach an individual who wishes to consume them. All claims which embody a right to the receipt of such goods will therefore, sooner or later, have to be realized. A person who takes upon himself the obligation to deliver on demand a particular individual good, or a particular quantity of fungible goods, with the exception of money, must reckon with the fact that he will be held to its fulfillment, and probably in a very short time. Therefore, he dare not promise more than he can be constantly ready to perform. A person who has a thousand loaves of bread at his immediate disposal will not dare to issue more than a thousand tickets, each of which gives its holder the right to demand at any time the delivery of a loaf of bread. It is otherwise with money, since nobody wants money except in order to get rid of it again, since it never finds a consumer except on ceasing to be a common medium of exchange, it is quite possible for claims to be employed in its stead, embodying a right to the receipt on demand of a certain sum of money, and unimpunable both as to their convertibility in general and as to whether they really would be converted on the demand of the holder. And it is quite possible for these claims to pass from hand to hand without any attempt being made to enforce the right that they embody. The obligee can expect that these claims will remain in circulation for so long as their holders do not lose confidence in their prompt convertibility or transfer them to persons who have not this confidence. He is therefore in a position to undertake greater obligations than he would ever be able to fulfill, it is enough if he takes sufficient precautions to ensure his ability to satisfy promptly that proportion of the claims that is actually enforced against him. The fact that is peculiar to money alone is not that mature and secure claims to money are as highly valued in commerce as the sums of money to which they refer, 
but rather that such claims are complete substitutes for money, and, as such, are able to fulfill all the functions of money in those markets in which their essential characteristics of maturity and security are recognized. It is this circumstance that makes it possible to issue more of this sort of substitute than the issuer is always in a position to convert. And so, the fiduciary medium comes into being in addition to the money certificate. Fiduciary media increase the supply of money in the broader sense of the word. They are consequently able to influence the objective exchange value of money. To the investigation of this influence, the following chapters are devoted. Section 4. Deposits as the Origin of the Circulation Credit Fiduciary media have grown up on the soil of the deposit system. Deposits have been the basis upon which notes have been issued and accounts opened that could be drawn upon by checks. Independently of this, coins, at first the smaller and then the medium-sized, have developed into fiduciary media. It is usual to reckon the acceptance of a deposit which can be drawn upon at any time by means of notes or checks as a type of credit transaction and, juristically, this view is, of course, justified. But economically, the case is not one of a credit transaction. If credit, in the economic sense, means the exchange of a present good or a present service against a future good or a future service, then it is hardly possible to include the transactions in question under the conception of credit. A depositor of a sum of money who acquires in exchange for it a claim convertible into money at any time, which will perform exactly the same service for him as the sum it refers to, has exchanged no present good for a future good. The claim that he has acquired by his deposit is also a present good for him. The depositing of the money in no way means that he has renounced immediate disposal over the utility that it commands. Therefore, the claim obtained in exchange for the sum of money is equally valuable to him, whether he converts it sooner or later, or even not at all. And because of this, it is possible for him, without damaging his economic interests, to acquire such claims in return for the surrender of money without demanding compensation for any difference in value arising from the difference in time between payment and repayment such, of course, as does not in fact exist. That this could be so repeatedly overlooked is to be ascribed to the long and widely accepted view that the essence of credit consists in the confidence which the lender reposes in the borrower. The fact that anybody hands money over to a bank in exchange for a claim to repayment on demand certainly shows that he has confidence in the bank's constant readiness to pay. But this is not a credit transaction, because the essential element, the exchange of a present good for future goods, is absent. But another circumstance that has helped to bring about the mistaken opinion referred to is the fact that the business performed by banks in exchanging money for claims to money payable on demand, which can be transferred in the place of money, is very closely and intimately connected with that particular branch of their credit business that has most influenced the volume of money and entirely transformed the whole monetary system 
of the present day, namely, the provision of circulation credit. It is with this sort of banking business alone, the issue of notes and the opening of accounts that are not covered by money, that we are concerned. For this sort of business alone is of significance in connection with the function and value of money. The volume of money is affected by no other credit transactions than these. While all other credit transactions may occur singly and be performed on both sides by persons who do not regularly occupy themselves with such transactions, the provision of credit through the issue of fiduciary media is only possible on the part of an undertaking which conducts credit transactions as a matter of regular business. Deposits must be accepted and loans granted on a fairly considerable scale before the necessary conditions for the issue of fiduciary media are fulfilled. Notes cannot circulate unless the person who issues them is known and trustworthy. Moreover, payment by transfer from one account to another presupposes either a large circle of customers of the same bank or such a union of several banking undertakings that the total number of participants in the system is large. Fiduciary media can, therefore, be created only by banks and bankers, but this is not the only business that can be carried on by banks and bankers. One branch of banking business deserves particular mention because, although closely related to that circle of banking activities with which we have to deal, it is quite without influence on the volume of money. This is that deposit business which does not serve the bank as a basis for the issue of fiduciary media. The activity carried on here by the bank is merely that of an intermediary, concerning which the English definition of a banker as a man who lends other people's money is perfectly apt. The sums of money handed over to the bank by its customers in this branch of business are not a part of their reserves, but investments of money which are not necessary for day-to-day -day transactions. As a rule, the two groups of deposits are distinguished even by the form they have in banking technique. The current accounts can be withdrawn on demand, that is to say, without previous notice. Often, no interest at all is paid upon them, but when interest is paid, it is lower than that on the investment deposits. On the other hand, the investment deposits always bear interest and are usually repayable only on notice being given in advance. In the course of time, the differences in banking technique between the two kinds of deposit have been largely obliterated. The development of the savings deposits system has made it possible for the banks to undertake the obligation to pay out small amounts of saving deposits at any time without notice. The larger the sums which are brought to the banks in the investment deposit business, the greater, according to the law of large numbers, is the probability that the sums paid in on any particular day will balance those whose repayment is demanded, and the smaller is the reserve which will guarantee the bank the possibility of not having to break any of its promises. Such a reserve is all the easier to maintain, inasmuch as it is combined with the reserve of the current account business. Small business people are not very well-to-do private individuals whose monetary affairs are too insignificant to be transferred as a whole to a bank 
now make use of this development by trusting part of their reserve to the banks in the form of savings deposits. On the other hand, the circumstance that competition among banks has gradually raised the rate of interest on current accounts causes sums of money that are not needed for current account purposes and therefore might be invested to be left on current account as a temporary investment. Nevertheless, these practices do not alter the principle of the matter. It is not the formal technical aspect of a transaction, but its economic character that determines its significance for us. From the point of view of the banks, there does exist a connection between the two kinds of deposit business inasmuch as the possibility of uniting the two reserves permits of their being maintained at a lower level than their sum would have to be if they were completely independent. This is extremely important from the point of view of banking technique and explains, to some degree, the advantage of the deposit banks, which carry on both branches of business, over the savings banks, which only accept savings deposits, the savings bank also being consequently driven to take up current account business also. For the organization of the banking system, this circumstance is of importance. For the theoretical investigation of its problem, it is negligible. The essential thing about that branch of banking business, which alone needs to be taken into consideration in connection with the volume of money, is this. The banks who undertake current account business for their customers are, for the reasons referred to above, in a position to lend out part of the deposited sums of money. It is a matter of indifference how they do this, whether they actually lend out a portion of the deposited money or issue notes to those who want credit or open a current account for them. The only circumstance that is of importance here is that the loans are granted out of a fund that did not exist before the loans were granted. In all other circumstances, whenever loans are granted, they are granted out of existing and available funds of wealth. A bank which neither possesses the right of note issue nor carries on current account business for its customers can never lend out more money than the sum of its own resources and the resources that other persons have entrusted to it. It is otherwise with those banks that issue notes or open current accounts. They have a fund from which to grant loans over and above their own resources and those resources of other people that are at their disposal. Section 5. The Granting of Circulation Credit According to the prevailing opinion, a bank which grants a loan in its own notes plays the part of a credit negotiator between the borrowers and those in whose hands the notes happen to be at any time. Thus, in the last resort, bank credit is not granted by the banks but by the holders of the notes. The intervention of the banks is said to have the single object of permitting the substitution of its well-known and indubitable credit for that of an unknown and perhaps less trustworthy debtor, and so of making it easier for a borrower to get a loan taken up by the public. It is asserted, for example, that if bills are discounted by the bank and the discounted equivalent paid out in notes, these notes only circulate in place of the bills, which would otherwise be passed directly from hand to hand in lieu of cash. 
It is thought that this can also be proved historically by reference to the fact that before the development of the bank of issue system, especially in England, bills circulated to a greater extent than afterwards. That in Lancashire, for example, until the opening of a branch of the Bank of England in Manchester, nine-tenths of the total payments were made in bills and only one-tenth in money or banknotes. Now, this view by no means describes the essence of the matter. A person who accepts and holds notes grants no credit. He exchanges no present good for a future good. The immediately convertible note of a solvent bank is employable everywhere as a fiduciary medium instead of money in commercial transactions, and nobody draws a distinction between the money and the notes which he holds as cash. The note is a present good just as much as the money. Notes might be issued by banks in either of two ways. One way is to exchange them for money. According to accounting principles, the bank here enters into a debit transaction and a credit transaction. But the transaction is actually a matter of indifference since the new liability is balanced by an exactly corresponding asset. The bank cannot make a profit out of such a transaction. In fact, such a transaction involves it in a loss, since it brings in nothing to balance the expense of manufacturing the notes and storing the stocks of money. The issue of fully backed notes can therefore only be carried on in conjunction with the issue of fiduciary media. This is the second possible way of issuing notes, to issue them as loans to persons in search of credit. According to the books, this, like the other, is a case of a credit and a debit transaction. But, from the economic point of view, it is a case of a credit transaction only. It is true that this is not shown by the bank's balance sheet. On the credit side of the balance sheet are entered the loans granted and the state of the till, and on the debit side, the notes. We approach a better understanding of the true nature of the whole process if we go instead to the profit and loss account. In this account, there is recorded a profit, whose origin is suggestive, profit on loans. When the bank lends other people's money as well as its own resources, part of this profit arises from the difference between the rates of interest that it pays its depositors and the rates that it charges its borrowers. The other part arises from the granting of circulation credit. It is the bank that makes this profit, not the holders of the notes. It is possible that the bank may retain the whole of it, but sometimes it shares it, either with the holders of the notes or, more probably, with the depositors. But in either case, there is a profit. Let us imagine a country whose monetary circulation consists in a hundred million ducats. In this country, a bank of issue is established. For the sake of simplicity, let us assume that the bank's own capital is invested as a reserve outside the banking business and that it has to pay the annual interest on this capital to the state in return for the concession of the right of note issue, an assumption that does correspond closely with the actual situation of some banks of issue. Now, let the bank have 50 million ducats paid into it and issue 50 million ducats worth of one ducat notes against this sum. 
But we must suppose that the bank does not allow the whole sum of 50 million ducats to remain in its vaults. It lends out 40 millions on interest to foreign businessmen. The interest on these loans constitutes its gross profit, which is reduced only by the cost of manufacture of the notes, by administrative expenses, and the like. It is possible in this case to say that the holders of the notes have granted credit to the foreign debtors of the bank, or to the bank itself. Let us alter our example in a non-essential point. Let the bank lend the 40 millions not to foreigners, but to persons within the country. One of these, A, is indebted to B for a certain sum, say the cost of goods which he has bought from him. A has no money at his disposal, but is ready to cede to B a claim maturing in three months, which he himself holds against P. Can B agree to this? Obviously, only if he himself does not need for the next three months the sum of money which he could demand immediately, or if he has a prospect of finding somebody who can do without a corresponding sum of money for three months and is therefore ready to take over the claim against P. Or the situation might arise in which B wished to buy goods immediately from C, who was willing to permit postponement of payment for three months. In such a case, if C was really in agreement with the postponement, this could only be for one of three reasons that might also cause B to be content with payment after the lapse of the three months instead of immediate payment. All these, in fact, are cases of genuine credit transactions, of the exchange of present goods for future goods. Now, the number and extent of the transactions is dependent on the quantity of present goods available. The total of the possible loans is limited by the total quantity of money and other goods available for this purpose. Loans can be granted only by those who have disposal over money or other economic goods, which they can do without for a period. Now, when the bank enters the arena by offering 40 million ducats on the loan market, the fund available for lending purposes is increased by exactly this sum. What immediate influence this must have on the rate of interest should not need further explanation. Is it then correct to say that when the bank discounts bills it does nothing but substitute a convenient note currency for an inconvenient bill currency? Is the bank note really nothing but a handier sort of bill of exchange? By no means. The note that embodies the promise of a solvent bank to pay a sum to the bearer on demand at any time i.e. immediately if desired, differs in an important point from the bill that contains the promise to pay a sum of money after the passage or period of time. The site bill, which, as is well known, plays no part in the credit system, is comparable with the note, but not the time bill, which is the form regularly assumed by the bills that are usual in credit transactions. A person who pays the price of a purchased commodity and money in notes, or by the transfer of any other claim payable on demand, has carried through a cash transaction. A person who pays the purchase price by the acceptance of a three-months bill has carried through a credit transaction. Let us introduce a further unessential variation into our example, which will perhaps help to make the matter clearer. Let us assume that the bank has first issued notes to the value of 50 million ducats 
and receive for them fifty million ducats in money. And now let us suppose it to place a further forty million ducats in its own notes on the loan market. This case is in every way identical to the two considered above. The activity of note issue cannot in any way be described as increasing the demand for credit in the same sense as, say, an increase in the number of bills current. Quite the contrary. The bank of issue does not demand credit, it grants it. When an additional quantity of bills comes on the market, this increases the demand for credit and therefore raises the rate of interest. The placing of an additional quantity of notes on the loan market at first has the opposite effect. It constitutes an increase in the supply of credit and has therefore an immediate tendency to diminish the rate of interest. It is one of the most remarkable phenomena in the history of political economy that this fundamental distinction between notes and bills could have passed unnoticed. It raises an important problem for investigators into the history of economic theory, and in solving this problem it will be their principal task to show how the beginnings of a recognition of the true state of affairs that are to be found even in the writings of the classical school and were further developed by the currency school were destroyed instead of being continued by the work of those who came after. Section 6 Fiduciary Media and the Nature of Indirect Exchange It should be sufficiently clear from what has been said that the traditional way of looking at the matter is but little in harmony with the peculiarities of fiduciary media. To regard notes and current accounts, whether they are covered by money or not, as constituting the same phenomenon, is to bar the way to an adequate conception of the nature of these peculiarities. To consider note holders or owners of current accounts as granters of credit is to fail to recognize the meaning of a credit transaction. To treat both notes and bills of exchange in general, i.e. not merely site bills, as credit instruments alike is to renounce all hope of getting to the heart of the matter. On the other hand, it is a complete mistake to assert that the nature of an act of exchange is altered by the employment of fiduciary media. Not only those exchanges that are carried through by the cession of notes or current account balances covered by money, but also those exchanges that are carried through by the employment of fiduciary media are indirect exchanges involving the use of money. Although from the juristic point of view it may be significant whether a liability incurred in an act of exchange is discharged by physical transference of pieces of money or by the cession of a claim to the immediate delivery of pieces of money, i.e. by cession of a money substitute, this has no bearing upon the economic nature of the act of exchange. It would be incorrect to assert, for instance, that when payment is made by check, commodities are really exchanged against commodities only without any of the crude clumsiness of primitive barter. Here, just as in every other indirect exchange made possible by money, and in contrast to direct exchange, money plays the part of an intermediary between commodity and commodity. But money is an economic good with its own fluctuations in value. A person who acquires money, or money substitutes, will be affected by all the variations in their objective exchange value. 
This is just as true of payment by notes or checks as of the physical transference of pieces of money. But this is the only point that matters, and not the accidental circumstance whether money physically enters into the transaction as a whole. Anybody who sells commodities and is paid by means of a check and then immediately uses either the check itself or the balance that it puts at his disposal to pay for commodities that he has purchased in another transaction has by no means exchanged commodities directly for commodities. He has undertaken two independent acts of exchange, which are connected no more intimately than any other two purchases. It is possible that the terminology proposed is not the most suitable that could be found, this must be freely admitted, but it may at least be claimed for it that it opens the way to a better comprehension of the nature of the phenomena under discussion than those that have been previously employed. For if it is not quite true to say that an exact and superficial terminology has been chiefly responsible for the frequently unsatisfactory nature of the results of investigations into the theory of banking, Still, a good deal of the ill-success of such investigations is to be laid to that account. That economic theory puts questions of law and banking technique in the background and draws its boundaries differently from those drawn by jurisprudence or business administration is, or should be, self-evident. Reference to discrepancies between the above theory and the legal or technical nature of particular procedures is therefore no more relevant as an argument against the theory than economic considerations would be in the settlement of controversial juristic questions. Chapter 2. The Evolution of Fiduciary Media Section 1. The Two Ways of Issuing Fiduciary Media Thus fiduciary media are claims to the payment of a given sum on demand, which are not covered by a fund of money, and whose legal and technical characteristics make them suitable for tender and acceptance instead of money in fulfillment of obligations that are in terms of money. As has already been suggested, it is not the dead letter of the law so much as actual business practice that counts, so that some things function as fiduciary media, although they cannot be regarded as promises to pay money from the juristic point of view, because they, nevertheless, are in fact honored as such by some body or other. We were able to show that, so far as they are not money certificates, even modern token coins, and such kinds of money as the German Thaler, during the period from establishment of the gold standard until its abolition, constitute fiduciary media and not money. Fiduciary media may be issued in either of two ways by banks, and otherwise. Bank fiduciary media are characterized by being dealt with as constituting a debt of the issuing body. They are entered as liabilities, and the issuing body does not regard the sum issued as an increase of its income or capital, but as an increase on the debit side of its account, which must be balanced by the corresponding increase on the credit side if the whole transaction is not to figure as a loss. This way of dealing with fiduciary media makes it necessary for the issuing body to regard them as part of its trading capital and never to spend them on consumption, but always to invest them in business. These investments need not always be loans. 
the issuer may himself carry on a productive enterprise with the working capital that is put into his hands by the issue of fiduciary media. It is known that some deposit banks sometimes open deposit accounts without a money cover, not only for the purpose of granting loans, but also for the purpose of directly procuring resources for production on their own behalf. More than one of the modern credit and commercial banks has invested a part of its capital in this matter, and the question of the right attitude in this case of the holders of the money substitutes and of the state legislature that feels itself called upon to protect them remains an open one. In earlier times, there was a similar problem concerning banks issuing notes until banking practice or the law prescribed short-term loans as cover. The issuer of fiduciary media may, however, regard the value of the fiduciary media put into circulation as an addition to his income or capital. If he does this, he will not take the trouble to cover the increase in his obligations due to the issue by setting aside special credit fund out of his capital. He will pocket the profits of the issue, which in the case of token coinage is called seniorage, as composedly as any other sort of income. The only difference between the two ways of putting fiduciary media into circulation lies in the attitude of the issuer. Naturally, this cannot have any significance for the determination of the value of the fiduciary media. The difference between the methods of issue is a result of historical factors. Fiduciary media have sprung from two different roots, from the activities of the deposit and euro banks on one hand, and from the state prerogative of minting, on the other hand. The former is the source of notes and current accounts, the latter that of convertible treasury notes, token coins, and that current money of which the coinage is restricted, but which can be regarded neither as credit money nor as fiat money, because it is actually convertible into money on demand to its full amount. Today, the difference between the two methods of issuing is gradually disappearing, all the more as the state endeavors to act in the same way as the banks in issuing fiduciary media. Some states are already in the habit of devoting the profits of their coinage to special purposes and of refusing to treat them in any way as an increase of wealth. Of the two types of money substitutes issued by banks, the current account is the older. The banknote, in fact, is only a development of it. It is true that the two are different in the eyes of the law and the banker, but they do not differ at all in the eyes of the economist. The only distinctions between them are in those legal or banking or commercial peculiarities of the banknote which give it a special capacity of circulation. It is easily transferable and very like money in the way in which it is transferred. Banknotes were therefore able to outstrip the older money substitute, the current account, and penetrate into commerce with extraordinary rapidity. For medium and small payments, they offer such great advantages that the current account was hardly able to maintain its ground beside them. It was not until the second half of the 19th century that the current account once more became important along with the banknote. In large transactions, check and clearing payments are often superior to notes. But the chief reason why the current account was able, in part, to expel the banknote 
must by no means be sought in any inherent requirements of business. The current account is not, as it is sometimes the fashion to assert without any reason or proof, a higher form of money substitute than the banknote. The banknote has been supplanted by the current account in many countries because its development was artificially hindered and that of the current account artificially encouraged. The reason for this being that acceptance of the doctrines of the currency principle led people to see danger for the stability of the exchange ratio between money and other economic goods only in the overissue of notes and not in the excessive increase of bank deposits. For the study of the credit system from the economic point of view, the contrast between notes and deposits is of minor importance. There are payments for which one or other form is the more suitable, and payments for which both forms are suitable. If their development had been allowed to take its own course, this fact would undoubtedly have been more evident than it is today, when the attempt is sometimes made to bring about the employment of one or other kind of fiduciary medium by artificial means in circumstances where it appears the less appropriate technically. Section 2 Fiduciary Media and the Clearing System That want of clarity concerning the nature of fiduciary media which constitutes the chief characteristic of the writings of the banking theorists and their epigeny, the modern writers on problems of banking theory, leads to a perpetual confusion between money, substitutes, and a series of institutions which reduce the demand for money in the narrower sense and also to relative neglect of the differences that exist between money certificates and fiduciary media within the group of money substitutes proper. The economic effect of an exchange that is carried out with the help of a certain quantity of a fungible good can sometimes, if several persons have to transact business at the same time, be attained more indirectly in ways which, while they are formally of a more complicated legal structure, nevertheless fundamentally simplify the technical transaction and make it possible to dispense in particular instances with the physical presence of pieces of the medium of exchange. If A has to deliver a piece of cloth to B and receive a sheep from him for it, and if A at the same time has to give a sheep to C and receive from him a horse, these two exchanges can also be transacted if B gives a sheep to C on behalf and on account of A, so freeing himself from the obligation that he is under to give A a sheep in return for the cloth, and A from the obligation that he is under to give C a sheep in return for the horse. Whereas the direct transaction of these two exchanges would have necessitated four transfers, this procedure necessitates only three. The possibility of facilitating exchanges in this way is extraordinarily increased by extension of the custom of using certain goods as common media of exchange. For the number of cases in which anybody simultaneously owes and has a claim to a certain fungible good will increase with the number of cases in which one and the same fungible good, the common medium of exchange, is the object of exchange in individual transactions. 
Full development of the use of money leads at first to a splitting up into two acts of indirect exchange, even of such transactions as could in any case have been carried through by direct exchange. The butcher and the baker, who could also exchange their products directly, often prefer to have their mutual relations take the form of an exchange carried through with the help of money, which their other transactions assume also. The butcher sells meat to the baker for money, and the baker sells bread to the butcher for money. This gives rise to reciprocal money claims and money obligations. But it is clear that a settlement can be arrived at here not only by each party actually handing money over to the other, but also by means of offsetting, in which merely the balance remaining over is settled by payment of money. To complete the transaction in this way by full or partial cancellation of counterclaims offers important advantages in comparison with direct exchange. All the freedom connected with the use of money is combined with the technical simplicity that characterizes direct exchange transactions. This method of carrying through indirect exchanges by cancellation of counterclaims is very greatly stimulated at the time when the cases where its employment is possible are increased by the fact that credit transactions or the exchange of present goods for future goods are becoming customary. When all exchanges have to be settled in ready cash, then the possibility of performing them by means of cancellation is limited to the case exemplified by the butcher and the baker, and only then on the assumption which of course only occasionally holds good, that the demands of both parties are simultaneous. At the most it is possible to imagine that several other persons might join in, and so a small circle be built up within which drafts could be used for the settlement of transactions without the actual use of money. But even in this case, simultaneity would still be necessary, and several persons being involved would still be seldomer achieved. These difficulties could not be overcome until credit set business free from dependence on the simultaneous occurrence of demand and supply. This, in fact, is where the importance of credit for the monetary system lies. But this could not have its full effect so long as all exchange was still direct exchange, so long even as money had not established itself as a common medium of exchange. The instrumentality of credit permits transactions between two persons to be treated as simultaneous for purposes of settlement even if they actually take place at different times. If the baker sells bread to the cobbler daily throughout the year and buys from him a pair of shoes on one occasion only, say, at the end of the year, then the payment on the part of the baker and naturally on that of the cobbler also would have to be made in cash if credit did not provide a means first for delaying the one party's liability and then for settling it by cancellation instead of by cash payment. Exchanges made with the help of money can also be settled in part by offsetting if claims are transferred within a group until claims and counterclaims come into being between the same persons, these being then canceled against each other or until the claims are acquired by the debtors themselves and so extinguished. In interlocal and international dealing in bills, 
which has been developed in recent years by the addition of the use of checks and in other ways which have not fundamentally changed its nature, the same sort of thing is carried out on an enormous scale. And here again, credit increases in a quite extraordinary fashion the number of cases in which such offsetting is feasible. In all these cases, we have an exchange made with the help of money, which is nevertheless transacted without the actual use of money, or money substitutes, simply by means of a process of offsetting between the parties. Money in these cases is still a medium of exchange, but its employment in this capacity is independent of its physical existence. Use is made of money, but not physical use of actually existing money or money substitutes. Money which is not present performs an economic function. It has its effect solely by reason of the possibility of its being able to be present. The reduction of the demand for money in the broader sense, which is brought about by the use of offsetting processes for settling exchanges made with the help of money, without affecting the function performed by money as a medium of exchange, is based upon the reciprocal cancellation of claims to money. The use of money is avoided because claims to money are transferred instead of actual money. This process is continued until claim and debt come together, until creditor and debtor are united in the same person. Then the claim to money is extinguished, since nobody can be his own creditor or his own debtor. The same result may be reached at an earlier stage by reciprocal cancellation, that is, by the liquidation of counterclaims by a process of offsetting. In either case, the claim to money ceases to exist, and then, and not until then, is the act of exchange which gave birth to the claim finally completed. Any transfer of a claim which does not bring it nearer to being extinguished by cancellation or offsetting cannot decrease the demand for money. In fact, if the transfer of the claim is not instead of payment in money, then it is on the contrary the source of a fresh demand for money. Now, cession of claims instead of payments in money has, apart from the use of money substitutes, never been of very great commercial importance. As far as claims that are already due are concerned, the holder will, as a rule, prefer to call in the outstanding sums of money, because he will invariably find it easier to buy, and carry through other transactions in the market, with money or money substitutes, than with claims whose goodness has not been indisputably established. But if the holder does, in exceptional cases, transfer such a claim by way of payment, then the new holder will be in the same position. A further hindrance to the transfer of claims to money that are not yet due instead of payment in money is the fact that such claims can be accepted only by such persons as are able to agree to postponement of payment. To rest content with a claim that is not yet due when immediate payment could be enforced is to grant credit. Commercial requirements had previously made use of the legal institution of the bill in a way that caused it to circulate in a manner fairly similar to that of fiduciary media. Towards the end of the 18th and at the beginning of the 19th century, bills were current in the European commercial centers, which were endorsed by the merchants in place of payment in money. 
Since it was the general custom to make payments in this way, anybody could accept a bill that still had some time to run, even when he wanted cash immediately. For it was possible to reckon with a fair amount of certainty that those to whom payments had to be made would also accept a bill not yet mature in place of ready money. It is, perhaps, hardly necessary to add that in all such transactions the element of time was, of course, taken into consideration, and discount consequently allowed for. Now it is true that this might increase the technical difficulties in handling the circulatory apparatus, which was already not an easy matter to deal with for other reasons, such, for example, as the different amounts of the bills, but, on the other hand, it offered a profit to any holder who did not pass the bill on immediately but kept it for a while, even if only for a very short while, in his portfolio. Used in this way, the bill was able to make up to a certain extent for the lack of fiduciary media. Even though it might not be due for a long time ahead, the holder could regard it as liquid because he could pass it on at any time. Despite this, bills of this sort were not fiduciary media in the sense in which notes or deposits are. They lacked the characteristic features and properties which enabled the fiduciary medium, the indefinitely augmentable product of the arbitrary issuing activity of the banks, to become a complete substitute for money for business purposes. It is true that the cooperation of issuers and acceptors can give the circulation of bills the capacity of unlimited augmentation and unlimited lease of life through the agency of bill jobbing and regular prolongation, even if technical difficulties alone are sufficient to prevent the bills from ever being used in business to the same extent as money substitutes. But every increase in the amount of bills in circulation makes negotiation of individual bills more difficult. It reduces the resources of the market. In fact, the holder of a bill, as distinct from the holder of a note or of a current account, is a creditor. A person who accepts a bill must examine the standing of the previous endorser and also that of the issuer and the others who are liable for the bill, but in particular, the primary acceptor. Whoever passes a bill on, in endorsing it, undertakes responsibility for the payment of the amount of the bill. The endorsement of the bill is, in fact, not a final payment. It liberates the debtor to a limited degree only. If the bill is not paid, then his liability is revived in a greater degree than before. But the peculiar rigor of the law relating to its enforcement and the responsibility of its signatories could not be eliminated, for it was these very characteristics alone that had made the bill a suitable instrument for the session in place of money payment, of unmatured claims for which the common law provisions regarding indebtedness are little suited. To whatever extent the custom of issuing or endorsing bills in place of payment in money may have established itself, Every single payment that was made in this way, nevertheless, retained the character of a credit transaction. It was necessary in each individual case for the parties to the transaction to begin by coming to a special agreement as to the present price to be paid for the claim that would not fall due until some future time. If the amount of bills in circulation increased greatly, 
or if doubts happen to arise concerning the solidarity of the position of any of the signatories, then it became more difficult to place the bill even on fairly tolerable terms. Issuer and acceptor had then, in addition, to make arrangements for covering the bill before it fell due, even if only by negotiating a prolongation bill. There is none of this in the case of fiduciary media, which pass, like money, from hand to hand without any sort of friction. The modern organization of the payment system makes use of institutions for systematically arranging the settlement of claims by offsetting processes. There were beginnings of this as early as the Middle Ages. But the enormous development of the clearinghouse belongs to the last century. In the clearinghouse, the claims continuously arising between members are subtracted from one another, and only the balances remain for settlement by the transfer of money or fiduciary media. The clearing system is the most important institution for diminishing the demand for money in the broader sense. In the literature of the banking system, it is not as a rule customary to draw a sufficient distinction between the diminution of the demand for money in the broader sense, which is due to the operations of the clearinghouses, and the diminution of the demand for money in the narrower sense, which is due to the extension of the use of fiduciary media. This is the cause of much obscurity. Section 3. Fiduciary Media in Domestic Trade in the domestic trade of most civilized countries, the actual use of money for transacting exchanges made with the help of money has been very largely superseded by the use of money substitutes. And among the money substitutes, fiduciary media play a constantly increasing part. At the same time, the number of exchanges made with the help of money, which are settled by the offsetting of counterclaims, is growing also. There are countries in which nearly all the internal payments that are not settled by the clearing process are made without the use of money, merely with the aid of bank notes and deposits that are not covered by money, of token coins in the proper sense of the word, and of other coins convertible on demand into money. In other countries, again, the fiduciary medium has not yet been developed to a like extent, but if we disregard those countries in which the insecurity of the law hinders the birth of that confidence in the soundness of the issuer, which is the sine qua non for the circulation of money substitutes, then we shall find no part of the world in which a large proportion of the internal payments are not made by means of the use of fiduciary media alone without the actual transference of money. It is only in medium-sized transactions that there is still room for the transference of actual money. In Germany and England, before the war, it was usual to make payments of 20 to 100 marks and 1 to 5 pounds by transference of gold coins. Smaller and larger payments were made almost exclusively by the cession of token coins or notes or deposits which were only partly covered by money. It was the same in other countries. The fact that money continued to be in actual circulation at all in a series of states, like Germany and England, and was not entirely superseded by fiduciary media and money certificates, was due solely to legislative intervention. 
For reasons which were connected with certain views on the nature of notes, it was thought that the circulation of notes of small denominations ought to be opposed. The battle against the one-pound note in England ended with the complete victory of the sovereign, and this victory had a significance outside England, too, for the disfavor in which small banknotes were held for decades on the continent of Europe was based upon English opinion. It is certain that in those states which have a sound administration of justice and a developed banking system, the employment of actual money and commerce could be replaced without difficulty by the issue of a corresponding quantity of small notes. In some countries in which the actual transfer of money has been completely superseded by fiduciary media and money certificates, this had been systematically sought and attained in a peculiar fashion and under very peculiar conditions. The silver standard countries, India primarily, but the situation was similar in other Asiatic states, after the great controversy about the standards had been decided in favor of monometallism, were forced to accept the world gold standard. But there were extraordinary difficulties in the way of the transition to a monetary system in imitation of English or German institutions. To introduce gold money into the circulation of these countries would have necessitated the conveyance of enormous quantities of gold to them, which would not have been practicable without serious convulsion of the European money market and would have meant great sacrifice. The governments of these countries, however, had to endeavor at all costs, on the one hand, not to raise the value of gold so as not to disturb the European markets, and on the other hand not to reduce the value of silver any more than was necessary. The English government in India did not dare to undertake anything which might have had an unfavorable influence on the London money market, but having regard to India's Asiatic competitors, which presumably would remain on the silver standard, neither did it dare to take any steps which would expedite the fall in the price of silver and consequently weaken for a time even if only in appearance, the ability of India to compete with China, Japan, the Straits settlements, and the other silver countries. It therefore had the task of conducting India's transition to the gold standard without buying gold in considerable quantities or selling silver. The problem was not insoluble. Within limits, the circumstances were similar to those of the bimetallic countries, which had discontinued the free coinage of silver at the end of the 70s, and besides, careful scientific consideration of the problem showed that it was possible to create a gold standard without a gold currency, that it was enough to discontinue the free coinage of silver and to announce its convertibility into gold at a specific rate, making this effective by establishing a suitable conversion fund in order to give the country a gold standard which would differ from that of England only in the lower level of the stock. It was only necessary to go back to the writings of Ricardo in order to find the plan for such a currency system already worked out in detail. Lindsay and Proben followed this path and, building upon Ricardo, worked out plans for this kind of currency regulation. Both wanted to close the mints to silver, and to make the rupee convertible into gold at a fixed ratio. For the future, only the rupee was to be legal tender. 
The two proposals differed on some minor points, of which the most important was that while Proben held it necessary that the rupee should be convertible into gold in India itself, Lindsay was of the opinion that it would suffice if the conversion were to be in London from a gold reserve to be established there. Both proposals were rejected by the Indian government and by the commissions appointed to inquire into the Indian monetary system. The opinion was expressed that a normal gold standard necessitates an actual gold currency and that the lack of such a currency would awaken mistrust. The report of the Commission of 1898 was signed by the most eminent experts of the day. Its comments on the recommendation of Probin and Lindsay were supported on the decisive point by the expert opinions of the biggest bankers in the British Empire. The course of events vindicated the theorists, however, not the statesmen and great financiers who had regarded them with amused commiseration. What was ultimately done in India corresponded roughly and on the whole to the recommendations of Probin and Lindsay, even if there were variations in detail. And the monetary systems of other countries that had previously been on a silver standard were organized in a precisely similar manner. The present currency system of India, of the Straits Settlements, of the Philippines, and of other Asiatic countries which have followed their example, is superficially characterized by the fact that in domestic trade, payments in money, that is in gold, do not occur at all, or at least are far rarer than the gold standard countries of Europe and America. And even in these, the actual circulation of gold is only quite small in proportion to the total of all payments made with the help of money. Under the system, in India, payments are made, along with notes, checks, and gyro transfers, chiefly in silver coins, which are partly relics of the time of the silver standard, and partly minted by the government for the account of the state and to the benefit of the treasury, which receives the considerable profits of the coinage. A conversion fund, which is set up and administered by the government, exchanges these silver coins at a fixed ratio for gold, gold securities, or other claims to money, payable on demand, while, on the other hand, it issues such silver coins in exchange for gold in unlimited quantities at the same rate, allowances being made for the expenses of storage, transportation, etc., the minor details of this arrangement differ in different countries, but the differences in its legal or banking technique are insignificant as far as its nature is concerned. It is, for example, of no further significance whether or not the silver coins are converted on the basis of a legal obligation. All that matters is whether the conversion actually does take place on demand. There exists no fundamental difference at all between the currency system of these Asiatic and American countries and that the European gold standard countries once had. Under both systems, payments are made without the actual transference of money by the aid of the surrender of fiduciary media. The fact that in England and Germany the actual transference of money also played a certain part for medium-sized payments Whereas in India and in the Philippines the number of actual transfers of money is scarcely worth mentioning, or that in the former countries the proportion of the circulation that was not covered by money was smaller than in the latter, is quite inessential. 
It is a difference that is merely quantitative, not qualitative. Of no greater relevance is the circumstance that the fiduciary media were in the one case predominantly banknotes and checks, and are, in the other case, predominantly silver coins. The silver rupee is in truth nothing but a metallic note, for the conversion of which its issuer, the state, is responsible. Following up a train of thought of Ricardo's, who was the first to develop the plan of this monetary system more than a hundred years ago, it is customary to speak of it as the gold exchange standard. The aptness of this designation can only be conceded if it is intended to stress the peculiarities in banking and currency technique that characterize the system. But it is a name that must be rejected if it is intended to indicate the existence of a fundamental difference from what used to be the English and German type of gold standard. It is not correct to assert that in these countries gold functions merely as a measure of prices, while the silver coins are used as common medium of exchange. We know what little justification there is for speaking of a price-measuring function of money. In Ricardo's sense, it was possible to speak of measurement and measures of value. From the point of view of the subjective theory of value, these and similar concepts are untenable. In India and Austria-Hungary, and in all other countries with similar currency and banking systems, Gold is, or was, just as much a common medium of exchange as in pre-war England or Germany. The difference between the two systems is only one of degree, not one of kind. Section 4. Fiduciary Media in International Trade The practice of making payments by the writing off or reciprocal balancing of claims is not restricted by the boundaries of states or countries, it was, in fact, in trade between different areas that the need for it was earliest and most strongly felt. The transportation of money always involves not inconsiderable cost, loss of interest, and risk. If the claims arising out of various transactions are liquidated not by the actual transference of money, but by balancing or offsetting, then all these expenses and dangers can be avoided. This provided an extraordinarily effective motive for developing those methods of making payments over long distances, which saved the transference of sums of money. Quite early, we find the use of bills established for interlocal payments. Then, in addition, we later find checks and ordinary and cable transfers, all forming the basis of an interlocal clearing system which worked through the ordinary free play of the market without the help of a special clearinghouse. When making payments within a given locality, the advantages for the individual of the method of settling transactions by the clearing process, and therefore without the use of cash, are smaller than those when making payments between localities, and therefore it was a longer time before the system of reciprocal cancellation came into full operation with the establishment of clearing houses. If the clearing system has without difficulty transgressed political boundaries and created for itself a world-embracing organization in the international bill and check system, the validity of the fiduciary media, like that of all money substitutes, is nationally limited. 
There are no money substitutes, and so no fiduciary media, that are recognized internationally and consequently able to take the place of money in international trade for settling the balances that remain over after the clearing process. That is often overlooked in discussions of the present position of the international system of payments and the possibilities of its future development. Here again, in fact, the confusion creeps in that has already been criticized adversely between the system of reciprocal cancellation and the circulation of fiduciary media. This is most clear in the usual arguments about international gyro transactions. In domestic gyro transactions, payments are affected by the transfer of money substitutes, which are often fiduciary media, these the balances of the members at the gyro bank. In international transactions, the money substitute is lacking, and even the international clearing system that is recommended in various quarters is not intended to introduce one. Rather, it should be pointed out that this so-called international gyro system, which incidentally was done away with again by the inflation during the war, while it may have changed the external form of the traditional manner of settling international monetary claims, has not changed its nature. When banks of various countries agree to give their clients the right to undertake different transference from their balances to the balances of the clients of foreign banks, this may quite well constitute a new and additional method of international settlement of accounts. A Viennese desirous of paying a sum of money to somebody in Berlin was previously able either to use an international money order or to go to the exchange and buy a bill on Berlin and send it to his creditor. As a rule, he would have made use of the intermediate services of a bank, which for its part would perform the transaction through the purchase of a foreign bill or a check. Later, if he was a member of the check system of the Austrian Post Office Savings Bank, and his creditor belonged to that of the German Post Office, he would have been able to make the transfer more simply by sending the appropriate order on the Vienna office of the Post Office Savings Bank. This might well be more convenient and better suited to the demands of business than the only method that was once usual, but, however excellent a method, it was not a new method of international monetary intercourse. For the balances of this international gyro system, if they could not be paid by bills, had to be paid by the actual transference of money. It is not true that the international gyro system has decreased the international transportation of money, even before its introduction, the Viennese who wanted to pay money to somebody in Berlin did not buy 20 mark pieces and send them to Berlin in a parcel. The only thing calculated to create international money substitutes, and subsequently international fiduciary media, would be the establishment of an international gyro bank or bank of issue. When it became possible to use the notes issued by the World Bank and the accounts opened by it for the settlement of money claims of all kinds, there would no longer be any need to settle the national balances of payments by transportation of money. The actual transference of money could be superseded by the transference of the notes issued by the World Bank or of checks giving disposal over the issuer's account with the World Bank or even by simple entries in the books of the World Bank. 
The balances of the International Clearing House, which already exists today, although it is not concentrated in any one locality and has not the rigid organization of the National Clearing Houses, would then be paid off in the same way as those of the National Clearing Houses at present. Proposals have been made again and again for the creation of international fiduciary media through the establishment of an interstate bank. It is true that this must not be taken to include every project for extending the international gyro system in the sense in which this word is commonly used. Nevertheless, in certain writings which demand the foundation of a world bank, or at least of an interstate banking organization, there gleams the idea of an international fiduciary medium. The problems of organization raised by the establishment of such an international institution could be solved in various ways. The establishment of the World Bank as a special form of organization and as an independent legal body would probably be the simplest form for the new creation. It would, however, also be possible, apart from this, to establish a special central authority for administering and investing the sums of money paid in to open the accounts and for issuing the money substitutes. An attempt could be made to avoid the obstructions which the susceptibilities of national vanity would probably oppose to the local connection of the business of a bank by leaving the reserves of the World Gyro Authority and the World Issuing Authority in the keeping of the separate national banks. In the reserves of every central bank, a distinction would then have to be made between two sums. One, which would have to serve as a basis for the world organization of the system of payments, and over which only the authorities of the latter would have power of disposal, and a second, which would continue to be at the service of the national monetary system. It would even be possible to go still further, and leave the issue of international notes and of other money substitutes to the individual banks, which would only be required in doing this to follow the instructions given by the authorities of the world organization. It is not our task to investigate which of the various possibilities is the most practical. It is its nature alone that interests us, not the actual form it might take. Special reference must nevertheless be made to one point. If the balances in the books of the World Bank are to be acquired only by cash payment of the full sum of money or by the transfer from some other account that has been acquired by cash payment of the full sum of money, and if the World Bank is to issue notes only in exchange for money, then its establishment may certainly render unnecessary the transportation of quantities of money, which still plays a large part nowadays in the international payment system, but it would not have the effect of economizing money payments. It is true that it would be able to reduce the demand for money because transferences would perhaps be completed more quickly and with less friction. But, as before, the payments that were made through the bank would involve the actual use of money. Of course, the money would remain in the vaults of the World Bank and only the right to demand its surrender would be transferred, but the amount of the payments would be arithmetically limited by the amount of the money deposits in the bank. The possibility of transferring sums of money would be bound up with the existence of these sums of money in actual monetary shape. 
In order to free the international monetary system from these fetters, the World Bank would have to be granted the right of issuing notes as loans also and of opening accounts on credit, that is to say, the right of partly lending out its reserves of money. Then, and not until then, would the interstate system of payments be given a fiduciary medium such as is already possessed by the domestic system. It would become independent of the quantity of money in existence. The realization of a World Bank project developed in this way is opposed by tremendous obstacles which it would hardly be possible to surmount in the near future. The least of these obstacles is constituted by the variety of the kinds of money that are in use in individual states. Nevertheless, in spite of the inflation that was created by the World War and its consequences, we are every day approaching nearer and nearer to the situation of having a world monetary unit based on the metallic money, gold. More important are the difficulties due to political considerations. The establishment of a world bank might come to grief owing to the uncertainty of its position in international law. No state would wish to incur the danger of the accounts of its citizens being impounded by the world bank in case of war. This involves questions of primary importance and therefore no provisions of international law, however surrounded with precautions they might be, could satisfy the individual states so far as to overcome their opposition to membership of such an organization. Nevertheless, the biggest difficulty in the way of issuing international credit instruments lies in the circumstances that it would scarcely be possible for the states that had joined the world banking system to come to an agreement concerning the policy to be followed by the bank in issuing the credit instruments. Even the question of determining the quantity of them to be issued would disclose irreconcilable antagonisms. Under present conditions, therefore, proposals for the establishment of a world bank with power of issuing fiduciary media attract hardly any notice. Chapter 3 Fiduciary Media and the Demand for Money Section 1. The Influence of Fiduciary Media on the Demand for Money in the Narrower Sense The development of the clearing system, especially the extension of the clearinghouse proper, reduces the demand for money in the broader sense. Part of the exchanges made with the help of money can be carried through without the actual physical circulation of money or money substitutes. Thus a tendency has arisen towards the reduction of the objective exchange value of money, which has counteracted the tendency for it to rise, which was bound to result from the enormous increase in the demand for money in consequence of the progressive extension of the exchange economy. The development of fiduciary media has the same sort of effect. Fiduciary media, which can, as money substitutes, take the place of money in commerce, reduce the demand for money in the narrower sense. This constitutes the great significance of fiduciary media, in this their effect on the exchange ratio between money and other economic goods is to be sought. The development of fiduciary media, the most important institution for reducing the need for money in the narrower sense, equally with the establishment and development of clearinghouses, the most important institution for reducing the need for money in the broader sense, has not been merely left to the free play of economic forces. 
the demand for credit on the part of merchants and manufacturers and princes and states, and the endeavor to make a profit on the part of the bankers, were not the sole forces affecting its development. Intervention took place with the object of furthering and expediting the process. As the naive Midas-like trust in usefulness of a large stock of precious metals disappeared and was replaced by sober consideration of the monetary problem, so the opinion gained strength that a reduction of the national demand for money in the narrower sense constituted an outstanding economic interest. Adam Smith suggested that the expulsion of gold and silver by paper, that is to say notes, would substitute for an expensive means of exchange a less expensive, which, however, would perform the same service. He compares gold and silver which is circulating in a country with a road over which all the corn has to be brought to market, but on which, nevertheless, nothing grows. The issue of notes, he says, creates, as it were, a path through the air, and makes it possible to turn a large part of the roads into fields and meadows, and in this way considerably to increase the annual yield of land and labor. Similar views are entertained by Ricardo. He also sees the most fundamental advantage of the use of notes in the diminution of the cost to the community of the apparatus of circulation. His ideal monetary system is one which would ensure to the community, with the minimum of cost, the use of a money of invariable value. Starting from this point of view, he formulates his recommendations, which aim at expelling money composed of the precious metal from actual domestic circulation. The views on the nature of methods of payments which diminish the demand for money, which were developed by the classical economists, were already known in the 18th century. Their acceptance in the writings of the classical economists and the brilliant way in which they were expounded ensured general recognition for them in the 19th and 20th centuries also. The opposition which they occasionally called forth has now sunk into silence. In all countries, the aim of banking policy is to secure the greatest possible extension of money-economizing means of payment. If metallic money is employed, then the advantages of a diminution of the demand for money due to the extension of such other means of payment are obvious. In fact, the development of the clearing system and of fiduciary media has at least kept pace with the potential increase of the demand for money brought about by the extension of the money economy so that the tremendous increase in the exchange value of money, which otherwise would have occurred as a consequence of the extension of the use of money, has been completely avoided, together with its undesirable consequences. If it had not been for this, the increase in the exchange value of money, and so also of the monetary metal, would have given an increased impetus to the production of the metal. Capital and labor would have been diverted from other branches of production to the production of the monetary metal. This would undoubtedly have meant increased returns to certain individual undertakings, but the welfare of the community would have suffered. The increase in the stock of precious metals which serve monetary purposes would not have improved the position of the individual members of the community, would not have increased the satisfaction of their wants, for the monetary function could also have been fulfilled by a smaller stock. And, on the other hand, a smaller quantity of economic goods would have been available for the direct satisfaction of human wants 
if a part of the capital and labor power that otherwise would have been used for their production had been diverted to mining precious metals. Even apart from the diversion of production, a decrease in prosperity would result from the fact that, as a consequence of the rise in the value of precious metals caused by the use for monetary purposes, stock available for industrial employment would decrease, since certain quantities would be transferred from the latter employment to the former. This all becomes particularly clear if we think of an economic community which does not itself produce the precious metals, but imports them. Here the amount of their costs is expressed by the quantity of commodities that must be surrendered to foreign countries in order to obtain the supplementary quantity of monetary metal in exchange. In a country that itself produces the precious metals, the matter is the same in principle, all that is different is the way of reckoning the loss of welfare through the sacrifice of the other branches of production and the preference for mining the precious metals. It is perhaps less perceptible, but it is just as comprehensible in theory. The measure of the additional harm done by the diversion of metal to monetary uses is always given by the quantity of metal that is withdrawn from other uses in favor of the monetary use. Where fiat or credit money is employed, these reasons in favor of the extension of clearing methods of payment and the use of fiduciary media do not arise. The only thing in their favor is that they would avoid an increase in the value of money, although this consideration is decisive. Where they are employed, the principle of establishing the national monetary apparatus and maintaining it in working order with the minimum cost must be attained in another way. It must be an object of policy, for example, to manufacture the paper notes with the minimum cost of production. It is immediately obvious that nothing like the same quantitative significance can be attributed to this problem as to that of decreasing the monetary demand for precious metals. However great the care taken in producing the notes, their cost of production could never be anything near so great as that of the precious metals. If we take into further consideration the fact that the artistic production of the notes also constitutes a precautionary measure against counterfeiting, so that merely on this ground economizing in this sphere is not worth considering, it follows that the problem of diminishing the cost of the circulatory apparatus when fiat or credit money is employed must be of an entirely different nature from what it is when commodity money is employed. Section 2. The Fluctuations in Demand for Money In order to be able to make an accurate estimate of the bearing of clearing methods of payment and of fiduciary media on the development of the demand for money, it is necessary to be clear about the nature of variations in the demand for money. Fluctuations in the demand for money, insofar as the objective conditions of its development are concerned, are governed in all communities by the same law. An extension of the procedure of exchange mediated by money increases the demand for money, a decrease of indirect exchange, a return to exchange in natura, decreases it. But even apart from variations in the extent of indirect exchange, which are insignificant nowadays, large variations in the demand for money occur which are determined by factors of general economic development. 
increase of population and progress in division of labor, together with the extension of exchange which goes hand in hand with it, increase the demand for money of individuals, and also therefore the demand for money of the community, which consists merely in the sum of the demands for money of individuals. Decrease of population and retrogression of the exchange economy bring about a contraction in it. These are the determinants of the big changes in the demand for money. Within these large variations it is possible to observe smaller periodical movements. Such are in the first place brought about by commercial and industrial fluctuations, by the alternation of boom and depression particular to modern economic life, by good and bad business. The crest and the trough of the wave always cover a period of several years, but also within single years, quarters, months, and weeks, even within single days, there are considerable fluctuations in the level of the demand for money. The transactions involving the use of money are concentrated together at particular points of time, and even where this is not the case, the demand for money is differentiated by the practice on the part of buyers of settling their share of transactions on particular dates. On the daily markets it may perhaps seldom happen that the demand for money during the hours of the market is greater than before or after. The periodical rise and fall of the demand for money can be seen much more clearly where transactions are concentrated in weekly, monthly, and annual markets. A similar effect results from the custom of not paying wages and salaries daily, but weekly, monthly, or quarterly. Rents interest and repayment installments are, as a rule, paid on particular days. The accounts of the tailor, the shoemaker, the butcher, the baker, the bookseller, the doctor, and so forth, are often settled not daily, but periodically. The tendency in all these arrangements is enormously strengthened by the mercantile practice of establishing certain days as days of settlement or paydays, the middle and last days of the month have gained a special significance in this connection, and among the last days of the month, particularly the last day of the quarters. But above all, the payments that have to be made in a community during the year are concentrated in the autumn, the decisive circumstance being that agriculture, for natural reasons, has its chief business period in the autumn. All these facts have been repeatedly and exhaustively illustrated by statistics. Nowadays, they are the common property of all discussions on the nature of banks and money. Section 3. The Elasticity of the System of Reciprocal Cancellation It is usual to ascribe to the payment system elasticity that is said to be attained by means of the credit system and the continual improvements in banking organization and technique. The capacity of adjusting the available stock of money to the level of the demand for money at any time, without exerting any influence on the exchange ratio between money and other economic goods. Between the volume of fiduciary media and the bank transactions or private arrangements that can take the place of a transfer of money, on the one hand, and the quantity of money, on the other hand, there is said to be no fixed relationship which could make the former rigidly dependent upon the latter. Instead of there being a fixed quantitative relationship between money and its substitutes, 
that is to say, between the stock of money and the various exchange and payment transactions, it is said that the organization of banking institutions and the credit system has made commerce in the highest degree independent of the quantity of money available. The present-day organization of the money, clearing, and credit system is said to have the tendency to balance out variations in the quantity of money and render them ineffective, and so to make prices, as far as possible, independent of the stock of money. By others, this adjusting capacity is ascribed only to fiduciary media, uncovered bank notes, or unbacked deposits. Before the soundness of these assertions can be tested, they must be brought out of the obscurity that is due to a confusion between the effects of the clearing system and those of the issue of fiduciary media. The two must be considered separately. The reduction in the demand for money in the broader sense that results from the practice of settling counterclaims by balancing them against each other is limited in the first place by the number and amount of the claims and counterclaims falling due on the same date. No greater number or amount of claims can be reciprocally cancelled between two parties than exist between them at the given moment. If, instead of payment in money, claims on third persons are transferred which are cancelled by the transferee and the debtor by means of claims held by the latter against the former, the sphere of the offsetting process can be extended. The clearing houses which nowadays exist in all important commercial centers are able to avoid the technical and legal difficulties in the way of such transfers and have thus performed a quite extraordinary service in the extension of the system of reciprocal cancellation. Nevertheless, the clearing system is still capable of further improvement. Very many payments that could be settled by way of cancellation are still made by the actual transfer of money. If we imagine the clearing system fully developed so that all payments are first attempted to be settled by balancing, even those in everyday retail trade, which, for practical reasons, would not appear to be easy of accomplishment, then we are faced with a second limit to the extension of the clearing system, although this, unlike the first, is not surmountable. Even if the community were in a stable condition in which there were no variations in the relative incomes and wealth of individuals and in the sizes of their reserves, complete reciprocal cancellation of all transfers of money that have to be made at a given moment would be possible only if the money received by individuals was spent again immediately and nobody wanted to hold a sum of money in reserve against unforeseen and indefinite expenditure. But since these assumptions do not hold good, and in fact never could hold good, so long as money is in demand at all as a common medium of exchange, it follows that there is a rigid maximum limit to the transactions that can be settled through the clearing system. A community's demand for money, in the broader sense, even with the fullest possible development of the system of reciprocal cancellation, cannot be forced below a minimum which will be determined according to circumstances. Now, the degree in which a clearing system is actually developed within the limits which the circumstances of the time allow for it is in no way dependent upon the ratio between the demand for money and the stock of money. 
A relative decline in the one or the other can of itself exercise neither a direct nor an indirect influence on the development of the clearing system. Such development is invariably due to special causes. It is no more justifiable to assume that progressive extension of settlement on the clearing principle reduces the demand for money precisely in the degree in which the increasing development of commerce augments it than to suppose that the growth of the clearing system can never outstrip the increase in the demand for money. The truth is, rather, that the two lines of development are completely independent of one another. There is a connection between them only insofar as deliberate attempts to counteract an increase in the exchange value of money by reducing the demand of money through a better development of the clearing system may be made with greater vigor during a period of rising prices, assuming, of course, that the aim of currency policy is to prevent an increase in the purchasing power of money. But this is no longer a case of an automatic adjustment of the forces acting upon the objective exchange value of money, but one of political experiments in influencing it, and the extent to which these measures are accompanied by success remains a matter of doubt. Thus it is easy to see what little justification there is for ascribing to the clearing system the property, without affecting the objective exchange value of money, of correcting the disparities that may arise between the stock of money and the demand for it, and which could otherwise be eliminated only by suitable automatic variations in the exchange ratio between money and other economic goods. The development of the clearing system is independent of the other factors that determine the ratio between the supply of money and the demand for it. The effect on the demand for money of an expansion or contraction of the system of reciprocal cancellation thus constitutes an independent phenomenon, which is just as likely to strengthen as to weaken the tendencies which, for other reasons, have an influence in the market on exchange ratio between money and commodities. It seems self-evident that an increase in the number and size of payments cannot be the sole determinant of the demand for money. Part of the new payments will be settled by the clearing system, for this too, Ceteris Paribus, will be extended in such a way as thereforward to be responsible for the settlement of the same proportion of all payments as before. The rest of the payments could only be settled by clearing processes if there was an extension of the clearing system beyond the customary degree, but such an extension can never be called forth automatically by an increase in the demand for money. Section 4. The Elasticity of a Credit Circulation Based on Bills, Especially on Commodity Bills The Doctrine of Elasticity of Fiduciary Media or more correctly expressed, of their automatic adjustment at any given time to the demand for money in the broader sense, stands in the very center of modern discussions of banking theory. We have to show that this doctrine does not correspond to the facts, or at least not in the form in which it is generally expounded and understood, and the proof of this will, at the same time, refute one of the most important arguments of the opponents of the quantity theory. Took, Fullerton, Wilson, and their earlier English and German disciples teach that it does not lie in the power of the banks of issue to increase or diminish their note circulation. 
They say that the quantity of notes in circulation is settled by the demand within the community for media of payment. If the number and amount of the payments is increased, then, they say, the media of payment must also increase in number and amount. If the number and amount of the payments is diminished, then, they say, the number and amount of the media of payments must also diminish. Expansion and contraction of the quantity of notes in circulation is said to be never the cause, always only the effect, of fluctuations in business life. It therefore follows that the behavior of the banks is merely passive. They do not influence the circumstances which determine the amount of the total circulation, but are influenced by them. Every attempt to extend the issue of notes beyond the limits set by the general conditions of production and prices is immediately frustrated by the reflux of the surplus notes because they are not needed for making payments. Conversely, it is said, the only result of any attempt at an arbitrary reduction of the note circulation of a bank is the immediate filling of the gap by a competing bank, or if this is not possible, as for instance because the issue of notes is legally restricted, then commerce will create for itself other media of circulation, such as bills, which will take the place of the notes. It is in harmony with the views expounded by the banking theorists on the essential similarity of deposits and notes to apply what they say on this point about notes and deposits also. It is in this sense that the doctrine of the elasticity of fiduciary media is generally understood today. It is in this sense alone that it is possible to defend it even with only an appearance of justification. We may further suppose, as being generally admitted, that it is not because of lack of public confidence in the issuing bank that the fiduciary media are returned to it, whether in the form of notes presented for conversion into cash or as demands for the withdrawal of deposits. This assumption also agrees with the teachings of Tuck and his followers. The fundamental error of the banking school lies in its failure to understand the nature of the issue of fiduciary media. When the bank discounts a bill or grants a loan in some other way, it exchanges a present good for a future good. Since the issuer creates the present good that it surrenders in the exchange, the fiduciary media, practically out of nothing, it would only be possible to speak of a natural limitation of the quantity of fiduciary media if the quantity of future goods that are exchanged in the loan market against present goods was limited to a fixed amount. But this is by no means the case. The quantity of future goods is indeed limited by external circumstances, but not that of the future goods that are offered on the market in the form of money. The issuers of the fiduciary media are able to induce an extension of the demand for them by reducing the interest demanded to a rate below the natural rate of interest, that is, below a rate of interest that would be established by supply and demand if the real capital were lent in natura without the mediation of money, whereas, on the other hand, the demand for fiduciary media would be bound to cease entirely as soon as the rate asked by the bank was raised above the natural rate. 
The demand for money and money substitutes that is expressed on the loan market is in the last resort a demand for capital goods, or when consumption credit is involved, for consumption goods. He who tries to borrow money needs it solely for procuring another economic good. Even if he only wishes to supplement his reserve, he has no other object in this than to secure a possibility of acquiring other goods in exchange at the given moment. The same is true if he needs the money for making payments that have fallen due. In this case, it is the person receiving the payment who intends to purchase other economic goods with the money received. That demand for money and money substitutes which determines the exchange ratio between money and other economic goods achieves expression only in the behavior of individuals when buying and selling other economic goods. Only when, say, money is being exchanged for bread is the position of the economic goods, money, and commodity in the value scales of the individual parties to the transactions worked out and used on a basis of action, and from this the precise arithmetical exchange ratio is determined. But when what is demanded is a money loan that is to be paid back in money again, then such considerations do not enter into the matter. Then only the difference in value between present goods and future goods is taken into account, and this alone has an influence on the determination of the exchange ratio, i.e. on the determination of the level of the rate of interest. For this reason, the banking principle is unable to prove that no more fiduciary media can be put into circulation than an amount determined by fixed circumstances not dependent on the will of the issuer. It has therefore directed its chief attention to the proof of the assertion that any superfluous quantity of fiduciary media will be driven out of circulation back to the issuing body. Unlike money, fiduciary media do not come on the market as payments, but as loans. Fullerton teaches they must therefore automatically flow back to the bank when the loan is repaid. This is true, but Fullerton overlooks the possibility that the debtor may procure the necessary quantity of fiduciary media for the repayment by taking up a new loan. Following up trains of thought that are already to be found in Fullerton and the other writers of his circle, and in support of certain institutions of the English and continental banking system, which, it must be said, have quite a different significance in practice than that which is erroneously ascribed to them. The more recent literature of banking theory has laid stress upon the significance of the short-term commodity bill for the establishment of an elastic credit system. The system by which payments are made could, it is said, be made capable of the most perfect adjustment to the changing demands upon it, if it were brought into immediate causal connection with the demand for media of payment. According to Schumacher, that can only be done through banknotes and has been done in Germany by basing the banknotes on the commodity bills, the quantity of which increases and decreases with the intensity of economic life. Through the channel of the discounting business, in place of interest-bearing commodity bills, which have only a limited capacity of circulation because their amounts are always different, their validity of restricted duration, and their soundness dependent on the credit of numerous private persons, banknotes are issued. 
which are put into circulation in large quantities by a well-known semi-public institution, and always refer to the same sums without limitation as to time, and therefore possess a much wider capacity of circulation comparable to that of metallic money. Then, on the redemption of the discounted bill, an exchange in the contrary direction is said to take place. The bank notes, or instead of them metallic money, flow back to the bank, diminishing the quantity of media of payment in circulation. It is argued that if money is correctly defined as a draft on the consideration for services rendered, then a banknote based on an accepted commodity bill corresponds to this idea to the fullest extent, since it closely unites the service and the consideration for it, and regularly disappears again out of circulation after it has negotiated the latter. It is claimed that through such an organic connection between the issue of banknotes and economic life, created by means of the commodity bill, the quantity of the means of payment in circulation is automatically adjusted to variations in the need for means of payment. And that the more completely this is attained, the more out of the question is it that the money itself will experience the variations in value affecting prices, and the more will be the determination of prices subject to the supply and demand on the commodity market. In the face of this, we must first of all ask how it is possible to justify the drawing of a fundamental distinction between banknotes and other money substitutes, between banknotes not covered by money and other fiduciary media. Deposits, which can be drawn upon at any time by check, apart from certain minor technical and juristic details which make them unusable in retail trade and for certain other payments, are just as good as money substitute as the banknote. It is a matter of indifference from the economic point of view whether the bank discounts a bill by paying out currency in notes or by a credit or a gyro account. From the point of view of banking technique, there may be certain differences of importance to the bank official, but whether the bank issues credit in the business of discounting only or whether it also grants other short-term loans cannot be a very fundamental issue. A bill is only a form of promissory note with a special legal and commercial qualification. No economic difference can be found between a claim in the form of a bill and any other claim of equal goodness and identical time of maturity. And the commodity bill, again, differs only, juristically, from an open-book debt that has come into being through a credit-purchase transaction. Thus, it comes to the same thing in the end whether we talk of the elasticity of the note circulation based on commodity bills or of the elasticity of a circulation of fiduciary media resulting from the cession of short-term claims arising out of credit sales. Now, the number and extent of purchases and sales on credit are by no means independent of the credit policy followed by the banks, the issuers of fiduciary media. If the conditions under which credit is granted are made more difficult, their number must decrease. If the conditions are made easier, their number must increase. When there is a delay in the payment of the purchase price, only those can sell who do not need money immediately. But in this case, bank credit would not be requisitioned at all. 
Those, however, who want money immediately can only make sales on credit if they have a prospect of immediately being able to turn into money the claims which the transaction yields them. Other granters of credit can only place just so many present goods at the disposal of the loan market as they possess. But it is otherwise with the banks, which are able to procure additional present goods by the issue of fiduciary media. They are in a position to satisfy all the requests for credit that are made to them. But the extent of these requests depends merely upon the price that they demand for granting the credit. If they demand less than the natural rate of interest, and they must do this if they wish to do any business at all with the new issue of fiduciary media, it must not be forgotten that they are offering an additional supply of credit to the market. Then these requests will increase. When the loans granted by the bank through the issue of fiduciary media fall due for repayment, then it is true that a corresponding sum of fiduciary media returns to the bank and the quantity in circulation is diminished. But fresh loans are issued by the bank at the same time and the new fiduciary media flow into circulation. Of course, those who hold the commodity bill theory will object that a further issue of fiduciary media can take place only if the new commodity bills come into existence and are presented for discounting. This is quite true. But whether new commodity bills come into existence depends upon the credit policy of the banks. Let us just picture to ourselves the life history of a commodity bill, or, more correctly, of a chain of commodity bills. A cotton dealer has sold raw cotton to a spinner. He draws on the spinner and has the three months bill discounted that the latter has accepted. After three months have passed, the bill will be presented by the bank to the spinner and redeemed by him. The spinner provides himself with the necessary sum of cash, having meanwhile spun the cotton and sold the yarn to a weaver by negotiating a bill drawn on the weaver and accepted by him. Whether these two sale and purchase transactions come to pass depends now chiefly upon the level of the bank discount rate. The seller, in the one case the cotton dealer, in the second case the spinner, needs the money immediately. He can only make the sale with a delay in the payment of the purchase price if the sum due in three months, less discount, at least equals the sum under which he is not inclined to sell his commodity. It is unnecessary to give any further explanation of the significance attaching to the level of the bank discount rate in this calculation. Our example proves our point just as well, even if we assume that the commodity that is sold reaches the consumers in the course of the three months, during which the bill circulates and is paid for by them without direct requisitioning of credit. For the sums which the consumers use for this purpose have come to them as wages or profits out of transactions that were only made possible through the granting of credit on the part of the banks. When we see that the quantity of the commodity bills presented for discount increases at certain times and decreases again at other times, we must not conclude that these fluctuations are to be explained by variations in the demands for money of individuals. The only admissible conclusion is that under the conditions made by the banks at the time, there is no greater number of people seeking credit. If the banks of issue bring the rate of interest they charge in their creditor transactions near to the natural rate of interest, 
then the demands upon them decrease. If they reduce their rate of interest so that it falls lower than the natural rate of interest, then these demands increase. The cause of fluctuations in the demand for the credit of the banks of issue is to be sought nowhere else than in the credit policy they follow. By virtue of the power at their disposal of granting bank credit through the issue of fiduciary media, the banks are able to increase, indefinitely, the total quantity of money and money substitutes in circulation. By issuing fiduciary media, they can increase the stock of money in the broader sense in such a way that an increase in the demand for money, which otherwise would lead to an increase in the objective value of money, would have its effect on the determination of the value of money nullified. They can, by limiting the granting of loans, so reduce the quantity of money in the broader sense in circulation as to avoid a diminution of the objective exchange value of money, which would otherwise occur for some reason or other. In certain circumstances, as has been said, this may occur. But in all mechanism of the granting of bank credit and in the whole manner in which fiduciary media are created and return again to the place whence they were issued, there is nothing which must necessarily lead to such a result. It may quite as well happen, for instance, that the banks increase the issue of fiduciary media at the very moment when the reduction in the demand from money in the broader sense or an increase in the stock of money in the narrower sense is leading to a reduction of the objective exchange value of money, and their intervention will strengthen the existing tendency to a variation in the value of money. The circulation of fiduciary media is, in fact, not elastic in the sense that it automatically accommodates the demand for money to the stock of money without influencing the objective exchange value of money, as is erroneously asserted. It is only elastic in the sense that it allows of any sort of extension of the circulation, even completely unlimited extension, just as it allows of any sort of restriction. The quantity of fiduciary media in circulation has no natural limits. If, for any reason, it is desired that it should be limited, then it must be limited by some sort of deliberate human intervention, that is, by banking policy. Of course, all this is true only under the assumption that all banks issue fiduciary media according to uniform principles, or that there is only one bank that issues fiduciary media. A single bank carrying on its business in competition with numerous others is not in a position to enter upon an independent discount policy. If regard to the behavior of its competitors prevents it from further reducing the rate of interest in bank credit transactions, then, apart from an extension of its clientele, it will be able to circulate more fiduciary media only if there is a demand for them even when the rate of interest charged is not lower than that charged by the banks competing with it. Thus, the banks may be seen to pay a certain amount of regard to the periodical fluctuations in the demand for money. They increase and decrease their circulation, pari passu, with the variations in the demand for money. So far as the lack of a uniform procedure makes it impossible for them to follow an independent interest policy. But in doing so, they help to stabilize the objective exchange value of money. 
To this extent, therefore, the theory of the elasticity of the circulation of fiduciary media is correct. It has rightly apprehended one of the phenomena of the market, even if it has also completely misapprehended its cause. And just because it has employed a false principle for explaining the phenomenon that it has observed, it has also completely closed the way to understanding of a second tendency of the market that emanates from the circulation of fiduciary media. It was possible for it to overlook the fact that, so far as the banks proceed uniformly, there must be a continual augmentation of the circulation of fiduciary media, and consequently a fall of the objective exchange value of money. Section 5. The Significance of the Exclusive Employment of Bills as Cover for Fiduciary Media the German Bank Act of March 14, 1875, required that the notes issued in excess of the gold cover should be covered by bills of exchange. But in practice, this provision has been understood to refer only to commodity bills. The significance of this prescription differs from that popularly attributed to it. It does not make the note issue elastic. It does not even bring it, as is erroneously believed, into an organic connection with the conditions of demand for money. These are all illusions, which should long ago have been destroyed. Neither has it the significance for maintaining the possibility of conversion of the notes that is ascribed to it. This will have to be referred to in greater detail later. Limitation of the note issue not covered by metal that is, of fiduciary media in the form of bank notes, is the fundamental principle of the German Act, which is based upon Peel's Act. And among the numerous and multiform obstacles that have been set up with this aim, the strict provision concerning the investment of the assets backing the note issue takes a not altogether unimportant place. That these must consist not merely in claims, but in claims in the form of bills, that the bills must have at the most three months to run, that they should bear the names preferably of three, but at least of two parties known to be solvent. All these conditions limit the note issue. At the very beginning, a considerable part of the national credit is kept away from banks. A similar effect results from the further limitation of the note cover merely to commodity bills, as was undoubtedly intended by the legislature, even though express provision for it was omitted from the Bank Act, probably because of the impossibility of giving a legal definition of the concept of a commodity bill. That this limitation did in fact amount to a restriction of the issue of fiduciary media is best shown by the fact that when the Bank Act was passed, the number of commodity bills was already limited, and that since then, in spite of a considerable increase in the demand for credit, their number has decreased to such an extent that the Reichsbank meets with difficulties when it attempts to select such bills only for purposes of investing without decreasing the amount of credit granted. Section 6. The Periodical Rise and Fall in the Extent to Which Bank Credit is Requisitioned The requests made to the banks are requests, not for transfer of money, but for the transfer of other economic goods. Would-be borrowers are in search of capital, not money. They are in search of capital in the form of money, 
because nothing other than power of disposal over money can offer them the possibility of being able to acquire in the market the real capital, which is what they really want. Now, the peculiar thing, which has been the source of one of the most difficult puzzles in economics for more than a hundred years, is that the would-be borrower's demand for capital is satisfied by the banks, through the issue of money substitutes. It is clear that this can only provide a provisional satisfaction of the demands for capital. The banks cannot evoke capital out of nothing. If the fiduciary media satisfy the desire for capital, that is, if they really procure disposition over capital goods for the borrowers, then we must first seek the source from which this supply of capital comes. It will not be particularly difficult to discover it. If the fiduciary media are perfect substitutes for money, and do all that money could do, if they add to the social stock of money in the broader sense, then their issue must be accompanied by appropriate effects on the exchange ratio between money and other economic goods. The cost of creating capital for borrowers of loans granted in fiduciary media is borne by those who are injured by the consequent variation in the objective exchange value of money. But the profit of the whole transaction goes not only to the borrowers, but also to those who issue the fiduciary media, although these admittedly have sometimes to share their gains with other economic agents, as when they hold interest-bearing deposits, or the state shares in their profits. The entrepreneurs who approach banks for loans are suffering from shortage of capital. It is never shortage of money in the proper sense of the word that drives them to present their bills for discounting. In some circumstances, this shortage of capital may be only temporary. In other circumstances, it may be permanent. In the case of the many undertakings which constantly draw upon short-term bank credit year in, year out, the shortage of capital is a permanent one. For the problem with which we are concerned, the circumstances causing the shortage of capital on the part of entrepreneurs do not matter. We may even provisionally disregard as of minor importance the question of whether the shortage is one of investment capital or working capital. Sometimes the view is propounded that it is justified to procure investment capital partly by way of bank credit, although this is less undesirable as a way of procuring working capital. Such arguments as these have played an important part in recent discussions of banking policy. The banks have been adversely criticized on the ground of their having used a considerable part of the credit issued by them for granting loans to industrial enterprises in search not of fixed but of working capital and of having thus endangered their liquidity. Legislation has been demanded to limit to liquid investments only the assets backing the liabilities arising from the issue of fiduciary media. Provisions of this sort are designed to deal with fiduciary media in the form of deposits in the same way as the note issue has been dealt with under the influence of the doctrines of the currency school. We have already commented on their significance and have shown, as further discussion will remind us, that the only practical value of these, as of all similar restrictions, lies in the obstacles they oppose to unlimited expansion of credit. 
The cash reserve, which is maintained by every business enterprise, also is a part of its working capital. If an enterprise feels for any reason obliged to increase its reserve, this must be regarded as an increase of its capital. If it requisitions credit for this purpose, its action cannot be regarded as any different from a demand for credit that arises from any other cause, say, on account of an extension of plant or the like. But attention must now be drawn to a phenomenon which, even if it adds nothing new to what has been said already, may serve to set some important processes of the money and capital market in a clearer light. It has been repeatedly mentioned already that commercial practice concentrates all kinds of settlements on particular days of the year, so that there is bound to be a bigger demand for money on these days than on others. The concentration of days of settlement at the end of the week, the fortnight, the month, and the quarter is a factor which considerably increases the demand for money, and so, of course, the demand for capital on the part of undertakings. Even though an entrepreneur could reckon safely on sufficient receipts on a given day to meet the obligations falling due on that or the following day, Still, it would only be in the rarest cases that he could use the former directly for paying the latter. The technique of payment is not so far developed that it would always be possible to fulfill obligations punctually without having secured some days beforehand free disposal over the necessary means. A person who has to redeem a bill that falls due at his bank on September 30th will actually have to take steps before that date for covering it. Sums which do not reach him until the very day of maturity of the bill will mostly prove useless for this purpose. In any case, it is completely impracticable to use the receipts on any given day for making payments that fall due on the same day at distant places. On the days of settlement there must therefore necessarily be an increased demand for money on the part of the individual undertaking, and this will disappear again just as quickly as it arose. Of course, this demand for money, too, is a demand for capital. Hypercritical theorists, following mercantile usage, are accustomed to draw a subtle distinction between the demand for money and the demand for capital. They contrast the demand for short-term credit as a demand for money with the demand for long-term credit as a demand for capital. There is little reason for retaining this terminology, which has been responsible for much confusion. What is here called the demand for money is nothing but the real demand for capital. This must never be forgotten. If the undertaking takes up a short-term loan to supplement its cash reserve, then the case is one of a genuine credit transaction, of an exchange of future goods for present goods. The increased demand for the entrepreneur for money and consequently for capital, which occurs on these days of settlement, expresses itself in an increase of the requests for loans that are made to credit-issuing banks. In those countries where notes and not deposits are the chief kind of fiduciary media, this is perceptible in an increase in the quantity of bills handed in at the banks of issue for discounting, and if these bills are actually discounted, in the quantity of notes in circulation. Now, this regular rise and fall of the level of note circulation round about the days of settlement can in no way be explained by an increase in the total quantity of bills in existence in the community. 
No new bills, particularly no new short-term bills, are drawn and handed into the banks to be discounted. It is bills that have the normal period to run, that are negotiated shortly before maturity. Until then, they are retained in the portfolios either of non-bankers or of banks whose issue of fiduciary media is limited, whether because they have a small clientele or because of legal obstacles. It is not until the demand for money increases that the bills reach the large banks of issue. It is clear how little justification there is for the assertion that the amount of the note issue of Central European banks of issue is organically connected with the quantity of bills drawn in the community. Only some of the bills are discounted at the banks by the issue of fiduciary media. The others complete their term without calling bank credit into use. But the proposition between the two amounts depends entirely on the credit policy that the credit-issuing banks follow. Bank legislation has taken particular account of the extraordinary increase in the demand for money round about quarter day. Article 2 of the German Bank Amendment, Act of June 1, 1909, extends the usual tax-free quota of notes of 550 million marks to 750 million marks for the tax accounts based on information concerning the last days of March, June, September, and December in each year thus sanctioning a procedure that the banks had been in the habit of following for decades. On every day of settlement, the entrepreneur's demand for credit increases, and therefore the natural rate of interest also. But the credit-issuing banks have endeavored to counteract the increase in interest on loans either by not raising the rate of discount at all, or by not raising it to an extent corresponding to the increase in the natural rate of interest. Of course, the consequence of this has necessarily been to swell their circulation of fiduciary media. State banking policy has, in general, put no obstacles in the way of this practice of the banks, which undoubtedly helps to stabilize the objective exchange value of money. The German Bank Act of 1909 was the first which took steps to give it direct support. Section 7 the Influence of Fiduciary Media on Fluctuations in the Objective Exchange Value of Money Thus, there is no such thing as an automatic adjustment of the quantity of fiduciary media in circulation to fluctuations in the demand for money without an effect on the objective exchange value of money. Consequently, all those arguments are ill-founded which seek to deny practical significance to the quantity theory by reference to the alleged elasticity of the circulation of money, the increase and decrease of the stock of fiduciary media in a free banking system have no greater natural connection, direct or indirect, with the rise and fall of the demand for money in the broader sense than the increase and decrease of the stock of money has with the rise and fall of the demand for money in the narrower sense. Such a connection exists only insofar as the credit banks deliberately try to bring it about. Apart from this, the only connection that can be established between the two sets of variations, which are in themselves independent of each other, is such as that of the policy which, say, in a period of increasing demand for money in the broader sense, aims at an increase in fiduciary media in order to counteract the rise in the objective exchange value of money, which might otherwise be expected. 
Since it is impossible to measure fluctuations in the objective exchange value of money, even only approximately, we are not able to judge whether the increase of fiduciary media that has occurred during the last century in nearly all the countries of the world has, together with the increase in the quantity of money, kept pace with the increase in the demand for money in the broader sense, or fallen behind it, or outstripped it. All that we can be sure of is that at least a part of the increase in the demand for money in the broader sense has been robbed of its influence on the purchasing power of money by the increase in the quantity of money and fiduciary media in circulation. Chapter 4. The Redemption of Fiduciary Media Section 1. The Necessity for Complete Equivalence Between Money and Money Substitutes there is nothing remarkable in the fact that money substitutes as completely liquid claims to money against persons whose capacity to pay is beyond all doubt have a value as great as the sums of money to which they refer admittedly the question does arise are there any persons whose capacity to pay is so completely certain as to be quite beyond all doubt and it may be pointed out that more than one bank, whose solvency nobody had dared to call in question, even the day before, has collapsed ignominiously, and that, so long as the remembrance of events of this sort has not entirely vanished from human memory, it must evoke at least a small difference between the valuation of money and that of claims to money payable at any time, even if, as far as human foresight goes, these latter are to be regarded as completely sound. It is undeniable that such questions reveal a possible source of a certain lack of confidence in notes and checks, which would necessarily result in money substitutes having a lower value than money. But, on the other hand, there are reasons which might cause individuals to value money substitutes more highly than money, even if demands for the conversion of money into money substitutes were not always satisfied immediately. We shall have to speak of this later. Furthermore, quite apart from all these circumstances, it should be clearly pointed out that doubts as to the quality of fiduciary media are hardly tenable nowadays. In the case of money substitutes of medium and small denominations, among which token coins occupy the most important place, Doubts of this nature do not come into consideration at all. But in the case also of the money substitutes that are used to meet the requirements of large-scale business, the possibility of loss is as good as non-existent under the present conditions. At least the possibility of loss is no greater in connection with the money substitutes issued by the large central banks than is the danger of demonetization that threatens the holders of any particular kind of money. Now, the complete equivalence of sums of money and secure claims to immediate payment of the same sums gives rise to a consequence that has extremely important bearings on the whole monetary system, viz., the possibility of tendering or accepting claims of this sort wherever money might be tendered or accepted. Exchanges are made through the medium of money. This fact remains unaltered. Buyers buy with money and sellers sell for it. But exchanges are not always made by the transfer of a sum of money. They may also be made by the transfer or assignment of a claim to money. 
Now claims to money which fulfill the conditions mentioned above pass from hand to hand without those who acquire them feeling any need for actually enforcing them. They completely perform all the functions of money. Why then should the bidders burden themselves with the trouble of redeeming them? The claim which has been set in circulation remains in circulation and becomes a money substitute. So long as confidence in the soundness of the bank is unshaken, and so long as the bank does not issue more money substitutes than its customers require for their dealings with one another, and everybody is to be regarded as a customer of the bank who accepts its money substitutes in place of money, then the situation in which the right behind the money substitute is enforced by presentation of notes for redemption or by withdrawal of deposits simply does not arise. The bank of issue may, therefore, assume that its money substitutes will remain in circulation until the necessity of dealing with persons outside its circle of customers forces holders to redeem them. This, in fact, is the very thing which enables the bank to issue fiduciary media at all, i.e., to put money substitutes in circulation without maintaining in readiness the sum that would be necessary to keep the promise of immediate conversion that they represent. The body which issues the fiduciary media and is responsible for maintaining their equivalence with the sums of money to which they refer must nevertheless be able to redeem promptly those fiduciary media which their holders present for conversion into money when they have to make payments to persons who do not recognize these fiduciary media as money substitutes. This is the only way in which a difference between the value of money on the one hand and of the notes and deposits, on the other hand, can be prevented from coming into existence. Section 2. The Return of Fiduciary Media to the Issuer on Account of Lack of Confidence on the Part of the Holders The view has sometimes been expressed that if an issuing body wishes to secure equivalence between its fiduciary media and the money to which they refer, it should take precautions so as to be able to redeem those fiduciary media that are returned to it through lack of confidence on the part of the holders. It is impossible to subscribe to this view, for it completely fails to recognize the significance and object of a conversion fund. It cannot be the function of a conversion fund to enable the issuing body to redeem its fiduciary media when its counters are being besieged by holders who have lost confidence in them. Confidence in the capacity of circulation of fiduciary media is not an individual phenomenon. Either it is shared by everybody, or it does not exist at all. Fiduciary media can fulfill their function only on the condition that they are fully equivalent to the sums of money to which they refer. They cease to be equivalent to these sums of money as soon as confidence in the issuer is shaken, even if only among a part of the community. The yokel, who presents his note for redemption in order to convince himself of the bank's capacity to pay, which nobody else doubts, is only a comic figure that the bank has no need to fear. It need not make any special arrangements or take any special precautions on his account. But any bank that issues fiduciary media is forced to suspend payments if everybody begins to present notes for redemption or to withdraw deposits. 
Any such bank is powerless against a panic. No system and no policy can help it then. This follows necessarily from the very nature of fiduciary media, which imposes upon those who issue them the obligation to pay a sum of money which they cannot command. The history of the last two centuries contains more than one example of such catastrophes. Those banks that have succumbed to the onslaughts of note-holders and depositors have been reproached with bringing about the collapse by granting credit imprudently, by tying up their capital, or by advancing loans to the state. Extremely serious charges have been brought against their directors. Where the state itself has been the issuer of the fiduciary media, the impossibility of maintaining their redeemability has usually been ascribed to their having been issued in defiance of precepts based on banking experience. It is obvious that this attitude is due to a misunderstanding. Even if the banks had put all their assets in short-term investments, i.e., in investments that could have been realized in a relatively short time, they would not have been able to meet the demands of their creditors. This follows merely from the fact that the bank's claims fall due only after notice has been given, whilst those of their creditors are payable on demand. Thus, there lies an irresolvable contradiction in the nature of fiduciary media. Their equivalence to money depends on the promise that they will, at any time, be converted into money at the demand of the person entitled to them, and on the fact that proper precautions are taken to make this promise effective. But, and this is likewise involved in the nature of fiduciary media, what is promised is an impossibility in so far as the bank is never able to keep its loans perfectly liquid. Whether the fiduciary media are issued in the course of banking operations or not, immediate redemption is always impracticable if the confidence of the holders has been lost. Section 3. The Case Against the Issue of Fiduciary Media Recognition of the fact, which has been pointed out before the time of Ricardo, that there is no way in which an issuer of fiduciary media can protect itself against the consequences of a panic or avoid succumbing to any serious run may lead, if one likes, to a demand that the creation of fiduciary media should be prohibited. Many writers have adopted this attitude. Some have demanded the prohibition of the issue of such notes as have no metal backing. Others, the prohibition of all clearing transactions except with full metallic cover. Others again, and this is the only logical position, have combined both demands. Such demands as these have not been fulfilled. The progressive extension of the money economy would have led to an enormous extension in the demand for money if its efficiency had not been extraordinarily increased by the creation of fiduciary media. The issue of fiduciary media has made it possible to avoid the convulsions that would be involved in an increase in the objective exchange value of money and reduce the cost of the monetary apparatus. Fiduciary media tap a lucrative source of revenue for their issuer. They enrich both the person that issues them and the community that employs them. In the early days of the modern banking system, 
they played a further part still by strengthening the credit negotiating activities of the bank, which in those times could hardly have proved profitable if carried on for their own sake alone, and so brought the system safely past those obstacles which obstructed its beginnings. Prohibition of the issue of all notes except those with the full backing and of the lending of deposits which serve as the basis of the check and clearing business would mean almost completely suppressing the note issue and almost strangling the check and clearing system. If notes are still to be issued and accounts opened in spite of such a prohibition, then somebody must be found who is prepared to bear unrecompensed the costs involved. Only very rarely will this be the issuer, although occasionally such a thing happens. The United States of America created silver certificates in order to relieve the business world of the inconveniences of the clumsy silver coinage and so to remove one of the obstacles in the way of an extended use of the silver dollar, which it was thought desirable to encourage for reasons of currency policy. Similarly, for reasons of currency policy, Gold certificates were created, so as to bring gold money into use despite the public preference for paper. Sometimes the public may be found willing to use notes, checks, or gyro transfers for technical reasons, even if they have to make a certain payment to the bank for the facility. There are sometimes objections to the physical use of coins, which are not involved in the transfer of claims to deposited sums of money. The storage of considerable sums of money and their insurance against risk from fire and flood and from robbery and theft is not always a small matter, even for the individual merchant, and still less so for the private person. Warrants payable in order to check books whose folios have no significance until they have been signed by an authorized person are less liable to dishonest handling than are coins whose smooth faces tell no tales of the methods by which they have been acquired. But even banknotes, which retain no relationships to individuals, are yet easier to preserve against destruction and to secure against depredation than are bulky pieces of metal. It is true that the large accumulations of money deposited in the banks constitute all the more profitable and therefore attractive and objective for criminal enterprise, but in their case it is possible to take such precautionary measures as will afford almost complete safety, and it is similarly easier to safeguard such large deposits against the risk of accidental damage by the elements. It has proved a more difficult matter to withdraw the coffers of the banks from the grasps of those in political power, but even this has eventually been achieved, and such coups de main as those of the Stuarts or Davus have not been repeated in modern time. A further motive for the introduction of payment through the mediation of the banks has been provided by the difficulty of determining the weight and fineness of coins in the ordinary course of daily business. In this way, debasement of the coinage led to the establishment of the famous banks of Amsterdam and Hamburg. The commission of one-fortieth percent, which the customers of the Bank of Amsterdam had to pay on each deposit or withdrawal, was far outweighed by the advantages offered by the trustworthiness of the bank currency.
Finally, the saving of costs in transport and the greater handiness or other advantages of banking methods of payment that have similarly entered into consideration, especially in countries with a silver or even a copper standard. Thus, in Japan, as early as the middle of the 14th century, certain notes issued by rich merchants were in great demand because they offered a means of avoiding the costs and inconveniences involved in the transport sport copper coinage. The premium at which banknotes sometimes stood as against metallic currency before the development of the interlocal check and clearing business and the post office order service can most easily be explained along these lines. It is clear that prohibition of the issue of fiduciary media would by no means imply a death sentence for the banking system, as is sometimes asserted. The banks would still retain the business of negotiating credit, of borrowing for the purpose of lending. Not consideration for the banks, but appreciation of the influence of fiduciary media on the objective exchange value of money is the reason why they have not been suppressed. Section 4. The Redemption Fund It follows from this that whoever issues money substitutes is never able to put more of them into circulation than will meet the needs of his customers for business among themselves. All issues in excess of this will return to the issuer, who will have to accept them in exchange for money if he does not wish to destroy the confidence on which his whole business is built up. In view of what has been said in the preceding chapter, and remains to be said in the following chapter, it should not be necessary to state expressly in this place also that this is true only when several coexisting banks issue money substitutes which have a limited capacity of circulation. If there is only a single bank issuing money substitutes, and if these money substitutes have unlimited capacity of circulation, then there are no limits to the extension of the issue of fiduciary media. The case would be the same if all banks had a common understanding as to the issue of their money substitutes and extended the circulation of them according to uniform principles. Thus, in the circumstances assumed, it is not possible for a bank to issue more money substitutes than its customers can use. Everything in excess of this must flow back to it. There is no danger in this so long as the excess issue is one of money certificates, but an excess issue of fiduciary media is catastrophic. Consequently, the chief rule to be observed in the business of a credit-issuing bank is quite clear and simple. It must never issue more fiduciary media than will meet the requirements of its customers for their business with each other. But it must be admitted that there are unusually big difficulties in the practical application of this maxim, for there is no way of determining the extent of these requirements on the part of customers. In the absence of any exact knowledge on this point, the bank has to rely upon an uncertain empirical procedure which may easily lead to mistakes. Nevertheless, prudent and experienced bank directors— and most bank directors are prudent and experienced, usually manage pretty well with it. It is only exceptionally that the clienteles of the credit-issuing banks as such extend beyond political boundaries. 
Even those banks that have branches in different countries give complete independence to their individual branches in the issue of money substitutes. Under present political conditions, uniform administration of banking firms domiciled in different countries would hardly be possible. And difficulties of banking technique and legislation, and finally difficulties of currency technique, stand in the way also. Furthermore, within individual countries, it is usually possible to distinguish two categories of credit banks. On the one hand, there is a privileged bank which possesses a monopoly, or almost a monopoly, of the note issue, and whose antiquity and financial resources, and still more, its extraordinary reputation throughout the whole country, gives it a unique position. And on the other hand, there is a series of rival banks which have not the right of issue and which, however great their reputation and the confidence in their solvency, are unable to compete in the capacity for circulation of their money substitutes with the privileged bank behind which stands the state with all its authority. Different principles apply to the policies of the two kinds of bank. For the banks of the second group, it is sufficient if they keep in readiness for the redemption of those money substitutes which are returned to them a certain sum of such assets as will enable them to command, on demand, the credit of the central bank. They extend the circulation of their fiduciary media as far as possible. If in so doing they exceed the issue that their customers can absorb, so that some of their fiduciary media are presented for redemption, then they procure from the central bank the necessary resources for this by rediscounting bills from their portfolio or by pledging securities. Thus, the essence of the policy that they must pursue to maintain their position as credit-issuing banks consists in always maintaining a sufficiently large quantity of such assets as the central bank regards as an adequate basis for granting credit. The central banks have no such support from a more powerful and distinguished institution. They are thrown entirely upon their own resources and must shape their policy accordingly. If they have put too many money substitutes into circulation, so that the holders apply for their redemption, then they have no other way out than that provided by their redemption fund. Consequently, it is necessary for them to see that there are never more of their fiduciary media in circulation than will meet the requirements of their customers. As has already been said, it is not possible to make a direct evaluation of these requirements. Only an indirect evaluation is practicable. The proportion of the total demand for money in the broader sense that cannot be satisfied by fiduciary media must be determined. This will be the quantity of money that is necessary for doing business with the persons who are not customers of the central bank, i.e., the quantity required for purposes of foreign trade. The demand for money for international trade is composed of two different elements. It consists, first, of the demand for those sums of money which, as a result of variations in the relative extent and intensity of the demand for money in different countries, are transported from one country to another until that position of equilibrium is re-established in which the objective exchange value of money has the same level everywhere. It is impossible to avoid the transfers of money that are necessary on this account. 
It is true that we might imagine the establishment of an international deposit bank in which large sums of money were deposited, perhaps even all the money in the world, and made the basis of an issue of money certificates, i.e., of notes or balances completely backed by money. This might well put a stop to the physical use of coins and might in certain circumstances tend to a considerable reduction of costs. Instead of coins being used, notes would be sent or transfers made in the books of the bank. But such external differences would not affect the nature of the process. The other motive for international transfers of money is provided by those balances that arise in the international exchange of commodities and services. These have to be settled by transfers in opposite directions, and it is therefore theoretically possible to eliminate them completely by developing the clear process. In foreign exchange dealings and the related transactions that in recent times have been united with them, there is a fine mechanism which cancels out nearly all such transfers of money. It is only exceptionally nowadays that two ships meet at sea, one of them taking gold from London to New York and the other bringing gold from New York to London. International transfers of money are controlled as a rule merely by variations in the ratio between the demand for money and the stock of money. Among these variations, those with the greatest practical importance are those which distribute the newly mined precious metals throughout the world, a process in which London often plays the part of a middleman. Apart from this, and provided that no extraordinary cause suddenly alters the relative demand for money in different countries, the transference of money from country to country cannot be particularly extensive. It may be assumed that, as a rule, the variations that occur in this way are not so great as those variations in stocks of money that are due to new production, or at least that they do not exceed them by very much. If this is true, and it is supported only by rough estimates, then the movements which are necessary for bringing the purchasing power of money to a common level will consist largely, or entirely, of variations in the distribution of the additional quantity of money only. It is possible to estimate, on empirical grounds, that the relative demand for money in a country, i.e. the extent and intensity of its demand for money in relation to the extent and intensity of the demand for money in other countries, this phrase being interpreted throughout in a broader sense, will not decrease within a relatively short period to such an extent as to cause the quantity of money and fiduciary media together in circulation to sink below such and such a fraction of its present amount. Of course, such estimates are necessarily based upon more or less arbitrary combinations of factors, and it is obviously never out of the question that they will be subsequently upset by unforeseen events. But if the amount is estimated, very conservatively, and if due account is also taken of the fact that the state of international trade may necessitate transfers of money from country to country, if only temporarily, then so long as the quantity of fiduciary media circulating within the country is not increased beyond the estimated amount, and no money certificates are issued either, the accumulation of a redemption fund might prove altogether unnecessary. For so long as the issue of fiduciary media does not exceed this limit, and assuming, of course, the correctness of the estimate on which it is based, 
there can arise no demand for redemption of the fiduciary media. If, for example, the quantity of bank notes, treasury notes, token coins, and deposits at present in circulation in Germany were reduced by the sum deposited as cover for it in the vaults of the banks, the money and credit system would not be changed in any way. Germany's power to transact business through the medium of money with foreign countries would not be affected. It is only the notes, deposits, and so forth that are not covered by money that have the character of fiduciary media. It is these only, and not those covered by money, that have the effects on the determination of prices, which it is the task of this part of our book to describe. If the amount of fiduciary media in circulation were kept at a level below the limit set by the presumable maximum requirements of foreign trade, then it would be possible to do without a redemption reserve altogether, if it were not for a further circumstance that enters into the question. This circumstance is the following. If persons who needed a sum of money for foreign payments and were obliged to obtain it by exchange of money substitutes could do this only through numerous money-changing transactions, perhaps involving an expenditure of time and trouble so that the procedure costs them something, this would militate against complete equivalence of money substitutes and money, causing the former to circulate at a discount. Hence, if only on this account, a redemption fund of a certain amount would have to be maintained even though the quantity of money actually in circulation was enough for trade with foreign countries. It follows from this that the fully backed note and fully covered deposit, originally necessary in order to accustom the public to the use of these forms of money substitute, have still to be retained nowadays along with the superficially similar but essentially different fiduciary medium. A note or deposit currency with no money backing at all, i.e. one which consisted entirely of fiduciary media, still remains a practical impossibility. If we look at the redemption funds of the self-sufficing banks, we shall observe in them an apparently quite irregular multifariousness. We shall observe that the kind and amount of cover of the money substitutes, especially those issued in note form, are regulated by a series of rules, constructed on quite different lines, partly by mercantile usage and partly by legislation. It is hardly correct to speak of different systems in this connection. That ambitious designation is little suited to empirical rules that have, for the most part, been founded on erroneous views of the nature of money and fiduciary media. There is, however, one idea that is expressed in all of them. The idea that the issue of fiduciary media needs to be limited by some kind of artificial restriction since it has no natural limits. Thus, the question underlying all monetary policy of whether an unlimited increase of fiduciary media with its uneluctable consequence of a diminution in the objective exchange value of money is a thing to be encouraged is implicitly answered in the negative. Recognition of the need for an artificial limitation of the circulation of fiduciary media is, both on strictly scientific grounds and also on the grounds of practical expediency, a product of economic inquiry during the first half of the 19th century. 
its triumph over other views ended decades of such lively discussion as our science has seldom known, and at the same time concluded a period of uncertain experiment in the issuing of fiduciary media. During the years that have since elapsed, the grounds on which it was based have been subjected to criticism, sometimes ill-founded, sometimes founded upon real objections. But the principle of limiting the issue of uncovered notes has not been abandoned in banking legislation. Nowadays, it still constitutes an essential element in the banking policy of civilized nations, even if the circumstance that the limitation only applies to the issue of fiduciary media in the form of notes, and not to the constantly growing issue in the form of deposits, may make its practical importance less than it was some decades ago. Limitation of fiduciary media also forms part of the money and credit system in India, the Philippines, and those countries that have imitated them, although in a different garb. No direct numerical proportion has been set up between the redemption fund administered by the government and the quantity of fiduciary media in circulation. Any attempt to do this would have met with technical difficulties, if only because it was impossible to calculate exactly what the quantity of fiduciary media was at the time of the transition to the new standard. But the further issue of fiduciary media in the form of legal tender coinage is reserved to the state. It mostly requires special legislation, in a similar fashion to that in which the issue of token coinage and the like is regulated elsewhere. Section 5. The So-Called Banking Type of Cover for Fiduciary Media The expressions solvency and liquidity are not always used correctly when they are applied to the circumstances of a bank. They are sometimes regarded as synonymous, but orthodox opinion understands them to refer to two different states. It must be admitted that a clear definition and distinction of the two concepts is usually not attempted. A bank may be said to be solvent when its assets are so constituted that a liquidation would necessarily result, at least in complete satisfaction, of all of its creditors. Liquidity is that condition of the bank's assets which will enable it to meet all its liabilities, not merely in full, but also in time, i.e. without being obliged to ask for anything in the nature of a moratorium from its creditors. Liquidity is a particular sort of solvency. Every enterprise, for the same is true of anybody that participates in credit transactions that is liquid, is also solvent. But on the other hand, not every undertaking that is solvent is also liquid. A person who cannot settle a debt on the day when it falls due has not a liquid status, even if there is no doubt that he will be able in three or six months' time to pay the debt together with interest and the other costs in which the delay is meanwhile involving the creditor. Since ancient times commercial law has imposed on everybody the obligation to have regard to liquidity throughout the whole conduct of his business. This requirement is characteristically expressed in mercantile life. Anyone who has to approach his creditor for permission to defer the payment of a debt Anyone who allows matters to reach the point of having his bills protested has imperiled his business's reputation, 
even if he is afterwards able to meet all his outstanding obligations in full. All undertakings are subject to the rule that we have already encountered as the business principle of the credit-negotiating banks, that steps must be taken to permit the full and punctual settlement of every claim as it falls due. For credit-issuing banks, regard to this fundamental rule of prudent conduct is an impossibility. It lies in their nature to build upon the fact that a proportion, the larger proportion, of the fiduciary media remains in circulation, and that the claims arising from this part of the issue will not be enforced, or at least will not be enforced simultaneously. They are bound to collapse as soon as confidence in their conduct is destroyed, and the creditors storm their counters. They, therefore, are unable to aim at liquidity of investment like all other banks and undertakings in general. They have to be content with solvency as the goal of their policy. This is customarily overlooked when the covering of the issue of fiduciary media by means of short-term loans is referred to as a method that is peculiarly suited to their nature and function, and when the appellation characteristically banking type of cover is applied to it because it is supposed that consistent application of the general rule about liquidity to the special circumstances of the credit-issuing banks shows it to be the system of investment that is proper to such banks. Whether the assets of a credit-issuing bank consist of short-term bills or of hypothecary loans remains a matter of indifference in the case of a general run, if the bank is in immediate need of large sums of money, it can procure them only by disposing of its assets. When the panic-stricken public is clamoring at its counters for the redemption of notes or the repayment of deposits, a bill that still has 30 days to run is of no more use to it than a mortgage which is irredeemable for just as many years. At such moments, the most that can matter is the greater or lesser negotiability of the assets. But in certain circumstances, long-term or even irredeemable claims may be easier to realize than short-term. In times of crisis, government annuities and mortgages may perhaps find buyers more readily than commercial bills. It has already been mentioned that in most states two categories of banks exist, as far as the public confidence they enjoy is concerned. The central bank of issue, which is usually the only bank with the right to issue notes, occupies an exceptional position, owing to its partial or entire administration by the state and the strict control to which all its activities are subjected. It enjoys a greater reputation than the other credit-issuing banks, which have not such a simple type of business to carry on, which often risk more for the sake of profit than they can be responsible for, and which, at least in some states, carry on a series of additional enterprises, the business of company formation, for example, besides their banking activities proper, the negotiation of credit and the granting of credit through the issue of fiduciary media. These banks of second order may, under certain circumstances, lose the confidence of the public without the position of the central bank being shaken. In this case, they are able to maintain themselves in a state of liquidity by securing credit from the central bank on their own behalf, as indeed they also do in other cases when their resources are exhausted. 
and so being enabled to meet their obligations punctually and in full. It is therefore possible to say that these banks are in a state of liquidity so long as their liabilities as they fall due from day to day are balanced by such assets as the central bank considers a sufficient security for advances. It is well known that some banks are not liquid even in this sense. The central banks of individual countries could similarly attain a state of liquidity if they only carried such assets against their issues of fiduciary media as would be regarded as possible investments by their sister institutions abroad. But even then, it would remain true that it is theoretically impossible to maintain the credit bank system in a state of liquidity. A simultaneous destruction of confidence in all banks would necessarily lead to a general collapse. It is true that the investment of all assets in short-term loans does make it possible for a bank to satisfy its creditors within a certain comparatively short period. But this would prove adequate in the case of a loss of confidence only if the holders of notes and deposits did not apply simultaneously to the bank for immediate payment of the sums of money owing to them. Such a supposition is not very probable. Either there is no lack of confidence at all, or else it is general. There is only one way in which the liquidity of status might be at least formally secured with regard to the special circumstances of credit-issuing banks. If such banks made loans only on a condition that they had the right to demand repayment at any time, then the problem of liquidity would, of course, be solved for them in a simple manner. But from the point of view of the community as a whole, this is, of course, no solution, but only a shelving of the problem. The status of the bank could only apparently be kept liquid at the expense of the status of those who borrowed from it, for these would be faced with precisely the same insurmountable difficulty. The bank's debtors would not have kept the borrowed sums in their safes, but would have put them into productive investments from which they certainly could not withdraw them without delay. The problem is thus in no way altered. It remains insoluble. Section 6. The Significance of Short-Term Cover Credit-issuing banks, as a rule, give preference to short-term loans as investments. Often the law compels them to do this, but in any case, they would be forced to do it by public opinion. But the significance of this preference has nothing to do with the greater ease with which it is generally, but erroneously, supposed to allow the fiduciary media to be redeemed. It is true that it is a policy that has preserved the bank credit system in the past from severe shocks. It is true that its neglect has always avenged itself, and it is true that it is still important for the present and the future. But the reasons for this are entirely different from those which the champions of short-term cover are in the habit of putting forward. One of its reasons, and the less weighty, is that it is easier to judge the soundness of investments made in the form of short-term loans than that of long-term investments. It is true that there are numerous long-term investments that are sounder than very many short-term investments. Nevertheless, the soundness of an investment can, as a rule, be judged with greater certainty when all that has to be done is to survey the circumstances of the market in general 
and of the borrower in particular for the next few weeks or months than when it is a matter of years or decades. The second and decisive reason has already been mentioned. If the granting of credit through the issue of fiduciary media is restricted to loans that are being paid back after a short space of time, then there is a certain limitation of the amount of the issue of fiduciary media. The rule that it is desirable for credit-issuing banks to grant only short-term loans is the outcome of centuries of experience. It has been its fate always to be misunderstood. But even so, obedience to it has had the important effect of helping to limit the issue of fiduciary media. Section 7. The Security of the Investments of the Credit-Issuing Banks the solution of the problem of soundness is no more difficult for the credit-issuing banks than for the credit-negotiating banks. If the fiduciary media are issued only on good security, and if a guarantee fund is created out of the bank's share capital for the purpose of covering losses, for even under prudent management losses cannot always be avoided, then the bank can put itself in a position to redeem in full the fiduciary media that it issues although not within the terms specified in its promises to pay. Nevertheless, the soundness of the cover is only of subordinate importance as far as fiduciary media are concerned. It may disappear entirely, at least in a certain sense, without prejudicing their capacity of circulation. Fiduciary media can even be issued without any cover at all. This occurs, for example, when the state issues token coins and does not devote the seniorage to a particular fund for their redemption. Under certain circumstances, the metal value of the coins themselves may be regarded as partial security. And, of course, the state as a whole has assets that provide far greater security than any sort of special fund could offer. On the other hand, even if the fiduciary media are completely covered by the assets of the issuer, so that only the time of their redemption and not its ultimate occurrence is open to question, this cannot have any sort of influence whatever in support of their capacity for circulation. For this depends exclusively upon the expectation that the issuer will redeem them promptly. To have overlooked this is the error underlying all those proposals and experiments which have aimed at guaranteeing the issue of fiduciary media by means of funds consisting of non-liquid assets, such as mortgages. If those money substitutes that are presented for redemption are immediately and fully redeemed in money, then beyond the cash reserve necessary for this redemption, no stock of goods is needed for maintaining equivalence between the fiduciary media and money. If, however, the money substitutes are not fully and immediately redeemed for money, then they will not be reckoned as equivalent to money just because there are some goods, somewhere, that will at some time be used to satisfy the demands that the holders of the money substitutes are entitled to make on the ground of the claims that the money substitutes embody they will be valued at less than the sums of money to which they refer, because their redemption is in doubt, and at the best will not occur until after the passage of a period of time. And so they will cease to be money substitutes. If they continue to be used as media of exchange, it will be at the independent valuation. They will be no longer money substitutes, but credit money. For credit money also... 
that is for unmatured claims which serve as common media of exchange, cover by a special fund is superfluous. So long as the claims are tendered and accepted as money, and thus obtained an exchange value in excess of that which is attributed to them as mere claims, such a fund has no bearing on the matter. The significance of the regulations as to cover and the funds for that purpose lies here, as with fiduciary media, in the fact that they indirectly set a limit to the quantity that can be issued. Section 8. Foreign Bills of Exchange as a Component of the Redemption Fund since it is not the object of a redemption fund to provide for the redemption of such money substitutes as are returned to the bank because of lack of confidence in their goodness, but only to provide the bank's customers with the media of exchange necessary for dealing with persons who are not among its customers, it is obvious that such a fund might be composed, at least in part, of such things as, without being money, can be used like money for dealings with outsiders. These things comprise not only foreign money substitutes, but also all such claims as form the basis of the international clearing business, primarily, that is to say, foreign bills, i.e. bills on foreign places. The issue of money substitutes cannot be increased beyond the quantity given by the demand for money, in the broader sense, of the customers of the bank for the intercourse within the clientele of the bank. Only an extension of the clientele could prepare the way for an extension of the circulation. For the National Central Bank of Issue, whose influence is limited by political boundaries, such an extension remains impossible. Nevertheless, if part of the redemption fund is invested in foreign banknotes or in foreign bills, foreign checks, and deposits at short notice with foreign banks, then a larger proportion of the money substitutes issued by the banks can be transformed into fiduciary media than if the bank held nothing but money in readiness for the foreign dealings of its customers. In this way, a credit-issuing bank may even transform into fiduciary media almost all the money substitutes that it issues. The private banks of many countries are now no longer far removed from this state of affairs, they are in the habit of providing for the prompt redemption of the money substitutes issued by them by holding a reserve itself consisting of money substitutes. Only so far as these covering money substitutes are money certificates do the issued money substitutes not bear the character of fiduciary media. It is only fairly recently that the central banks of issue also have begun to adopt the practice of admitting money substitutes and foreign bills into their conversion funds. Just as the goldsmiths once began to lend out part of the monies entrusted to them for safekeeping, so the central banks have taken the step of investing their stock of metal partly in foreign bills and other foreign credits. An example was set by the Hamburg Gyro Bank, which was accustomed to hold part of its reserve in bills on London. It was followed, during the last quarter of the 19th century, by a series of banks of issue. It was with regard to their profits that the banks accepted this system of cover. The investment of a part of the redemption fund in foreign bills and other foreign balances that could be easily and quickly realized was intended to reduce the costs of maintaining the reserve. 
In certain countries, the central banks of issue acquired a portfolio of foreign bills because the domestic discount business was not sufficiently remunerative. Generally speaking, it was the central banks of issue and the governmental redemption funds of the smaller and financially weaker countries that tried to save expense in this way. Since the war, which has made the whole world poorer, their procedure has been widely imitated. It is clear that the policy of investing the whole redemption fund in foreign claims to gold cannot become universal. If all the countries of the world were to go over to the gold exchange standard and hold their redemption funds not in gold, but in foreign claims to gold, gold would no longer be required for monetary purposes at all. That part of its value, which is founded upon its employment as money, would entirely disappear. The maintenance of a gold exchange standard with the redemption fund invested in foreign bills undermines the whole gold standard system. We shall have to return to this point in Chapter 6. Chapter 5. Money, Credit, and Interest Section 1. On the Nature of the Problem It is the object of this chapter to investigate the connection between the amount of money in circulation and the level of the rate of interest. It has already been shown that variations in the proportion between the quantity of money and the demand for money influence the level of the exchange ratio between money and other economic goods. It now remains for us to investigate whether the variations thus invoked in the prices of commodities affect goods of the first order and goods of higher orders to the same extent. Until now, we have considered variations in the exchange ratio between money and consumption goods only, and left out of account the exchange ratio between money and production goods. This procedure would seem to be justifiable, for the determination of the value of consumption goods is the primary process, and that of the value of production goods is derived from it. Capital goods, or production goods, derive their value from the value of their prospective products. Nevertheless, their value never reaches the full value of these prospective products, but, as a rule, remains somewhat below it. The margin by which the value of capital goods falls short of that of their expected products constitutes interest. Its origin lies in the natural difference of value between present goods and future goods. If price variations, due to monetary determinants, happen to affect production goods and consumption goods in different degrees, and the possibility cannot be dismissed offhand, then they would lead to a change in the rate of interest. The problem suggested by this is identical with the second, although they are usually dealt with separately. Can the rate of interest be affected by the credit policy of the banks that issue fiduciary media? Are banks able to depress the rate of interest charged by them for the loans that their power to issue fiduciary media enables them to make until it reaches the limits set by the technical working costs of their lending business? The question that confronts us here is the much-discussed question of the gratuitous nature of bank credit. In lay circles, this problem is regarded as long since solved. 
Money performs its function as a common medium of exchange in facilitating not only the sale of present goods, but also the exchange of present goods for future goods and of future goods for present goods. An entrepreneur who wishes to acquire command over capital goods and labor in order to begin a process of production must first of all have money with which to purchase them. For a long time now, it has not been usual to transfer capital goods by way of direct exchange. The capitalists advance money to the producers, who then use it for buying means of production and for paying wages. Those entrepreneurs who have not enough of their own capital at their disposal do not demand production goods, but money. The demand for capital takes on the form of a demand for money. But this must not deceive us as to the nature of the phenomenon. What is usually called plentifulness of money and scarcity of money is really plentifulness of capital and scarcity of capital. A real scarcity or plentifulness of money can never be directly perceptible in the community, i.e., it can never make itself felt except through its influence on the objective exchange value of money and the consequences of the variations so induced. For since the utility of money depends exclusively upon its purchasing power, which must always be such that total demand and total supply coincide, the community is always in enjoyment of the maximum satisfaction that the use of money can yield. This was not recognized for a long time, and to a large extent it is not recognized even nowadays. The entrepreneur who would like to extend his business beyond the bounds set by the state of the market is prone to complain of the scarcity of money. Every increase in the rate of discount gives rise to fresh complaints about the illiberality of the bank's methods or about the unreasonableness of the legislators who make the rules that limit their powers of granting credit. The augmentation of fiduciary media is recommended as a universal remedy for all the ills of economic life. Much of the popularity of inflationary tendencies is based on similar ways of thinking. And it is not only laymen who subscribe to such views. Even if experts have been unanimous on this point since the famous arguments of David Hume and Adam Smith, nevertheless, Almost every year, new writers come forward with attempts to show that the size and composition of the stock of capital has no influence on the level of interest, that the rate of interest is determined by the supply of and the demand for credit, and that, without having to raise the rate of interest, the banks would be able to satisfy even the greatest demands for credit that are made upon them, if their hands were not tied by legislative provisions. The superficial observer, whose insight is not very penetrating, will discover many symptoms which seem to confirm the above views and others like them. When the banks of issue proceed to raise the rate of discount because their note circulation threatens to increase beyond the legally permissible quantity, then the most immediate cause of their procedure lies in the provisions that have been made by the legislators for the regulation of their right of issue. The general stiffening of the rate of interest in the so-called money market, the market for short-term capital investments, which occurs, or at least should occur, as a consequence of the rise of the discount rate, is therefore, and with a certain appearance of justification, laid to the charge of national banking policy. 
Still more striking is the procedure of the central banks when they think it beyond their power to bring about the desired general dearness in the money market by merely increasing the bank rate. They take steps which have the immediate object of forcing up the rate of interest demanded by the other national credit-issuing banks in their short-term loan business. The Bank of England is in the habit in such circumstances of forcing consoles on open markets, the German Reichsbank of offering treasury bonds for discount. If these methods are considered by themselves, without account being taken of their function in the market, then it seems reasonable to conclude that legislation and the self-seeking policy of the banks are responsible for the rise in the rate of interest. Inadequate understanding of the complicated relationships of economic life make all such legislative provisions appear to be measures in favor of capitalism and against the interest of the producing class. But the defenders of orthodox banking policy have been no happier in their arguments. They evidence no very considerable insight in the problems lying behind such slogans as protection of the standard and control of excessive speculation. Their prolix discussions are generously garnished with statistical data that are incapable of proving anything, and they devote scrupulous attention to the avoidance of the big questions of theory that constitute the bulk of their subject. It is undeniable that there are some excellent works of a descriptive nature to be found among the huge piles of valueless publications on banking policy of recent years, but it is equally undeniable that, with a few honorable exceptions, their contribution to the theory cannot compare with the literary memorials left by the great controversy of the currency and banking schools. The older English writers on the theory of the banking system made a determined attempt to apprehend the essence of the problem. The question around which their investigations centered is whether there is a limit to the granting of credit by the banks. It is identical with the question of the gratuitous nature of credit. It is most intimately connected with the problem of interest. During the first four decades of the 19th century, the Bank of England was able to regulate only to a limited degree the amount of credit granted by varying the rate of discount. Because of the legislative restriction of the rate of interest, which was not removed until 1837, it could not raise its rate of discount above 5%, and it never allowed it to fall below 4%. At that time, the best means it had of adjusting its portfolio to the state of the capital markets was the expansion and contraction of its discounting activities. That explains why the older writers on banking theory mostly speak only of increases and diminutions of the note circulation, a mode of expression that was still retained long after the circumstances of the time would have justified reference to rises and falls in the rate of discount. But... This does not affect the essence of the matter. In both problems, the only point at issue is whether the banks can grant credit beyond the available amount of capital or not. Both parties were agreed in answering this question in the negative. This is not surprising. These English writers had an extraordinarily deep understanding of the nature of economic activities. They combined thorough knowledge of the theoretical literature of their time with an insight into economic life that was based upon their own observations. Their strictly logical training permitted them rapidly and easily to separate essentials from non-essentials, 
and guarded them from mistaking the outer husk of truth for the kernel that it encloses. Their views on the nature of interest might diverge considerably. Many of them, in fact, had but the vaguest ideas on this important problem, whose significance was not made explicit until a later stage in the development of their science. But they harbored no doubts that the level of the rate of interest as determined by general economic conditions could certainly not be influenced by an increase or diminution in the quantity of money or other media of payment in circulation, apart from considerations of the increase in the stock of goods available for productive purposes that might be brought about by the diminution of the demand for money. But beyond this, the paths of the two schools diverged. Took Fullerton and their disciples flatly denied that the banks had any power to increase the amount of their note issue beyond the requirements of business. In their view, the media of payment issued by the banks at any particular time adjust themselves to the requirements of business in such a way that with their assistance, the payments that have to be made at that time at a given level of prices can all be settled by the use of existing quantities of money. As soon as the circulation is saturated, no bank, whether it has the right to issue notes or not, can continue to grant credit except from its own capital or from that of its depositors. These views were directly opposed to those of Lord Overstone, Torrens, and others, who started by assuming the possibility of the banks having the power of arbitrarily extending their note issue and who attempted to determine the way in which the disturbed equilibrium of the market would re-establish itself after such a proceeding. The currency school propounded a theory complete in itself of the value of money and the influence of the granting of credit on the prices of commodities and on the rate of interest. Its doctrines were based upon an untenable fundamental view of the nature of economic value. Its version of the quantity theory was a purely mechanical one. But the school should certainly not be blamed for this. Its members had neither the desire nor the power to rise above the economic doctrine of their time. Within the currency school's own sphere of investigation, it was extremely successful. This fact deserves grateful recognition from those who, coming after it, build upon the foundations it laid. This needs particular emphasis in the face of the belittlements of its influence, which now appear to be a part of the stock contents of all writings on banking theory. The shortcomings exhibited by the system of the currency school have offered an easy target to the critical shafts of their opponents, and doubtless the adherents of the banking principle deserve much credit for making use of this opportunity. If this had been all that they did, if they had merely announced themselves as critics of the currency principle, no objection could be raised against them on that account. The disastrous thing about their influence lay in their claiming to have created a comprehensive theory of the monetary and banking systems, and in their imagining that their obiter dicta on the subject constituted such a theory. For the classical theory, whose shortcomings should not be extenuated, but whose logical acuteness and deep insight into the complications of the problem is undeniable, they substituted a series of assertions that were not always formulated with precision and often contradicted one another. In so doing, they paved the way for that method of dealing with monetary problems that was customary in our science before the labors of Menger began to bear their fruit. 
The fatal error of Fullerton and his disciples was to have overlooked the fact that even convertible banknotes remain permanently in circulation, and can then bring about a glut of fiduciary media, the consequences of which resemble those of an increase in the quantity of money in circulation. Even if it is true, as Fullerton insists, that banknotes issued as loans automatically flow back to the bank after the term of the loan is passed, still this does not tell us anything about the question whether the bank is able to maintain them in circulation by repeated prolongation of the loan. The assertion that lies at the heart of the position taken up by the banking school viz. that it is impossible to set and permanently maintain in circulation more notes than will meet the public demand, is untenable. For the demand for credit is not a fixed quantity. It expands as the rate of interest falls and contracts as the rate of interest rises. But since the rate of interest that is charged for loans made in fiduciary media created expressly for that purpose can be reduced by the banks in the first instance down to the limit set by the marginal utility of the capital used in the banking business, i.e. practically to zero, the whole edifice built up by Tuke's school collapses. It is not our task to give a historical exposition of the controversy between two famous English schools, however tempting an enterprise that may be. We must content ourselves with reiterating that the works of the much-abused currency school contain far more in the way of useful ideas and fruitful thoughts than is usually assumed, especially in Germany, where, as a rule, the school is known merely through the writings of its opponents, such as Tuch and Newmarch's History of Prices, J.S. Mill's Principles, and German versions of the Banking Principle, which are deficient in comprehension of the nature of the problem they deal with. Before proceeding to investigate the influence of the creation of fiduciary media on the determination of the objective exchange value of money and on the level of the rate of interest, we must devote a few pages to the problem of the relationship between variations in the quantity of money and variations in the rate of interest. Section 2 the connection between variations in the ratio between the stock of money and the demand for money and fluctuations in the rate of interest. Variations in the ratio between the stock of money and the demand for money must ultimately exert an influence on the rate of interest also, but this occurs in a different way from that popularly imagined. There is no direct connection between the rate of interest and the amount of money held by individuals who participate in the transactions of the market. There is only an indirect connection operating in a roundabout way through the displacements in the social distribution of income and wealth which occur as a consequence of variations in the objective exchange value of money. A change in the ratio between the stock of money and the demand for money, and the consequent variations in the exchange ratio between money and other economic goods, can exert a direct influence on the rate of interest only when metallic money is employed and variations arise in the quantity of metal available for industrial purposes. The augmentation or diminution of the quantity of metal available for non-monetary uses signifies an augmentation or diminution of the National Subsistence Fund, and thus it influences the level of the rate of interest. 
It is hardly necessary to state that the practical significance of this phenomenon is quite trifling. We may, for example, imagine how small in comparison with the daily accumulation of capital was the increase in the subsistence fund caused by the discoveries of gold in South Africa, or even the increase in the subsistence funds that would have occurred if the whole of the newly mined precious metal had been used exclusively for industrial purposes. But however that may be, all that is important for us is to show that this is a phenomenon that is only connected with the non-monetary avenues of employment of this metal. Now, as far as monetary function is concerned, a long discussion is not necessary to show that everything here depends on whether or not the additional quantity of money is employed uniformly for procuring production goods and consumption goods. If an additional quantity of money were to increase the demand both for consumption goods and for the corresponding goods of higher orders in exactly the same proportion, or if the withdrawal from circulation of a quantity of money were to diminish these demands in exactly the same proportion, then there could be no question of such variations having a permanent effect on the level of the rate of interest. We have seen that displacements in the distribution of income and property constitute an essential consequence of fluctuations in the objective exchange value of money. But every variation in the distribution of income and property entails variations in the rate of interest also. It is not a matter of indifference whether a total income of a million kronen is distributed among a thousand persons in such a way that a hundred persons get 2,800 kronen each and 900 persons 800 kronen each, or in such a way that each of the thousand persons get a thousand kronen. Generally speaking, individuals with large incomes make better provision for the future than individuals with small incomes. The smaller an individual's income is, the greater is the premium which he sets on present goods in comparison with future goods. Conversely, increased prosperity means increased provision for the future and higher valuation of future goods. Variations in the ratio between the stock of money and the demand for money can permanently influence the rate of interest only through the displacements in the distribution of property and income that they evoke. If the distribution of income and property is modified in such a way as to increase capacity for saving, then eventually the ratio between the value of present goods and future goods must be modified in favor of the latter. In fact, one of the elements that help to determine the rate of interest, the level of the National Subsistence Fund, is necessarily altered by the increase of savings. The greater the fund of means of subsistence in a community, the lower the rate of interest. It follows immediately from this that particular variations in the ratio between the stock of money and the demand for money cannot always be accredited with the same effects on the level of the rate of interest. E.g., it cannot be asserted that an increase in the stock of money causes the rate of interest to fall and a diminution of the stock of money causes it to rise. Whether the one or the other consequence occurs always depends on whether the new distribution of property is more or less favorable to the accumulation of capital. But this circumstance may be different in each individual case, according to the relative quantitative weight of the particular factors composing it. 
Without knowledge of the actual data, it is impossible to say anything definite about it. These are the long-run effects on the rate of interest caused by variations in the ratio between the total demand for money and the total stock of it. They come about in consequence of displacements in the distribution of income and property evoked by fluctuations in the objective exchange value of money, and are as permanent as these fluctuations. But during the period of transition, there occur other variations in the rate of interest that are only of a transitory nature. Reference has already been made to the fact that the general economic consequences of variations in the exchange value of money arise in part from the fact that the variations do not appear everywhere simultaneously and uniformly, but start from a particular point and only spread gradually throughout the market. So long as this process is going on, differential profits or differential losses occur, which are, in fact, the source from which the variations in the distribution of income and property arise. As a rule, it is the entrepreneurs who are first affected, if the objective exchange value of money falls, the entrepreneur gains, or he will still be able to meet part of his expenses of production at prices that do not correspond to the higher price level, while, on the other hand, he will be able to dispose of his product at a price that is in accordance with the variation that has meanwhile occurred. If the objective exchange value of money rises, the entrepreneur loses, for he will only be able to secure for his products a price in accordance with the fall in the price level, while his expenses of production must still be met at the higher prices. In the first case, the incomes of entrepreneurs will rise during the transition period. In the second case, they will fall. This cannot fail to have an influence on the rate of interest. An entrepreneur who is making bigger profits will be prepared, if necessary, to pay a higher rate of interest, and the competition of other would-be borrowers who are attracted by the same prospect of increased profits will make payments of the higher rate necessary. The entrepreneur with whom business is bad will only be able to pay a lower rate of interest, and the pressure of competition will oblige lenders to be content with the lower rate. Thus, a falling of the value of money goes hand-in-hand hand with a rising rate of interest, and a rising value of money with a falling rate of interest. This lasts as long as the movement of the objective exchange value of money continues. When this ceases, then the rate of interest is re-established at the level dictated by the general economic situation. Thus, variations in the rate of interest do not occur as immediate consequences of variations in the ratio between the demand for money and the stock of it. They are only produced by the displacements in the social distribution of property that accompany the fluctuations in the objective exchange value of money that the variations in the ratio between the stock of money and the demand for it evoke. Moreover, the oft-repeated question of the precise connection between variations in the objective exchange value of money and variations in the rate of interest betrays an unfortunate confusion of ideas. The variations in the relative valuation of present goods and future goods are not different phenomena from the variations in the objective exchange value of money. Both are part of a single transformation of existing economic conditions, determined, in the last resort, by the same factors. 
In now devoting to it the consideration it deserves, we atone for a negligence and fill a gap in the argument contained in our second part. Section 3. The Connection Between the Equilibrium Rate and the Money Rate of Interest an increase in the stock of money in the broader sense caused by an issue of fiduciary media means a displacement of the social distribution of property in favor of the issuer. If the fiduciary media are issued by the banks, then this displacement is particularly favorable to the accumulation of capital, for, in such a case, the issuing body employs the additional wealth that it receives solely for productive purposes whether directly by initiating and carrying through a process of production, or indirectly by lending to producers. Thus, as a rule, the fall in the rate of interest in the loan market, which occurs as the most immediate consequence of the increase in the supply of present goods that is due to an issue of fiduciary media, must be in part permanent, i.e., it will not be wiped out by the reaction that is afterwards caused by the diminution of the property of other persons. There is a high degree of probability that extensive issues of fiduciary media by the banks represent a strong impulse towards the accumulation of capital and have consequently contributed to the fall in the rate of interest. One thing must be clearly stated at this point. There is no arithmetical relationship between an increase or decrease in the issue of fiduciary media on the one hand and the reduction or increase in the rate of interest which this indirectly brings about through its effects on the social distribution of property on the other hand. This would follow merely from the circumstance that there is no direct relationship between the redistribution of property and the differences in the way in which the existing stock of goods in the community is employed. The redistribution of property causes individual economic agents to take different decisions from those they would otherwise have taken. They deal with the goods at their disposal in a different way. They allocate them differently between present consumptive, employment, and future, productive employment. This may give rise to an alteration in the size of the National Subsistence Fund if the alterations in the uses to which the goods are put by the individual economic agents do not offset one another, but leave a surplus in one direction or the other. This alteration in the size of the National Subsistence Fund is the most immediate cause of the variation which occurs in the rate of interest. And, since, as has been shown, it is by no means unequivocally determined by the extent and direction of the fluctuation in the stock of money, in the broader sense, but depends upon the whole social distributive structure, no direct relationship can be established between the variations in the stock of money, in the broader sense, and the variations in the rate of interest. In fact, it is obvious that however great the increase in the stock of money in the broader sense might be, whether it occurred by way of an increase in fiduciary media or by way of an increase in the stock of money in the narrower sense, the rate of interest could never be reduced to zero. That could take place only if the displacements that occurred increased in the National Subsistence Fund to such an extent that all possibilities of increasing production by engaging in more productive, roundabout methods of production were exhausted. This would mean that in all branches of production, 
the time that elapsed between the commencement of production and the enjoyment of the product was not taken into consideration, and production was carried so far that the prices of the products were only just sufficient to pay an equal return to the primary factors in each employment. In particular, as far as very durable goods are concerned, this would mean that their quantity and durability would be tremendously increased, until the prices of their services fell so low that they would only just provide for the amortization of the investments. It is impossible to conceive of the extent to which, e.g., the supply of houses would have to be increased for their annual rental value to fall to a sum which would only just give a total return equal to their original cost by the time when their lengthened lives came to an end. Where the lifetime of a good can be almost indefinitely increased under conditions of decreasing cost, the result is that its services will become practically free goods. It seems hardly likely that a rigid proof could be given to show that the increase in the size of the National Subsistence Fund that may follow a redistribution of property could never go so far as this. But we have sufficient capacity for estimating the quantities involved without this unobtainable precise proof. As regards the displacements in the distribution of property that are evoked by an increase in the circulation of fiduciary media, it seems that we might go still further and safely assert that it can in no circumstances be very considerable. Although we cannot prove this in any way, whether deductively or inductively, it nevertheless appears a reasonable assertion to make. And we may content ourselves with that, for we do not intend to base any kind of further argument on such an undemonstrable proposition. The question to which we now turn is the following. It is undisputable that the banks are able to reduce the rate of interest on the credit they grant down to any level above their working expenses, e.g. the cost of manufacturing the notes, the salaries of staff, etc. If they do this, the force of competition obliges other lenders to follow their example. Accordingly, it would be entirely within the power of the banks to reduce the rate of interest down to this limit, provided that in doing so they did not set other forces in motion which would automatically re-establish the rate of interest at the level determined by the circumstances of the capital market, i.e., the market in which present goods and future goods are exchanged for one another. The problem that is before us is usually referred to by the catchphrase gratuitous nature of credit. It is the chief problem in the theory of banking. It is a problem whose great theoretical and practical importance has often been overlooked. The chief responsibility for this belongs to the not altogether fortunate manner in which it has been formulated. At the present time, the problem of the gratuitous nature of bank credit does not appear to be a very practical issue, and since the inclination towards questions of pure theory is hardly prominent among the economists of our day, it is a problem that has been much neglected. Yet, if the way in which the problem is stated is modified only a little, the unjustifiability of neglecting it becomes obvious, even from the point of view of those who are only concerned with the needs of everyday life. A new issue of fiduciary media, as we have seen, indirectly gives rise to a variation in the rate of interest, 
by causing displacements in the social distribution of income and property. But the new fiduciary media coming onto the loan market have also a direct effect on the rate of interest. They are an additional supply of present goods and, consequently, they tend to cause the rate of interest to fall. The connection between these two effects on the rate of interest is not obvious. Is there a force that brings both into harmony or not? It is probable in the highest degree that the increase in the supply of fiduciary media in the market in which present goods are exchanged for future goods at first exerts a stronger influence than the displacement of the social distribution which occurs as a consequence of it. Does the matter remain at that stage? Is the immediate reduction of interest which indubitably follows the increase of fiduciary media definitive or not? Until now, the treatment that this problem has met with at the hands of economists has fallen a long way short of its importance. Its real nature has, for the most part, been misunderstood, and where the problem was incorrectly stated to start with, it was natural that the subsequent attempts at its solution should not have been successful. But even the few theories in which the essence of the problem has been correctly apprehended have fallen into error in their efforts to solve it. To one group of writers, the problem appeared to offer little difficulty. From the circumstance that it is possible for the banks to reduce the rate of interest in their bank credit business down to the limit set by their working costs, these writers thought it permissible to deduce that credit can be granted gratuitously, or more correctly, almost gratuitously. In drawing this conclusion, their doctrine implicitly denies the existence of interest. It regards interest as compensation for the temporary relinquishing of money in the broader sense, a view indeed of insurpassable naivete. Scientific critics have been perfectly justified in treating it with contempt. It is scarcely worth even cursory mention. But, it is impossible to refrain from pointing out that these very views on the nature of interest hold an important place in popular opinion, and that they are continually being propounded afresh and recommended as a basis for measures of banking policy. No less untenable is the attitude of orthodox scientific opinion towards the problem. Orthodox scientific opinion, following in this the example set by the adherents of the banking principle, is content to question the problem's existence. In fact, it cannot do otherwise. If the opinion is held that the quantity of fiduciary media in circulation can never exceed the demand, in the sense defined above, the conclusion necessarily follows that the banks have not the ability to grant credit gratuitously. Of course, they might not exact any reimbursement or compensation beyond the prime costs of the loan granted by them, but doing this would not fundamentally change the matter, except that the profits from the issue of fiduciary media that the banks would otherwise receive themselves would now go to the benefit of the borrowers. And since, according to this view, it does not lie in the power of the banks arbitrarily to increase the quantity of fiduciary media in circulation, the limitation of the issue of these would leave only small scope for the influence of their discount policy on the general rate of interest. It follows that only insignificant differences could arise between the rate of interest charged by credit-issuing banks 
and that determined by the general economic situation for other credit transactions. We have already had an opportunity of finding out where the error in this argument lies. The quantity of fiduciary media flowing from the banks into circulation is admittedly limited by the number and extent of the requests for discounting that the banks receive. But the number and extent of these requests are not independent of the credit policy of the banks. By reducing the rate of interest charged on loans, it is possible for the banks indefinitely to increase the public demand for credit. And since the banks, as even the most orthodox disciples of Took and Fullerton cannot deny, can meet all these demands for credit, they can extend their issue of fiduciary media arbitrarily. For obvious reasons, an individual bank is not in a position to do this so long as its competitors act otherwise. But there seems to be no reason why all the credit-issuing banks in an isolated community, or in the whole world, taken together, could not do this by uniform procedure. If we imagine an isolated community in which there is only a single credit-issuing bank in business, and if we further assume, what indeed is obvious, that the fiduciary media issued by it enjoy general confidence and are freely employed in business as money substitutes, then the weakness of the assertions of the orthodox theory of banking is most clear. In such a situation, there are no other limits to the bank's issue of fiduciary media than those which it sets itself. But even the currency school has not treated the problem in a satisfactory manner. It would appear, exhaustive historical investigation might perhaps lead to another conclusion, that the currency school was merely concerned to examine the consequences of an inflation of fiduciary media in the case of the coexistence of several independent groups of banks in the world, starting from the assumption that these groups of banks did not all follow a uniform and parallel credit policy. The case of a general increase of fiduciary media, which for the first half of the 19th century had scarcely any immediate practical importance, was not included within the scope of its investigation. Thus, it did not even have occasion to consider the most important aspect of the problem. What is necessary for clearing up this important problem still remains to be done, for even Wixell's most noteworthy attempt cannot be said to have achieved its object. But at least it has the merit of having stated the problem clearly. Wixell distinguishes between the natural rate of interest, or the rate of interest that would be determined by supply and demand if actual capital goods were lent without the mediation of money, and the money rate of interest, or the rate of interest that is demanded and paid for loans in money or money substitutes. The money rate of interest and the natural rate of interest need not necessarily coincide since it is possible for the banks to extend the amount of their issues of fiduciary media as they wish, and thus to exert a pressure on the money rate of interest that might bring it down to the minimum set by their costs. Nevertheless, it is certain that the money rate of interest must sooner or later come to the level of the natural rate of interest, and the problem is to say in what way this ultimate coincidence is brought about. Up to this point, Wixell commands assent, but his further argument provokes contradiction. 
According to Wixell, at every time and under all possible economic conditions, there is a level of average money rate of interest at which the general level of commodity prices no longer has any tendency to move either upwards or downwards. He calls it the normal rate of interest. Its level is determined by the prevailing natural rate of interest, although, for certain reasons which do not concern our present problem, the two rates need not coincide exactly. When, he says, from any cause whatever, the average rate of interest is below this normal rate, by any amount, however small, and remains at this level, a progressive and eventually enormous rise of prices must occur which would naturally cause the banks sooner or later to raise their rates of interest. Now, so far as the rise of prices is concerned, this may be provisionally conceded. But it still remains inconceivable why a general rise in commodity prices should induce the banks to raise their rates of interest. It is clear that there may be a motive for this in the regulations, whether legislative or established by mercantile custom, that limit the circulation of fiduciary media, or necessary consideration of the procedure of other banks might have the same sort of effect. But if we start with the assumption, as Wixell does, that only fiduciary media are in circulation, and that the quantity of them is not legislatively restricted, so that the banks are entirely free to extend their issues of them, then it is impossible to see why rising prices and an increasing demand for loans should induce them to raise the rate of interest they charge for loans. Even Wixell can think of no other reason for this than that, since the requirements of business for gold coins and banknotes becomes greater as the price level rises, the banks do not receive back the whole of the sums they have lent, part of them remaining in the hands of the public, and that the bank reserves are consequently depleted, while the total liabilities of the banks increase, and that this must naturally induce them to raise their rate of interest. But in this argument, Wixell contradicts the assumption that he takes as the starting point of his investigation. Consideration of the level of its cash reserves and their relation to the liabilities arising from the issue of fiduciary media cannot concern the hypothetical bank that he describes. He seems suddenly to have forgotten his original assumption of a circulation consisting exclusively of fiduciary media, on which assumption, at first, he rightly laid great weight. Wixell, incidentally, makes cursory mention of a second limit to the circulation of fiduciary media. He thinks that the banks that charge a lower rate of interest than that which corresponds to the average level of the natural rate of interest encounter a limit which is set by the employment of the precious metals for industrial purposes. If the purchasing power of money is too low, it discourages the production of gold, but increases the industrial consumption of gold. And the deficiency, which would arise as soon as consumption began to exceed production, has to be made up from the bank reserves. This is perfectly true when metallic money is employed. An increase of fiduciary media must be stopped before the reduction of the objective exchange value of money that it brings about absorbs the value arising from the monetary employment of the metal. As soon as the objective exchange value of money had sunk below the value of the metal in industrial uses, 
every further loss in value, which of course would also affect the purchasing power of the money substitutes in the same degree, would send all those who needed the metal for industrial purposes to the counters of the banks as their cheapest source of supply. The banks would not be able to extend their issue any further, since it would be possible for their customers to make a profit simply by the exchange of fiduciary media for money. All fiduciary media issued beyond the given limit would return immediately to the banks. But demonstrating this does not bring us a step nearer to the solution of our problem. The mechanism by which a further issue of fiduciary media is restricted as soon as the falling objective exchange value of the material from which the money is made has reached the level set by its industrial employment is, of course, effective only in the case of commodity money. In the case of credit money, it is effective only when the embodied claim refers to commodity money. And it is never effective in the case of fiat money. Of greater importance is a second factor. This limit is a distant one, so that even when it is eventually effective, it still leaves considerable scope for an increase in the issue of fiduciary media. But it by no means follows from this that it remains possible for the banks to reduce the rate of interest on loans as much as they like within these wide limits, as the following argument will attempt to prove. Section 4. The Influence of the Interest Policy of the Credit-Issuing Banks on Production Assuming uniformity of procedure, the credit-issuing banks are able to extend their issues indefinitely. It is within their power to stimulate the demand for capital by reducing the rate of interest on loans and, except for the limits mentioned above, to go so far in this as the cost of granting the loan's permits. In doing this, they force their competitors in the loan market, that is, all those who do not lend fiduciary media, which they have created themselves, to make a corresponding reduction in the rate of interest also. Thus, the rate of interest on loans may at first be reduced by the credit-issuing banks almost to zero. This, of course, is true only under the assumption that the fiduciary media enjoy the confidence of the public so that if any requests are made to the banks for liquidation of the promise of prompt cash redemption, which constitutes the nature of fiduciary media, it is not because the holders have any doubts as to their soundness. Assuming this, the only possible reason for the withdrawal of deposits or the presentation of notes for redemption is the existence of a demand for money for making payments to persons who do not belong to the circle of customers of the individual banks. The banks need not necessarily meet such demands by paying out money. The fiduciary media of those banks among whose customers are those persons to whom the bank's own customers wish to make payments are equally serviceable in this case. Thus, there ceases to be any necessity for the banks to hold a redemption fund consisting of money, its place may be taken by a reserve fund consisting of the fiduciary media of other banks. If we imagine the whole credit system of the world concentrated in a single bank, it will follow that there is no longer any presentation of notes or withdrawal of deposits. In fact, the whole demand for money in the narrower sense may disappear. 
These suppositions are not at all arbitrary. It has already been shown that the circulation of fiduciary media is possible only on the assumption that the issuing bodies enjoy the full confidence of the public, since even the dawning of mistrust would immediately lead to a collapse of the house of cards that comprises the credit circulation. We know, furthermore, that all credit-issuing banks endeavor to extend their circulation of fiduciary media as much as possible, and that the only obstacles in their way nowadays are legal prescriptions and business customs concerning the covering of notes and deposits, not any resistance on the part of the public. If there were no artificial restrictions of the credit system at all, and if the individual credit-issuing banks could agree to parallel procedure, then the complete cessation of the use of money would only be a question of time. It is, therefore, entirely justifiable to base our discussion on the above assumption. Now, if this assumption holds good, and if we disregard the limit that has already been mentioned as applying to the case of metallic money, then there is no longer any limit, practically speaking, to the issue of fiduciary media. The rate of interest on loans and the level of the objective exchange value of money is then limited only by the bank's running costs, a minimum, incidentally, which is extraordinarily low. By making easier the conditions on which they will grant credit, the banks can extend their issue of fiduciary media almost indefinitely. Their doing so must be accompanied by a fall in the objective exchange value of money. The course taken by the depreciation that is a consequence of the issue of fiduciary media by the banks may diverge in some degree from that which it takes in the case of an increase in the stock of money in the narrower sense, or from that which it takes when the fiduciary media are issued otherwise than by banks. But the essence of the process remains the same. For it is a matter of indifference whether the diminution of the objective exchange value of money begins with the mine owners, with the government which issues fiat money, credit money, or token coins, or with the undertakings that have the newly issued fiduciary media placed at their disposal by way of loans. Painful consideration of the question whether fiduciary media really could be indefinitely augmented without awakening the mistrust of the public would be not only supererogatory but otios. For the problems of theory that we are dealing with, it is a question that has scarcely any significance. We are not conducting our investigation in order to show that the objective exchange value of money and the rate of interest on loans could be reduced almost to zero, but in order to disclose the consequences that arise from the divergence, which we have shown to be possible, between the money rate and the natural rate of interest. For this reason, it is also a matter of indifference to us, as we have just shown, that under a system of commodity money, the fiduciary media cannot continue to be augmented after the objective exchange value of money is reduced to the level determined by the industrial employment of the metal. If it is possible for the credit-issuing banks to reduce the rate of interest on loans below the rate determined at the time by the whole economic situation, Wixell's natural rate of interest, then the question arises of the particular consequences of a situation of this kind. Does the matter rest there, 
or is some force automatically set in motion which eliminates this divergence from the two rates of interest? It is a striking thing that this problem, which even at the first glance cannot fail to appear extremely interesting, and which, moreover, under more detailed examination, proves to be one of the greatest importance for the comprehension of many of the processes of modern economic life, has until now hardly been dealt with seriously at all. We shall not say anything further here of the effects of an increased issue of fiduciary media on the determination of the objective exchange value of money. They have already been dealt with exhaustively. Our task now is merely to discover the general economic consequences of any conceivable divergence between the natural and money rates of interest, given uniform procedure on the part of the credit-issuing banks. We obviously need only consider the case in which the banks reduce the rate of interest below the natural rate. The opposite case, in which the rate of interest charged by the banks is raised above the natural rate, need not be considered. If the banks acted in this way, they would simply withdraw from the competition of the loan market without occasioning any other noteworthy consequences. The level of the natural rate of interest is limited by the productivity of that lengthening of the period of production which is just justifiable economically and of that additional lengthening of the period of production which is just not justifiable for the interest on the unit of capital upon whose aid the lengthening depends must always amount to less than the marginal return of the justifiable lengthening and to more than the marginal return of the unjustifiable lengthening. The period of production, which is thus defined, must be of such a length that exactly the whole available subsistence fund is necessary, on the one hand, and sufficient, on the other, for paying the wages of the laborers throughout the duration of the productive process. For if it were shorter, all the workers could no longer be provided for throughout its whole course, and the consequence would be an urgent offer of the unemployed economic factors which could not fail to bring about a transformation of the existing arrangement. Now, if the rate of interest on loans is artificially reduced below the natural rate, as established by the free play of the forces operating in the market, then entrepreneurs are enabled and obliged to enter upon longer processes of production. It is true that longer roundabout processes of production may yield an absolutely greater return than shorter processes, but the return from them is relatively smaller, since although continual lengthening of the capitalistic process of production does lead to continually increasing returns, after a certain point is reached the increments themselves are of decreasing amount. Thus, it is possible to enter upon a longer roundabout process of production only if this smaller additional productivity will still pay the entrepreneur. So long as the rate of interest on loans coincides with the natural rate, it will not pay him. To enter upon a longer period of production would involve a loss. On the other hand, a reduction of the rate of interest on loans must necessarily lead to a lengthening of the average period of production. It is true that fresh capital can be employed in production only if new roundabout processes are started. But every new roundabout process of production that is started must be more roundabout than those already started. 
new roundabout processes that are shorter than those already started are not available for capital is, of course, always invested in the shortest available roundabout processes of production because they yield the greatest returns. It is only when all the short roundabout processes of production have been appropriated that capital is employed in the longer ones. A lengthening of the period of production is only practicable, however, when either the means of subsistence have increased sufficiently to support the laborers and entrepreneurs during the longer period, or when the wants of producers have decreased sufficiently to enable them to make the same means of subsistence due for the longer period. Now, it is true that an increase of fiduciary media brings about a redistribution of wealth in the course of its effects on the objective exchange value of money, which may well lead to increased saving and a reduction in the standard of living. A depreciation of money, when metallic money is employed, may also lead directly to an increase in the stock of goods in that it entails a diversion of some metal from monetary to industrial uses. So far as these factors enter into consideration, an increase in fiduciary media does cause a diminution of even the natural rate of interest, as we could show if it were necessary. But the case that we have to investigate is a different one. We are not concerned with the reduction in the natural rate of interest brought about by an increase in the issue of fiduciary media, but with a reduction below this rate in the money rate charged by the banks, inaugurated by the credit-issuing banks, and necessarily followed by the rest of the loan market. The power of the banks to do such a thing has already been demonstrated. The situation is as follows. Despite the fact that there has been no increase in the intermediate products and there is no possibility of lengthening the average period of production, a rate of interest is established in the loan market which corresponds to a longer period of production. And so, although it is in the last resort inadmissible and impracticable, a lengthening of the period of production promises for the time to be profitable. But there cannot be the slightest doubt as to where this will lead. A time must necessarily come when the means of subsistence available for consumption are all used up, although the capital goods employed in production have not yet been transformed into consumption goods. This time must come all the more quickly inasmuch as the fall in the rate of interest weakens the motive for saving and so slows up the rate of accumulation of capital. The means of subsistence will prove insufficient to maintain the laborers during the whole period of the process of production that has been entered upon. Since production and consumption are continuous, so that every day new processes of production are started upon and others completed, this situation does not imperil human existence by suddenly manifesting itself as a complete lack of consumption goods. It is merely expressed in a reduction of the quantity of goods available for consumption and a consequent restriction of consumption. The market prices of consumption goods rise and those of production goods fall. That is one of the ways in which the equilibrium of the loan market is reestablished after it has been disturbed by the intervention of the banks. The increased productive activity that sets in when the banks start the policy of granting loans at less than the natural rate of interest at first causes the prices of production goods to rise, while the prices of consumption goods 
although they rise also, do so only in a moderate degree, viz. only in so far as they are raised by the rise in wages. Thus the tendency towards a fall in the rate of interest on loans that originates in the policy of the banks is at first strengthened. But soon a counter-movement sets in. The prices of consumption goods rise, those of production goods fall. That is, the rate of interest on loans rises again, it again approaches the natural rate. This counter-movement is now strengthened by the fact that the increase of the stock of money in the broader sense that is involved in the increase in the quantity of fiduciary media reduces the objective exchange value of money. Now, as has been shown, so long as this depreciation of money is going on, the rate of interest on loans must rise above the level that would be demanded and paid if the objective exchange value of money remained unaltered. At first, the banks may try to oppose these two tendencies that counteract their interest policy by continually reducing the rate of interest charged for loans and forcing fresh quantities of fiduciary media into circulation. But the more they thus increase the stock of money, in the broader sense, the more quickly does the value of money fall, and the stronger is its counter-effect on the rate of interest. However much the banks may endeavor to extend their credit circulation, they cannot stop the rise in the rate of interest. Even if they were prepared to go on increasing the quantity of fiduciary media until further increase was no longer possible, whether because the money in use was metallic money and the limit had been reached below which purchasing power of the money and credit unit could not sink without the banks being forced to suspend cash redemption, or whether because the reduction of the interest charged on loans had reached the limits set by the running costs of the banks, they would still be unable to secure the intended result. For such an avalanche of fiduciary media when its cessation cannot be foreseen, must lead to a fall in the objective exchange value of the money and credit unit to the panic-like course of which there can be no bounds. Then, the rate of interest on loans must also rise in a similar degree and fashion. Thus, the banks will ultimately be forced to cease their endeavors to underbid the natural rate of interest. That ratio between the prices of goods of the first order and of goods of the higher orders, which is determined by the state of the capital market and has been disturbed merely by the intervention of the banks, will be approximately reestablished. And the only remaining trace of the disturbance will be a general increase in the objective exchange value of money due to factors emanating from the monetary side. A precise re-establishment of the old price ratios between production goods and consumption goods is not possible. On the one hand, because the intervention of the banks has brought about a redistribution of property, and on the other hand, because the automatic recovery of the loan market involves certain of the phenomena of a crisis, which are signs of the loss of some of the capital invested in the excessively lengthened roundabout processes of production. It is not practicable to transfer all the production goods from those uses that have proved unprofitable into other avenues of employment. A part of them cannot be withdrawn, and must, therefore, either be left entirely unused or at least be used less economically. In either case, there is a loss of value. 
Let us, for example, suppose that an artificial extension of bank credit is responsible for the establishment of an enterprise which only yields a net profit of 4%. So long as the rate of interest on loans was 4.5%, the establishment of such a business could not be thought of. We may suppose that it has been made possible by a fall to a rate of 3.5%, which has followed an extension of the issue of fiduciary media. Now, let us assume the reaction to begin in the way described above. The rate of interest on loans rises to 4.5% again. It will no longer be profitable to conduct this enterprise. Whatever may now occur... Whether the business is stopped entirely or whether it is carried on after the entrepreneur has decided to make do with the smaller profits, in either case, not merely from the individual point of view, but also from that of the community, there has been a loss of value. Economic goods, which could have satisfied more important wants, have been employed for the satisfaction of less important only in so far as the mistake that has been made can be rectified by diversion into another channel can loss be prevented. Section 5. Credit and Economic Crises Our theory of banking, like that of the currency principle, leads ultimately to a theory of business cycles. It is true that the currency school did not inquire thoroughly into even this problem. It did not ask what consequences follow from the unrestricted extension of credit on the part of the credit-issuing banks. It did not even inquire whether it was possible for them permanently to depress the natural rate of interest. It set itself more modest aims, and was content to ask what would happen if the banks in one country extended the issue of fiduciary media more than those of other countries. Thus, it arrived at its doctrine of the external drain and at its explanation of the English crises that had occurred up to the middle of the 19th century. If our doctrine of crises is to be applied to more recent history, then it must be observed that the banks have never gone as far as they might in extending credit and expanding the issue of fiduciary media. They have always left off long before reaching this limit whether because of growing uneasiness on their part and on the part of all those who had not forgotten the earlier crises, or whether because they had to defer to legislative regulations concerning the maximum circulation of fiduciary media. And so the crises broke out before they need have broken out. It is only in this sense that we can interpret the statement that it is apparently true, after all, to say that restriction of loans is the cause of economic crises, or at least their immediate impulse, that if the banks would only go on reducing the rate of interest on loans, they could continue to postpone the collapse of the market. If the stress is laid upon the word postpone, then this line of argument can be assented to without more ado. Certainly, the banks would be able to postpone the collapse, but nevertheless, as has been shown, the moment must eventually come when no further extension of the circulation of fiduciary media is possible. Then the catastrophe occurs, and its consequences are the worse, and the reaction against the bull tendency of the market the stronger, 
The longer the period during which the rate of interest on loans has been below the natural rate of interest, and the greater the extent to which roundabout processes of production that are not justified by the state of the capital market have been adopted. Chapter 6. Problems of Credit Policy 1. Prefatory Remark, Section 1. The Conflict of Credit Policies since the time of the currency school, the policy adopted by the governments of Europe and America with regard to the issue of fiduciary media has been guided, on the whole, by the idea that it is necessary to impose some sort of restriction upon the banks in order to prevent them from extending the issue of fiduciary media in such a way as to cause a rise of prices that eventually culminates in an economic crisis. But the course of this policy has been continually broken by contrary aims. Endeavors have been made by means of credit policy to keep the rate of interest low, cheap money, i.e. low interest, and reasonable, i.e. high prices, have been aimed at. Since the beginning of the 20th century, these endeavors have noticeably gained in strength during the war, and for some time after it they were the prevailing aims. The strange vicissitudes of credit policy cannot be described except by passing in review the actual tasks that is had to solve and will have to solve in the future. Although the problems themselves may always be the same, the form they assume changes. And for the very reason that our task is to strip them of their disguises, we must first study them in their contemporary garb. In what follows, separate considerations will be given to such problems, first, as they exhibited themselves before the war, and then, as they have exhibited themselves in the period immediately after the war. 2. Problems of the Credit Policy Before the War Section 2. Peel's Act Peel's Bank Act and the ideas on which it was based still sets the standard by which credit policy is ultimately governed nowadays. Even those countries that do not follow the example of the English bank legislation, or do not follow it so faithfully as others, have yet not been able to withstand its influence altogether. Here we are confronted with a strange phenomenon. While the economic literature of all countries was directing the most violent and passionate attacks against the system of having a fixed quota of the note issue not backed by metal, while people were untiring in calling Peel's Act the unfortunate legislative product of a mistaken theory, while the currency principle continued to be represented as a system of erroneous hypotheses that had long been confuted, Yet one legislature after another took steps to limit the issue of uncovered banknotes. And, remarkably enough, this procedure on the part of the governments evoked but little censure, if any at all, from those whose views on banking theory should logically have led them to most severely condemn it. To start from the banking principle, which denies the possibility of an overissue of banknotes and regards elasticity as their essential characteristic, is necessarily to arrive at the conclusion that any limitation on the circulation of notes, whether they are backed by money or not, must prove injurious, since it prevents the exercise of the chief function of the note issue, 
the contrivance of an adjustment between the stock of money and the demand for money without changing the objective exchange value of money. It might easily have appeared desirable to Tuke's followers that provision should be made for backing that part of the note circulation that was not backed by metal. But logically, they should have condemned the prescription that a certain proportion was to be maintained between the stock of metal and the note circulation. There is an irreconcilable contradiction, however, between the theoretical arguments of these writers and the practical conclusions that they draw from them. Scarcely any writer that need be taken seriously ventures to put forward proposals that might fundamentally disturb the various systems for restricting the unbacked note issue. Not a single one definitely demands their complete abolition. Nothing could show the inherent uncertainty and lack of independence of modern banking theory better than this inconsistency. That the note issue must somehow be restricted in order to guard against serious evils is still accepted today as the essence of government wisdom in matters of banking policy, and the science which claims to have produced proof to the contrary always ends up by deferring to this dogma which nobody is nowadays able to prove and everybody thinks himself able to refute. The conservatism of the English hinder them from meddling with a law which stands as a monument to an intellectual contest which went on for many years and in which the best men of the time participated and the example of the world's chief bank influences all other banks. The conclusions of two generations of economists have not been able to shake the opinions which are supposed to be the results of practical banking experience. Many serious errors are involved in the currency principle. The most serious lies in its failure to recognize the essential similarity of banknotes and bank deposits. Its opponents have skillfully discovered these weak spots in the system and directed their sharpest attacks accordingly. But the doctrine of the currency school does not stand or fall by its views on the nature of checks and deposits. It is enough to correct it on this one point, to take its propositions concerning the issue of notes and apply them also to the opening of deposit accounts, to silence the censures of those who adhere to the banking principle. That its mistake on this point is of small significance in comparison with that made by the banking principle can hardly need further discussion. And in any case, it does not seem an inexcusable mistake to have made if we take into account the relatively backward development of even the English deposit system at the time when the foundations of the classical theory of banking were being laid, and if we further consider the ease with which the legal differences between payment by note and payment by check might give rise to error. As far as Peel's Act was concerned, however, this very shortcoming of the theory that had created it turned out to be an advantage. It caused the incorporation in it of the safety valve, without which it would not have been able to cope with the subsequent increase in the requirements of business. The fundamental mistake of Peel's system, which it shares with all other systems which proceed by restricting the note circulation, lies in its failure to foresee the extension of the quota of notes not backed by metal that went with the increase in the demand for money in the broader sense. As far as the past was concerned, 
the act sanctioned the creation of a certain amount of fiduciary media and the influence that this had on the determination of the objective exchange value of money. It did not do anything to counteract the effects of this issue of fiduciary media. But, at the same time, in order to guard the capital market from shocks, it removed all future possibility of partly or wholly satisfying the increasing demand for money by the issuing of fiduciary media, and so of mitigating or entirely preventing a rise in the objective exchange value of money. This amounts to the same thing as suppressing the creation of fiduciary media altogether and so renouncing all the attendant advantages for the stabilization of the objective exchange value of money. It is an heroic remedy with a vengeance, in essence hardly differing from all the proposals of the downright opponent of all fiduciary media. Nevertheless, something was overlooked in the calculations of the currency theorists. They did not realize that unbacked deposits were substantially the same as unbacked notes, and so they omitted to legislate for them in the same way as for the notes. So far as development of fiduciary media depended on the issue of notes, Peel's Act completely restricted it. So far as it depended on the opening of deposit accounts, it was not interfered with at all. This forced the technique of the English banking system in a direction in which it had already been urged in some degree by the circumstance that the right of note issue in London and its environs was an exclusive privilege of the Bank of England. The deposit system developed at the expense of the note system. From the point of view of the community, this was a matter of indifference because notes and deposits both fulfill the same functions. Thus, Peel's Act did not achieve its aim, or at least not in the degree and manner that its authors had intended. Fiduciary media, suppressed as banknotes, developed in the form of deposits. It is true that German writers on banking held that it was possible to discover a fundamental difference between notes and deposits, but they did not succeed in demonstrating their contention. In fact, they did not really attempt to do so. Nowhere is the inherent weakness of German banking theory more obvious than in connection with this particular question of the note versus the check, which for years has been the central issue of all discussion. Anybody who, like them, had learned from the English banking school that there is no fundamental difference between notes and checks, and was in the constant habit of stressing this, should at least be prepared to supply a detailed proof in support of an assertion that the bank note system represents an earlier and lower stage of development of the credit economy than the deposit bank and the check with the connected system of the account current, book credit, and clearinghouse. Certainly reference to England and the United States cannot be accepted as proof of the correctness of this assertion, least of all in the mouth of the decided opponent of the Peel's Act and the restriction of the note issued in general, for it is undeniable that the great importance of the deposit system and the decreasing relative importance of the bank note in Anglo-Saxon countries are the result of that act. The consequence is that the German literature on banking theory is full of almost unbelievable contradictions. 
The repression of the banknote, as it has occurred in England and in the United States, in different ways and for different reasons, but as a result of the same fundamental ideas, and the corresponding growth in importance of the deposit, and the additional circumstance that the organization of the deposit banks has not attained that soundness that would have enabled it to retain the public confidence during dangerous crises, have led to serious disturbances. In England, as also in the United States, it has repeatedly happened in times of crisis that confidence has been destroyed in those banks that circulate fiduciary media in the form of deposits, while confidence in banknotes has been maintained. The measures by which the consequences which such a collapse of a part of the national business organization would infallibly have involved were avoided are well known. In England, an attempt was made to fill the gap in the circulation which was due to the lack of large quantities of fiduciary media by the Bank of England, being ready to increase the issue of its own notes. In the United States, where the law made this solution impossible, the clearinghouse certificates served the same purpose. In both countries, attempts to give this device a legislative basis were made. But Lowe's bill was not passed, and even the Aldrich Vreeland Act in the United States had only a partial success. None of the many systems of limiting the note circulation had proved ultimately capable of interposing an insurmountable obstacle in the way of further creation of fiduciary media. This is equally true of Peel's Act, which completely forbids the new issue of fiduciary media in the shape of notes, and of such bank-of-issue legislation in other states as does leave a certain scope for the augmentation of notes not backed by money. Between the English Act of 1844 and, say, the German Act of 1875, there seems to be a fundamental difference. While the one rigidly fixes, for all time, the quota of the note circulation not backed by metal, the other, inasmuch as it only requires that a certain proportion of the note circulation shall be backed by metal, and puts a tax upon the rest, does make provision within certain limits for its future extension. But everything depends upon the scope that is thus provided for extending the issue of fiduciary media. If it had been wide enough to give free play to the development of the unbacked note circulation, then the German law, and the same is true not only of other laws based on the same principle, for example, the Austrian, but also of those that attempt to limit the circulation of notes in other ways, as, for example, the French, would have fundamentally had different results from the English. Since, in fact, it proved to be too narrow for this, the difference between the two laws is merely one of degree, not one of kind. All these laws have limited the issue of fiduciary media in the form of notes, but have set no limits to their issue in the form of deposits. Making the issue of notes more difficult was bound to promote an increased employment of deposits in place of the note. The deposit account came into prominence. For the development of the credit system, this change was not altogether a matter of indifference. The note is technically superior to the deposit in medium and small transactions. In many cases, for which it might have been used as a money substitute, checks or clearing transfers could not be used. 
and in such cases restriction of the issue of fiduciary media in the form of notes was bound to have the effect of restriction of the issue of fiduciary media in general. Under the law of the United States of America, the issue of fiduciary media in the shape of deposits is also restricted. But since this only applies to some of the banks, viz. the national banks, it is not enough to make a big difference between the deposit business of the United States and that of the other countries in which no similar regulations have been established. The real obstacle in the way of an unlimited extension of the issue of fiduciary media is not constituted by legislative restrictions of the note issue, which, after all, only affects a certain kind of fiduciary medium, but the lack of a centralized world bank or of uniform procedure on the part of all credit-issuing banks. So long as the banks do not come to an agreement among themselves concerning the extension of credit, the circulation of fiduciary media can indeed be increased slowly, but it cannot be increased in a sweeping fashion. Each individual bank can only make a small step forward and must, then, wait until the others have followed its example. Every bank is obliged to regulate its interest policy in accordance with that of the others. Section 3. The Nature of Discount Policy The most obscure and incorrect concepts are current concerning the nature of the discount policy of the central banks of issue. Often the principal task of the banks is said to be the protection of their cash reserves, as if it would pay them to make sacrifices for such an aim as that. No less widespread, however, is the view that the bank's obligation to follow a discount policy that takes account of the circumstances of other banks is imposed upon them merely by a perverse legislation, and that the ideal of cheap money in a double sense, viz. a low purchasing power of money and a low rate of interest, could be realized by the abandonment of certain out-of-date legal provisions. It is unnecessary to devote very much time to the refutation of such views as these. After all that has been said on the nature of money and fiduciary media, there can hardly be very much doubt as to the aim of the discount policy of the banks. Every credit-issuing bank is obliged to fix the rate of interest it charges for loans in certain conformity with that of the other credit-issuing banks. The rate cannot be allowed to sink below this level, for if it did, the sums of money needed by the bank's rapidly extending clientele for making payments to customers of other banks would increase in such a fashion that the bank's solvency would be imperiled. It is by raising the rate of discount that the bank safeguards its own capacity to pay. This end is certainly not attained by protecting the redemption fund, the small insignificance of which for maintaining the value of the fiduciary media has already been demonstrated, but by avoiding the artificial extension of the circulation of fiduciary media that would result from asking less interest than the other banks and so also avoiding an increase in the demands for the redemption of the fiduciary media. The banks would still have to have a discount policy, even if there were no legislative regulation of the note cover. In Germany, there has been a controversy as to whether certain measures of the Reichsbank are dictated by regard to the circumstances of the domestic money market or to those of the international. 
In the form in which it is usually put, the question is meaningless. The mobility of capital goods, which nowadays is but little restricted by legislative provisions such as customs duties or by other obstacles, has led to the formation of a homogeneous world capital market. In the loan markets of the countries that take part in international trade, the net rate of interest is no longer determined according to national, but according to international considerations. Its level is settled not by the natural rate of interest in the country, but by the natural rate of interest anywhere. Just as the exchange ratio between money and other economic goods is the same in all places, so also the ratio between the prices of goods of the first order and those of goods of higher orders is the same everywhere. The whole system of modern international trade would be completely changed if the mobility of capital goods were to be restricted. In Germany, there are many who demand such a prohibition, or at least a considerable restriction of the investment of capital abroad. It is not our task to demonstrate what a small prospect of success a policy like this would have, or to show that the time has now passed for a nation to decide whether or not it will take part in international trade. So long and in so far, however, as a nation participates in international trade, its market is only a part of the world market. Prices are determined not nationally, but internationally. The fact that the rate of interest in Germany may rise, not because any change has occurred in its determinants within the Reich, but because there have been changes, say, in the United States, should not seem any more remarkable than, say, a rise in the price of corn that is due to the state of foreign harvests. It has not been easy to reconcile policy with the extension and combination of national markets into a world market. Stronger than the resistance encountered centuries ago by the development of the town economy into the national economy, is that which the 19th and 20th centuries have opposed to the further stage of development into a world economy. Nowadays there is nothing like the feeling of homogeneity which previously overcame regional interests. The pronounced emphasis upon national antagonisms which sets the keynote of modern policy would perhaps stand in the way of attempts at economic unification even if there were no interests to which these attempts might prove injurious. From the point of view of the producer, low prices seem to be the greatest of all evils, and in every state those producers who are unable to meet competition strive with all the means at their disposal to keep the cheap commodities of the world market out of the national market. But whether they succeed in this in each individual case or not depends to a large extent on the strength of the political influence of the opposing interests. For in the case of every individual commodity, the producer's interest in high prices is opposed by the interest of consumers in the opening of the market to the cheapening effect of foreign competition. The matter is only decided by the conflict of the two groups. The distribution of forces is otherwise when the problem of freedom of capital transactions is under discussion. We have already seen that creditor interests always get the worst of it when they clash with debtor interests. The interests of the capitalists are scarcely ever represented in monetary policy. 
Nobody ever objects to the importation of capital from abroad on the ground that it leads to a depression of the rate of interest in the home market and a reduction of the income of the capitalists. Quite the reverse. The universally prevailing view is that it is in the interest of the community that the rate of interest should be as low as possible. In those European states with large capital resources, which so far as international dealings in capital are concerned need be considered only as creditors and not as debtors, this policy is expressed in the endeavor to put obstacles in the way of foreign investment. Undoubtedly, this is not the only point of view from which modern states judge the export of capital. Other considerations enter into the matter as well, some in favor of exportation, some against it. There is, for instance, the fact that it is frequently impossible to export commodities except by allowing the payment for them to be postponed so that future goods are acquired in exchange for the present goods surrendered, and that for this reason alone it is consequently necessary to promote the export of capital, or at least not to hinder it. Nevertheless, it must be insisted that the policy adopted by these states with regard to the export of capital is guided by the endeavor, among others, to keep the domestic rate of interest low. On the other hand, the same motive leads these states, which, because they are poor in capital, have to play the part of international borrowers, to encourage this importation. The attempt to depress the domestic rate of interest by influencing the international movement of capital is particularly pronounced in the so-called money market, i.e., in the market for short-term capital investments. In the so-called capital market, i.e., the market for long-term capital investments, there is less possibility of affecting anything by intervention. In any case, any steps that may be taken become effective much more quickly in the former than in the latter. Consequently, there is a greater propensity toward exerting an influence on the rate of interest on loans in the money market than in the long-term capital market. But the most important cause of the persistence of demands for the exertion of influence upon the money market lies in the universally prevalent errors concerning the nature of fiduciary media and of bank credit. When a relatively small efflux of gold induces the powerful central bank of issue of a rich country to raise the discount rate, there is a tendency to think that there must be some other way than this by which the efflux of gold could be prevented without involving the community in what is regarded as the injurious effect of a rise in the rate of interest. It is not seen that what is happening is the automatic adjustment of the national to the world rate of interest owing to the way in which the country is involved in international trade. That the country cannot be cut off from participation in international capital dealings simply and solely by measures of banking and currency policy is completely overlooked. This alone can explain how it can come about in large exporting countries that the very persons who demand measures for cheapening credit are those who benefit most from the export trade. If those manufacturers for whom every increase in the rate of discount that can be traced to events abroad is an inducement to plead for a modification of the banking system in the direction of releasing the central bank of issue from its obligation to provide gold for export on demand 
would realize that the increase in the rate of interest could be effectively put a stop to only by a suppression of the export of capital and complete exclusion of the country from international trade, then they would soon change their minds. And it seems that the implications have already won some degree of general recognition. Even if the literary treatment of the problem may still leave something to be desired, in Germany and Austria, it was only the groups that demanded the seclusion of the national market that also demanded the isolation of the currency. Further explanation is unnecessary. Nevertheless, it may not be supererogatory to examine one by one the measures that are recommended by those who favor a low rate of interest and to show how incapable they would prove of leading to the expected result. Section 4. The Gold Premium Policy Let us first review the systems which are supposed to be able to maintain the level of the rate of discount in the national money market by making it more difficult or more expensive to procure gold at a rate below that determined by the circumstances of the international market. The most important and well-known of these is the Gold Premium Policy, as it was carried out by the Bank of France. In view of the circumstances that nowadays the silver five-franc piece is still legally current coin, the Bank of France is authorized to redeem its notes at its own choice either in gold or in these pieces. It sometimes used to make use of this authority for the purpose of increasing the difficulty of procuring gold for export purposes. As a rule, it made no difficulty about surrendering gold in exchange for notes and it exchanged five franc pieces in the same way for gold coins, although it was not obliged to do so, and by so doing it endowed the latter with the property of being money substitutes. Naturally, these facilities were not requisitioned to a great extent for purposes of domestic business. Notes and five franc pieces enjoyed unlimited public confidence, so that their employability as money substitutes was not in the least in question. But if the bank was asked to surrender gold for export, it did not necessarily do so. It is true that it used to hand over gold unhesitatingly for the requirements of what was called legitimate trade, i.e. when it was needed to pay for imported commodities, especially corn and cotton. But if gold was demanded for the purpose of speculating on the difference between home and foreign interest rates, it was not handed over as a matter of course. For this purpose, the bank did not issue Napoleons, the French gold coins, at all, and it issued ingots and foreign gold coins only at an additional charge varying to 4 to 8 percent of the 3,437 francs at which it was legally bound to purchase a kilogram of fine gold. It is impossible to state the exact amount of this gold premium because the rate has never been published officially. The purpose of the gold premium policy was to postpone, as long as ever possible, the moment when the condition of the international money market would force the bank to raise the discount rate in order to prevent any flux of gold. The lowness of the rate of discount is of extraordinary importance in French financial policy. In the interest of those classes of the community by which it is supported, the government of the Third Republic is obliged to avoid anything that might injure the high standing of the rentes, which constitute the chief investment of those classes. 
Even a merely temporary high rate of discount is always dangerous to the rentes market, for it might induce some holders of rentes to dispose of their bonds in order to reinvest their capital more fruitfully, and the disturbance of the market that might result from this would have a disproportionately adverse effect on the quotation of the rentes. It is undeniable that the result aimed at was to a certain extent attained, even though the premium policy by no means possessed the significance that was erroneously ascribed to it. It is above all mistaken to ascribe the lowness of the rate of discount in France to the procedure that has been described. If the rate of discount has been lower in France than in other countries, this is due altogether to different causes. France is of all the countries in the whole world that which is the richest in capital, but its people are not greatly endowed with the spirit of initiative and enterprise. Consequently, its capital has to emigrate. Now in a country which exports capital, even disregarding the premium for risk-bearing that is contained in the gross rate of interest, the rate of interest on loans must be lower than in a country which imports capital. Capitalists, when comparing the yields of home and foreign investment, are led by a series of psychological factors to prefer the former to the latter, when other circumstances are equal. This is enough to explain why long-term and short-term investments bear lower interest in France than in other countries, such as Germany. The cause is a general economic cause. It is a matter in which measures of banking or currency policy can have no influence. The ratio between the rate of interest in France and that abroad could not for long be forced away by the premium policy of the Bank of France from that determined by the general economic situation. The Bank of France was not above the laws that govern the course of economic affairs. In fixing the level of its discount rate, it was not exempt from the necessity for paying due attention to the level of the natural rate of interest. Like every other credit-issuing bank that has an influence on the domestic market, it had to endeavor to keep the rate of interest on domestic short-term investments at such a level that foreign investment did not appear so attractive to home capitalists as to endanger the bank's own solvency. Like the others, the Bank of France could effectively prevent an outflow of gold in only one way, by raising its discount rate. Employing the premium policy could do no more than postpone for a short time a rise in the rate of discount that the state of the international money market had made necessary. The premium made it more expensive to export gold, and so reduced the profitability of interest arbitrage transactions. When it was widely believed that the difference between the French and the foreign rates of interest was about to be altered in France's favor through a fall in the foreign rate, then arbitrage dealers would not export gold at all, since the small profit of the transaction would be too greatly reduced by the premium. In this way, the Bank of France may sometimes have avoided raising the discount rate when it would otherwise have been necessary to do so for a short time. But whenever the difference between the rates of interest was significant enough to make short-term foreign investments still promise to be profitable in spite of the increased cost of procuring gold due to the premium, and whenever the result of arbitrage dealings was not jeopardized by the prospect of an imminent reduction of the foreign rate, then even the Bank of France could not avoid raising the rate of interest.
It has been asserted that it is possible for a central bank to use successive increases of the premium so as entirely to prevent the export of gold if it continually forces back the gold point or export limit as the fall in the rate of exchange requires. This is undoubtedly correct. The procedure, as is well known, has been employed repeatedly. It is known as cessation of cash payments. The bank that adopts it deprives its fiduciary media of their character of money substitutes. If they continue to function as general media of exchange, it is in the role of credit money. Their value will have become subject to independent variation. In such a case, it is admittedly possible for the bank to follow a completely independent discount policy. It may now reduce to any desired extent the rate of interest it charges without running the risk of insolvency. But this brings to light the consequences that must follow a banking policy that endeavors by extending the issue of fiduciary media to depress the rate of interest on loans below the natural rate of interest. This point has already been discussed in detail. In the present connection, there is a second point that is of importance. If the intervention of the bank leads to the artificial retention of the rate of interest on loans at a level below that of the rate given by international conditions, then the capitalist will be all the more anxious to invest their capital abroad as the gap between the domestic and foreign rates of interest increases. The demand for foreign common media of exchange will increase because foreign capital goods will be desired more and home capital goods less. And there is no way in which the fall in the rate of exchange could automatically set forces in motion to reestablish between the bank money and gold, the world money, that exchange ratio which had previously existed when the notes and deposits of the bank were not credit money, but still money substitutes. The mechanism of the monetary system tends to bring the exchange level of the two kinds of money in that natural level determined by the exchange ratio between each of them and the remaining goods. But in the present case, it is the natural exchange ratio itself which has moved against the country that refuses to pay out gold. An autonomous interest policy must necessarily lead to progressive depreciation. There are many advocates of the gold premium policy who make no attempt to deny that its employment in the way in which they intend must infallibly lead to a credit money or fiat money standard with a rapidly falling objective exchange value of the unit. In fact, they are inclined to regard this very fact as a special advantage, for they are, more or less, inflationists. Nevertheless, this was by no means the way in which the Bank of France carried out its premium policy. It observed a fixed limit, above which it never allowed the premium to rise in any circumstances whatever. Eight per mill is probably the highest premium that it has ever demanded. And this was certainly not an error on the part of the bank. It was founded on the nature of the case. In the eyes of the French government, and of the administration of the bank controlled by it, the amount of depreciation consequent upon a gold premium of 8% was not intolerable. But in view of the unpredictable reactions throughout the whole community, it was thought better to avoid any further depreciation than this. 
Thus, the French gold premium policy was not able to prevent the export of gold altogether, but could only postpone it for a short time. Now, this fact alone, and not only when the difference between the rates of interest was so inconsiderable and transient that the rate of discount did not need to be raised at all, meant a cheapening of the rate of interest on loans. But this was offset by the increase in the rate of interest during those periods when the rate of interest abroad was relatively low. Whenever the loan rate abroad sank so low that it might have seemed advantageous to capitalists to transfer capital to France for investment, they nevertheless refrained from doing so if a long continuance of the situation could not be reckoned with or if the difference between the rates was not very great because they had reason to fear that a subsequent repatriation of the capital, when the situation was reversed, would be possible only at an increased cost. Thus, the gold premium policy did not merely constitute a hindrance to the efflux of gold from France, it also hindered an influx. It reduced the rate of interest on loans at certain times, but raised it at other times. It is true that it did not altogether exclude the country from international dealings in capital. It only made participation in them harder. But it did this in both directions. Its effect, the intensity of which should not be overestimated, was principally expressed in the fact that the rate of interest for short-term investments has been more stable in France than in other countries. It has never sunk so low as in England, for example, but neither has it ever risen so high. This is shown quite clearly by a comparison of movements in the London and Paris loan rates. It has become more and more clearly recognized that the gold premium policy could not have the effects ascribed to it. Those who once considered it the remedy for all ills are gradually becoming silent. Section 5. Systems Similar to the Gold Premium Policy the legal provisions which had permitted the Bank of France to follow the gold premium policy were absent in those countries, which until recently were on a pure gold standard. Where the gold coins have not been supplemented by any money substitutes, fiat money, or credit money, with unlimited legal tender by any payer, including the central credit-issuing bank, the fiduciary media have had to be redeemed at full face value in money without a premium being charged in addition. But in actual fact, these banks also were tending to adopt a policy different in degree, but certainly not in kind, from the described procedure of the Bank of France. In most countries, the central bank of issue was only obliged to redeem its notes in legal tender gold coins of its own country, after the pattern of English banking law. It is in accordance with the spirit of the modern monetary system and with the ultimate aims of monetary policy that this obligation has been understood also to refer to the surrender of gold ingots to exporters at the legal ratio, or at least at a price that made it more profitable to procure bullion than coins. Thus, until 1889, the Bank of England voluntarily extended its obligation to redeem its notes by paying out on demand, in ingots, the value of the notes in full-weight gold coins. 
It did this by fixing its selling price for gold bullion once for all at 77 shillings 10.5 pence per ounce of standard gold. For a time, the continental banks of issue followed this example. But they soon determined upon a different procedure, and eventually the Bank of England, too, relinquished its old policy and adopted the practice of the continental banks. The Bank of England and the German Reich Bank, apart from the Bank of France, the two most important credit-issuing banks in the world, were in the habit of issuing, for export purposes, worn gold coins only of inferior value. Sovereigns, as issued by the Bank of England for export, were usually from 2 to 3 percent worse than the newly minted sovereigns. The weight of the 20 mark pieces, received by a person who withdrew gold coins from the German Reich Bank for purposes of exportation, was, according to the calculations of experts, 7.943 grams on an average as against a standard average of 7.965 grams i.e. something over a quarter of one percent less than their meant value. The Bank of England sometimes refused altogether to issue gold ingots, and sometimes would only issue them at a price in excess of the 77 shillings, ten and a half pence, which alone was usual until 1889. It sometimes raised the selling price of ingots to as much as 77 shillings, eleven pence. As regards the range and the effect of these measures, nothing need be added to what has already been said about the French gold premium policy. The difference, as has been said, is only quantitative, not qualitative. The other little devices, which have also been employed for making the export of gold more difficult, have their effect in precisely the same fashion as, for example, when the German Reich Bank sometimes prohibited the issue of gold for export purposes, except in Berlin, by invoking the letter of Section 18 of the Bank Act, which had the effect of making the export of gold more costly by burdening the gold exporters with the risk and cost of transporting the gold from Berlin to the place of export. Section 6 the non-satisfaction of the so-called illegitimate demand for money. In the returns of the Bank of France, it has been repeatedly asserted that the gold premium policy was directed only against those who wished to withdraw gold from the bank for speculative purposes. The bank, it was said, never put difficulties in the way of procuring gold for satisfying the legitimate demands of French trade. No explanation was given of the idea of legitimate demand and its contrary, illegitimate demand. The idea on which this distinction is obviously based is that trade and commodities in dealings in capital are two perfectly distinct and independent branches of economic activity, and that it would be possible to restrict the one without affecting the other. That refusal to surrender gold for arbitrage dealings could not increase the expense of procuring commodities from abroad so long as no difficulty was made about placing at the disposal of the importer the sums needed by him to pay for his purchases. On closer examination, this argument can hardly be accepted as valid. Even if we completely ignore the fact that dealings in capital only constitute one form of the general process of exchange of goods, and consider nothing beyond the technical problem of the withdrawal of gold, 
It is clear that the bank cannot achieve its aim by discriminatory treatment of different requests for gold. If exportation of gold did not seem profitable because of the difference between the rates of interest, imported raw materials would actually be paid for, partly or wholly, by the commodities exported. The importer would not try to obtain gold from the bank. He would go into the market and buy bills originating in the French export business. If gold were delivered to him by the bank without a premium, while the rate of exchange rose roughly by the amount of, and on account of the premium that was charged to arbitrage dealers, this might well mean a favoring of the import business, and might possibly, in some circumstances, benefit the consumer as well, although that depends entirely on the state of competition among importers. But all the same, the rate of exchange would experience the variation that the bank wished to avoid. The upper gold point would be fixed too high by an amount equal to the amount of the premium. Finally, it must be pointed out that the distinction between a legitimate and an illegitimate demand for gold for export cannot be applied in practice. The demand for gold with which to pay for imported goods may be called legitimate. The demand for gold with which to buy foreign bills as a temporary investment with a view to exploiting a difference in interest rates, may be called illegitimate. But there are many remaining intermediate cases which cannot be placed in either one or the other category. Would it have been possible, say, for the Bank of France to put obstacles in the way of the withdrawal of deposits held by foreign states, municipalities, and companies, perhaps as the balances of loans, or for the Austro-Hungarian Bank, which has repeatedly been accused of refusing to issue bills to persons who intend to carry out arbitrage dealings to increase the difficulty of speculative repurchase of home securities from abroad. Section 7. Other Measures for Strengthening the Stock of Metal Held by the Central Banks of Issue the endeavors of the central banks of issue to build up as large gold reserves as possible have led to the employment of devices which have just the opposite appearance to that of the premium policy and the systems similar to it. By raising the price they paid for gold imports, the banks used to try to diminish the cost to the importer of importing gold and so to reduce the lower gold point. Among these devices was the practice of granting interest-free or low-interest-bearing advances to importers of gold, a practice which was not unknown in England, France, and Germany. There was also the practice of buying gold not only at the chief office, but also at branches situated near the national boundary. Perhaps the most interesting of these devices was that of buying certain kinds of gold coin at a price in excess of their bullion value. If the bank issued to a gold exporter, instead of ingots or coins of the country, coins of the country to which he intended to send the gold, it could get a higher price for them than that corresponding to their gold content. For the exporter would save the expense of melting and recoinage and avoid the loss in which he would be involved by the fact that domestic coins would be worn down to some extent. So the bank would be able to agree to pay a higher price than that corresponding to the metal content for the current gold coins of the states into which the future export of gold was probable. 
All of these measures can best be described as weapons against the premium policies and related devices employed by foreign banks. If the central bank in country A endeavored to raise the upper gold point for export from A to country B, then the bank in B took steps to lower it. If only used coins were issued for export purposes in A, this procedure was rendered nugatory when a price in excess of the gold content was paid in B for coins of country A. It is very probable that the devices and counter-devices were largely compensatory, so that the extension of the gap between the gold points, which otherwise would necessarily have resulted from the intervention of the banks, did not in fact occur. Section 8. The Promotion of Check and Clearing Transactions as a Means of Reducing the Rate of Discount In Germany, where before the war relatively very much gold was in circulation, there was a constantly growing endeavor to withdraw it from circulation by an extension of check and clearing transactions and to divert it into the vaults of the Reichsbank. The aim of this propaganda is set forth in a circular of the elders of the Kaufmannschaft in Berlin, S.D., May 2, 1907, to the following effect. The causes to which the high rate of interest in Germany are to be traced are rooted to a large extent in the circumstance that the German people make greater use than those in other countries of cash media of circulation, gold and silver, for payments arising in and out of the course of business but have not yet sufficiently accustomed themselves to the procedure which might replace the use of gold and silver, and also of banknotes and treasury notes as media of circulation, viz. the use of checks and the clearing system. If a considerable proportion of payments could be settled by means of transfers from one account to another, or by checks, then this would save large sums of currency in gold and silver, as well as in banknotes, and this saved currency would then accumulate in the reserves of the banks of issue, especially of the central bank of issue, the Reichsbank. The more this happened, the smaller would be the demand for currency that had to be satisfied by the Reichsbank, and the stronger would be the cash reserve of the Reichsbank, which circumstances would contribute considerably toward a reduction of the rate of interest at the Reichsbank and in the whole country. In this is a very clear demonstration of the weakness of theoretical views that underlie modern banking policy. The level of the rate of interest is said to depend on the demand for currency. The strengthening of the cash reserve of the central bank of issue is credited with the effect of reducing the rate of interest in the whole country, and of reducing it appreciably. And this is not just the opinion of some private person or other, but that of the highly respected corporation of the Berlin Kaufmannschaft, and also, as everyone knows, that of the leaders of German economic policy in general. On this one point all parties seem to be agreed. However, much of their views on the nature of economic phenomena may otherwise diverge. But even if this fundamental error is for a moment disregarded, it is impossible to overlook the weakness of the doctrines expounded and, above all, their contradictoriness. The proportion of cover for the Reichsbank notes, provided for in the banking legislation of the 70s, is treated as sacrosanct. 
The possibility of changing these provisions by substituting, say, the cover of one-quarter or one-fifth for that of one-third is never contemplated. The letter of the law has to be preserved while the assumptions on which it was based are being altered. When money substitutes in the form of deposits are augmented without provision being made for a monetary cover, the quantity of fiduciary media is increased. This is further demonstrative of the fact that even that part of the argument of the banking principle which was theoretically correct was unable to exert any influence on practical politics. Tukin Fullerton repeatedly point out that there is no fundamental difference between notes and deposits, which they speak of as checks. Their modern successors do not dare to draw the logical conclusion from this incontrovertible fact. They stand for the differential treatment of fiduciary media according to whether they are notes or deposits. If part of the gold in circulation in Germany and part of the banknotes had been replaced by fiduciary media in the shape of deposits, this might have led to a diminution in the rate of interest only in so far as the gold that had become superfluous was employed for obtaining capital goods from abroad. The replacement of notes without a metal backing by deposits without a metal backing is of no consequence in this connection. Only so far as notes covered by metal were replaced by deposits not covered by metal would there be any increase in the circulation of fiduciary media at the expense of that of the money certificates by which gold would be released for export to other countries. But the same result could have been attained by a diminution of the ratio between cover and banknotes. Nevertheless, this simpler device was generally held to be impracticable, in spite of the fact that it was precisely as safe or precisely as dangerous as the other. If the gold dispensed within this way had been exported, then the stock of other economic goods at the disposal of the German nation would have increased correspondingly. This might have led to a fall, if only a trifling one, in the rate of interest, assuming that the quantity of gold expelled from Germany was absorbed abroad with a general fall in the objective exchange value of money. But the German champions of an extension of the check and clearing system did not think of that when making proposals of this sort. They recommended the extension of the circulation of fiduciary media in the form of deposits because they believed that this would reduce the number and extent of those applications that made demands upon the credit that the Reichsbank granted in the form of notes, and they hoped that this would lead to a reduction in the rate of interest on loans. There is a serious error in all this. The level of the rate of interest on loans does not depend on the amount of the national stock of money in the wider sense, nor, of course, on the amount of fiduciary media in circulation. It was not the legal regulations concerning cover that forced the Reichsbank to aim at a discount policy that would prevent any tension from arising between the natural rate of interest and the discount rate, but its inevitable concern for its own solvency. In all those countries whose credit system is organized on the so-called single reserve basis so that the stock of money needed for the redemption on demand of money substitutes is administered by a central bank on which in times of emergency all the credit issuing banks must ultimately fall back, 
It is the directors of this bank who are the first to notice the outward flow of gold, and it is they who must be the first to take steps to stop it, since its first effects are directed against the institution for which they are responsible. Therefore, the raising of the discount rate by the central bank usually precedes the increased severity of lending terms in the open market and in the dealings between the private banks and their clients. And so superficial critics jump to the conclusion post hoc ergo propter hoc. Nothing could be more mistaken. Even quite apart from the proceedings of the central bank of issue, the private banks and others who issue money have to adjust their interest policy to the rate of interest ruling in the world market. Sums could be withdrawn from them for the purposes of interest arbitrage, just as from the central bank. In fact, so long as the mobility of capital is not restricted, it remains impossible for the credit-issuing banks of any single country to follow an independent credit policy. 3. Problems of Credit Policy in the Period Immediately After the War Section 9. The Gold Exchange Standard Wherever inflation has thrown the monetary system into confusion, the primary aim of currency policy has been to bring the printing presses to a standstill. Once that is done, once it has at last been learned that even the policy of raising the objective exchange value of money has undesirable consequences, and once it is seen that the chief thing is to stabilize the value of money, then attempts are made to establish a gold exchange standard as quickly as possible. This, for example, is what occurred in Austria at the end of 1922, and since then, at least for the time being, the dollar rate in that country has been fixed. But in existing circumstances, invariability of the dollar rate means invariability of the price of gold also. Thus, Austria has a dollar exchange standard, and so, indirectly, a gold exchange standard. That is, the currency system that seems to be the immediate aim in Germany, Poland, Hungary, and many other European countries. Nowadays, European aspirations in the sphere of currency policy are limited to a return to the gold standard. This is quite understandable, for the gold standard previously functioned on the whole satisfactorily, it is true that it did not secure the unattainable ideal of a money with an invariable objective exchange value, but it did preserve the monetary system from the influence of governments in changing policies. Yet the gold standard system was already undermined before the war. The first step was the abolition of the physical use of gold in individual payments and the accumulation of the stocks of gold in the vaults of the great banks of issue. The next step was the adoption of the practice by a series of states of holding the gold reserves of the central banks of issue, or the redemption funds that took their place, not in actual gold, but in various sorts of foreign claims to gold. Thus it came about that the greater part of the stock of gold that was used for monetary purposes was gradually accumulated in a few large banks of issue, and so these banks became central reserve banks of the world. As previously, the central banks of issue had become central reserve banks for individual countries. The war did not create this development. It merely hastened it a little. 
Neither has the development yet reached the stage when all the newly produced gold that is not absorbed into individual use flows to a single center. The Bank of England and the central banks of issue of some other states still control large stocks of gold. There are still several of them that take up part of the annual output of gold. Yet fluctuations in the price of gold are nowadays essentially dependent on the policy followed by the Federal Reserve Board. If the United States did not absorb gold to the extent to which it does, the price of gold would fall and the gold prices of commodities would rise. Since, so long as the dollar represents a fixed quantity of gold, the United States admits the surplus of gold and surrenders commodities for gold to an unlimited extent. A rapid fall in the value of gold has hitherto been avoided. But this policy of the United States, which involves considerable sacrifices, might one day be changed. Variations in the price of gold would then occur, and this would be bound to give rise in other gold countries to the question of whether it would not be better, in order to avoid further rises in prices, to dissociate the currency standard from gold. Just as Sweden attempted for a time to raise the krona above its old gold parity by closing the mint to gold, so other countries that are now still on the gold standard, or intend to return to it, might act similarly. This would mean a further drop in the price of gold and a further reduction of the usefulness of gold for monetary purposes. If we disregard the Asiatic demand for money, we might even now, without undue exaggeration, say that gold has ceased to be a commodity, the fluctuations in the price of which are independent of government influence. Fluctuations in the price of gold are nowadays substantially dependent on the behavior of one government, viz. that of the United States of America. All that could not have been foreseen in this result of a long process of development is the circumstance that the fluctuations in the price of gold should have become dependent upon the policy of one government only. That the United States should have achieved such an economic predominance over other countries, as it now has, and that it alone of all countries of great economic importance should have retained the gold standard, while the others, England, France, Germany, Russia, and the rest, have at least temporarily abandoned it. That is a consequence of what took place during the war. Yet the matter would not be essentially different if the price of gold was dependent not on the policy of the United States alone, but on those of four or five other governments as well. Those protagonists of the gold exchange standard who have recommended it as a general monetary system and not merely as an expedient for poor countries have overlooked this fact. They have not observed that the gold exchange standard must at least mean depriving gold of that characteristic which is the most important from the point of view of monetary policy, its independence of government influence upon fluctuations in its value. The gold exchange standard has not been recommended or adopted with the object of dethroning gold. All that Ricardo wanted was to reduce the cost of the monetary system. In many countries which, from the last decade of the 19th century onward, have wished to abandon the silver or credit money standard, the gold exchange standard, rather than a gold standard with an actual gold currency, has been adopted in order to prevent the growth of a new demand for gold from causing a rise in its price and a fall in the gold prices of commodities. 
But whatever the motives may have been by which the protagonist of the gold exchange standard had been led, there can be no doubt concerning the results of its increasing popularity. If the gold exchange standard is retained, the question must sooner or later arise as to whether it would not be better to substitute for it a credit money standard whose fluctuations were more susceptible to control than those of gold. For if fluctuations in the price of gold are substantially dependent on political intervention, it is inconceivable why government policy should still be restricted at all and not given a free hand altogether, since the amount of this restriction is not enough to confine arbitrariness in price policy within narrow limits. The cost of additional gold for monetary purposes that is borne by the whole world might well be saved, for it no longer secures the result of making the monetary system independent of government intervention. If this complete government control is not desired, there remains one alternative only. An attempt must be made to get back from the gold exchange standard to the actual use of gold again. Section 10. A Return to a Gold Currency A return to the actual use of gold would be certain to have effects that would scarcely be welcomed. It would lead to a rise in the price of gold, or, what is the same thing, to a fall in the price of commodities. The fact that this is not generally desired and the reason why it is not have already been dealt with. We may confidently suppose that such a fall in prices would cause just as much dissatisfaction as was caused by the process of expelling gold from circulation, and it hardly demands an excessive amount of insight to be able to predict that in such circumstances it would not be long before the gold standard was again accused of responsibility for the bad state of business. Once again, the gold standard would be reproached with depressing prices and forcing up the rate of interest, and once again proposals would be made for some sort of modification of the gold standard. In spite of all these objections, the question of the advisability of a return to an actual gold standard demands serious consideration. One thing alone would recommend the abandonment of the gold exchange standard and the reintroduction of the actual use of gold. This is the necessity for making a recurrence of inflationary policies, if not impossible, at least substantially more difficult. From the end of the last century onwards, it was the aim of etatism in monetary policy to restrict the actual circulation of gold for three reasons— First, because it wished to inflate, without repealing the existing banking laws, by concentrating gold reserves in the central bank of issue. Second, because it wished to accumulate a war chest. And third, because it wished to wean the people from the use of gold coins so as to pave the way for the inflationary policy of the coming Great War. Admittedly, it will not be possible to prevent either war or inflation by opposing such endeavors as these. Kant's proposal to prohibit the raising of loans for war purposes is extremely naive, and it would be still more naive to bring within the scope of such a prohibition the issue of fiduciary media, too. Only one thing can conquer war, that liberal attitude of mind which can see nothing in war but destruction and annihilation and which can never wish to bring about a war,
because it regards war as injurious even to the victors. Where liberalism prevails, there will never be war. But where there are other opinions concerning the profitability and injuriousness of war, no rules and regulations, however cunningly devised, can make war impossible. If war is regarded as advantageous, then laws regulating the monetary systems will not be allowed to stand in the way of going to war. On the first day of any war, all the laws opposing obstacles to it will be swept aside, just as in 1914 the monetary legislation of all the belligerent states was turned upside down without one word of protest being ventured. To try to oppose future war policies through currency legislation would be foolish. But it may nevertheless be conceded that the argument in favor of making war more difficult cannot be neglected when the question is being debated of whether the actual domestic circulation of gold should be done away with in the future or not. If the people are accustomed to the actual use of gold in their daily affairs, they will resist an inflationary policy more strongly than did the peoples of Europe in 1914. It will not be so easy for governments to disavow the reactions of war on the monetary system. They will be obliged to justify their policy. The maintenance of an actual gold currency would impose considerable cost on individual nations and would, at first, lead to a general fall of prices. There can hardly be any doubt about that. But all its disadvantages must be accepted as part of the bargain if other services are demanded of the monetary system than that of preparing for war, revolution, and destruction. It is from this point of view that we should approach the question of the denominations of notes. If the issue of notes which do not make up a multiple of at least the smallest gold coins is prohibited, then in the business of everyday life gold coins will have to be used. This could best be brought about by an international currency agreement. It would be easy to force countries into such an agreement by means of penal customs duties. Section 11. The Problem of the Freedom of the Banks The events of recent years reopen questions that have long been regarded as closed. The question of the freedom of the banks is one of these. It is no longer possible to consider it completely settled, as it must have been considered for decades now. Unfortunate experiences with banknotes that had become valueless because they were no longer actually redeemable led once to the restriction of the right of note issue to a few privileged institutions. Yet experience of state regulation of banks of issue has been incomparably more unfavorable than experience of uncontrolled private enterprise. What do all the failures of banks of issue and clearing banks known to history matter in comparison with the complete collapse of the banking system in Germany? Everything that has been said in favor of control of the banking system pales into insignificance beside the objections that can nowadays be advanced against state regulation of the issue of notes. The ethetistic arguments that were once brought forward against the freedom of the note issue no longer carry conviction. In the sphere of banking, as everywhere else, etatism has been a failure. The safeguards erected by the liberal legislation of the 19th century to protect the bank of issue system against abuse by the state have proved inadequate. 
Nothing has been easier than to treat with contempt all the legislative provisions for the protection of the monetary standard. All governments, even the weakest and most incapable, have managed it without difficulty. Their banking policies have enabled them to bring about the state of affairs that the gold standard was designed to prevent, subjection of the value of money to the influence of political forces. And having arrogated this power to themselves, the governments have put it to the worst conceivable use. But so long as the other political and ideological factors were what they were, we cannot conclude that the mere freedom of the banks would or could have made things different. Let us suppose that freedom of banking had prevailed throughout Europe during the last two generations before the outbreak of World War, that banknotes had not become legal tender, that notes were always examined, not only with respect to their genuineness, but also with respect to their soundness, whenever they were tendered, and those issued by unknown banks rejected, but that the notes of large and well-known banking firms nevertheless were just as freely current as the notes of the great central banks of issue in the period when they were not legal tender. Let us further suppose that since there was no danger of a world banking cartel, the banks had been prevented, by the mere necessity for redeeming their notes in cash, from making immoderate endeavors to extend their issue by charging a low rate of interest, or at least that the risk of this was no greater than under legislative regulation of the note system. Let us suppose, in short, that up to the outbreak of the war, the system had worked no better and no worse than that which actually existed. But the question at issue is whether it would have held its own any better after July 28, 1914. The answer to this question seems to be that it would not have done so. The governments of the belligerent and neutral states overthrew the whole system of bank legislation with a stroke of a pen, and they could have done just the same if the banks had been uncontrolled. There would have been no necessity at all for them to proceed to issue treasury notes. They could simply have imposed on the banks the obligation to grant loans to the state and enabled them to fulfill this obligation by suspending their obligation to redeem their notes and making the notes legal tender. The solution of a few minor technical problems would have been different, but the effect would have been the same. For what enabled the governments to destroy the banking system was not any technical, juristic, or economic shortcoming of the banking organization, but the power conferred on them by the general sentiment in favor of etatism and war. They were able to dominate the monetary system because public opinion gave them the moral right to do so. Necessity knows no law was the principle, which served as an excuse for all the actions of all governments alike, and not only that of Germany, which was much blamed because of the candor with which it confessed its adherence to the maxim. At the most, as has been explained, an effective, if limited, protection against future etatistic abuse of the banking system might be secured by prohibiting the issue of notes of small denominations, that is to say, not by uncontrolled private enterprise in banking, but on the contrary by interference with the freedom of the note issue. Apart from this single prohibition, it would be quite possible to leave the note issue without any legislative restrictions and, of course, without any legislative privileges either. 
such as the granting of legal tender to the notes. Nevertheless, it is clear that banking freedom, per se, cannot be said to make a return to gross inflationary policy impossible. Apart from the question of financial preparation for war, the arguments urged in favor of centralization, monopolization, and state control of banks of issue in general, and of credit-issuing banks in particular, are thoroughly unsound. During the past 20 or 30 years, the literature of banking has gotten so thoroughly lost among the details of commercial technique, has so entirely abandoned the economic point of view, and so completely surrendered itself to the influence of the most undisguised kinds of etatistic argument, that in order to discover what the considerations are that are supposed to militate against the freedom of the banks, it is necessary to go back to the ideas that dominated the banking literature and policy of two or three generations ago. The bank of issue system was then supposed to be regulated in the interests of the poor and ignorant man in the street, so that bank failures might not inflict loss upon those who were unskilled and unpracticed in business matters, the laborer, the salaried employee, the civil servant, the farmer. The argument was that such private persons should not be obliged to accept notes whose value they were unable to test, an argument which only needs to be stated for its utter invalidity to the apparent. No banking policy could have been more injurious to the small man than recent atatism has been. The argument, however, that was then supposed to be the decisive one, was provided by the currency principle. From the point of view of this doctrine, any note issue that is not covered by gold is dangerous. And so, in order to obviate the recurrence of economic crises, such issues must be restricted. On the question of theoretical importance of the currency principle, and on the question of whether the means proposed by the currency school were effective, or could have been effective, or might still be effective, there is nothing that need be added to what has been said already. We have already shown that the dangers envisaged by the currency principle exist only when there is uniform procedure on the part of all the credit-issuing banks, not merely within a given country, but throughout the world. Now, the monopolization of the banks of issue in each separate country does not merely fail to oppose any hindrance to this uniformity of procedure, it materially facilitates it. What was supposed to be the decisive argument against freedom of banking in the last generation before the war is just the opposite to that which was held by the currency school. Before the war, state control of banking was desired with the very object of artificially depressing the domestic rate of interest below the level that considerations of the possibility of redemption would have dictated if the banks had been completely free. The attempt was made to render as nugatory as possible the obligations of cash redemption, which constitutes the foundation stone of all credit-issuing bank systems. This was the intention of all the little expedients, individually unimportant but cumulatively of definite if temporary effect, which was then customary to call banking policy. Their one intent may be summed up in the sentence, by hook or by crook, to keep the rate of discount down. They have achieved the circumvention of all the natural and legal obstacles that hinder the reduction of the bank rate below the natural rate of interest. 
In fact, the object of all banking policy has been to escape the necessity for discount policy, an object, it is true, which it was unable to achieve until the outbreak of the war left the way free for inflation. If the arguments for and against state regulation of the bank of issue system and of the whole system of fiduciary media are examined without the atatistic prejudice in favor of rules and prohibitions, they can lead to no other conclusion than that of one of the last of the defenders of banking freedom. There is only one danger that is peculiar to the issue of notes, that of its being released from the common law obligation under which everybody who enters into a commitment is strictly required to fulfill it at all times and in all places. This danger is infinitely greater and more threatening under a system of monopoly. Section 12. Fisher's Proposal for a Commodity Standard the more the view regains ground that general business fluctuations are to be explained by reference to the credit policy of the banks, the more eagerly are ways sought for by which to eliminate the alteration of boom and depression in economic life. It was the aim of the currency school to prevent the periodical recurrence of general economic crises by setting a maximum limit to the issue of uncovered banknotes. An obvious further step is to close the gap that was not reckoned with in their theory and consequently not provided for in their policy by limiting the issue of fiduciary media in whatever form, not merely that of banknotes. If this were done, it would no longer be possible for the credit-issuing banks to underbid the equilibrium rate of interest and introduce into circulation new quantities of fiduciary media with the immediate consequence of an artificial stimulus to business and the inevitable final consequence of the dreaded economic crisis. Whether a decisive step such as this will actually be taken apparently depends upon the kind of credit policy that is followed in the immediate future by the banks in general and by the big central banks of issue in particular. It has already been shown that it is impossible for a single bank by itself, and even for all banks in a given country, or for all banks in several countries, to increase the issue of fiduciary media, if the other banks do not do the same. The fact that tacit agreement to this effect among all the credit-issuing banks of the world has been achieved only with difficulty, and even at that has only affected what is, after all, but a small increase of credit, has constituted the most effective protection in recent times against excesses of credit policy. In this respect, we cannot, yet, know how circumstances will shape. If it should prove easier now for the credit-issuing banks to extend their circulation, then failure to adopt measures for limiting the issue of fiduciary media will involve the greatest danger to the stability of economic life. During the years immediately preceding the World War, the objective exchange value of gold fell continuously. From 1896 onwards, the commodity price level rose continuously. This movement, which is to be explained on the one hand by the increased production of gold, and on the other hand by the extended employment of fiduciary media, became still more pronounced after the outbreak of the war. Gold disappeared from circulation in a series of populous countries and flowed into the diminishing region within which it continued to perform a monetary function, as before. Of course, this resulted in a decrease in the purchasing power of gold. Prices rose. 
not only in the countries with an inflated currency, but also in the countries that had remained on the gold standard. If the countries that nowadays have a paper currency should return to gold, the objective exchange value of gold would rise. The gold prices of commodities and services would fall. This effect might be modified if the gold exchange variety of standard were adopted instead of a gold currency. But if the area within which gold is employed as money is to be extended again, it is a consequence that can hardly be eliminated altogether. It would only come to stop when all countries had again adopted the gold standard. Then, perhaps, the fall in the value of gold, which lasted for nearly 30 years, might set in again. The prospect is not a particularly pleasant one. It is hardly surprising, in the circumstances, that the attention of theorists and politicians should have been directed with special interest to the proposal that aims at nothing less than the creation of a money with the most stable purchasing power possible. The fundamental idea of Fisher's scheme for stabilizing the purchasing power of money is the replacement of the gold standard by a commodity standard. Previous proposals concerning the commodity standard have conceived it as supplementing the precious metal standard. Their intention has been that monetary obligations, which did not fall due until after a certain period of time, should be dischargeable by virtue either of general compulsory legislation or of special contractual agreements between the parties, not in the nominal sum of money to which they referred, but by payment of that sum of money whose purchasing power at the time when the liability was discharged was equal to the purchasing power of the borrowed sum of money at the time when the liability was incurred. Otherwise, they have intended that the precious metal should still fulfill its monetary office. The tabular standard was to have effect only as a standard of deferred payments. But Fisher has more ambitious designs. His commodity standard is not intended merely to supplement the gold standard, but to replace it altogether. This end is to be attained by means of an ingenious combination of the fundamental concept of the gold exchange standard with that of the tabular standard. The money substitutes that are current under a gold exchange standard are redeemable either in gold or in bills on countries that are on the gold standard. Fisher wishes to retain redemption in gold but in such a way that the currency units are no longer to be converted into a fixed weight of gold, but into the quantity of gold that corresponds to the purchasing power of the monetary unit at the time of the inauguration of the scheme. The dollar, according to the model bill worked out by Fisher for the United States, ceases to be a fixed quantity of gold of variable purchasing power and becomes a variable quantity of gold of invariable purchasing power. Calculations based on price statistics are used month by month for the construction of an index number, which indicates by how much the purchasing power of the dollar has risen or fallen in comparison with the preceding month. Then, in accordance with this change in the value of money, the quantity of gold that represents one dollar is increased or diminished. This is the quantity of gold for which the dollar is to be redeemed at the banks entrusted with this function, and this is the quantity of gold for which they have to pay out one dollar to anyone who demands it. Fisher's plan is ambitious, and yet simple. 
Perhaps it is unnecessary to state that it is in no way dependent upon Fisher's particular theory of money, whose inadequacy as regards certain crucial matter has already been indicated. There is no need to criticize Fisher's scheme again with reference to the considerable dubiety attaching to the scientific correctness of index numbers and to the possibility of turning them to practical account in eliminating those unintended modifications of long-term contracts that arise from variations in the value of money. In Fisher's scheme, the function of the index number is to serve as an indicator of variations in the purchasing power of the monetary unit from month to month. We may suppose that, for determining changes in the value of money over very short periods, and in the present connection, the month may certainly be regarded as a very short period. Index numbers could be employed with at least sufficient exactitude for practical purposes. Yet, even if we assume this, we shall still be forced to conclude that the execution of Fisher's scheme could not in any way ameliorate the social consequences of variations in the value of money. But before we enter upon this discussion, it is pertinent to inquire what demands the proposal makes concerning business practice. If it is believed that the effects of variations in the value of money on long-term credit transactions are compensated by variations in the rate of interest, then the adoption of a commodity standard based on the use of index numbers as a supplement to the gold standard must be regarded as superfluous. But, in any case, this is certainly not true of gradual variations in the value of money of which neither the extent nor even the direction can be foreseen. The depreciation of gold which has gone on since towards the end of the 19th century has hardly found any expression at all in variations in the rate of interest. Thus, if it were possible to find a satisfactory solution of the problem of measuring variations in the value of money, the adoption of a tabular standard for long-term credit transactions, the decision as to the employment of the index being left to the parties to each particular contract, could by no means be regarded as superfluous. But the technical difficulties in the way are too great as to be insurmountable. The scientific inadequacy of all methods of calculating index numbers means that there can be no correct one, and therefore none that could command general recognition. The choice among the many possible methods, which are all equally inadequate from the purely theoretical point of view, is an arbitrary one. Now, since each method will yield a different result, the opinions of debtors and creditors concerning them will differ also. The different solutions adopted in the law, or by administrative authority responsible for calculating the index numbers, as the various problems arise, will constitute a new source of uncertainty in long-term credit transactions, an uncertainty that might affect the foundations of credit transactions more than variations in the value of gold would. All this would be true of Fisher's proposals also insofar as they concern long-term credit transactions. Insofar as they concern short-term credit transactions, it must be pointed out that even under the present organization of the monetary system, future fluctuations of the value of money are not ignored. The difficulty about taking account of future variations in the value of money in long-term credit transactions 
lies in the impossibility of foreknowing the direction and extent of long-period variations even with only relative certainty. But for shorter periods, over weeks, and even over periods of a few months, it is possible to a certain extent to foretell the movement of the commodity price level. And this movement consequently is allowed for in all transactions involving short-term credit. The money market rate of interest, as the rate of interest in the market for short-term investments is called, expresses, among other things, the opinion of the business world as to imminent variations in commodity prices. It rises with the expectation of a rise in prices and falls with the expectation of a fall in prices. In those commercial agreements in which interest is explicitly allowed for, there would be no particular difficulty under Fisher's scheme in making the necessary adjustment of business technique. The only adjustment that would be necessary in the new circumstances would be to leave out of account all considerations of variations in the commodity price level in future calculations of the rate of interest. But the matter is somewhat more complicated in those transactions in which an explicit rate of interest does not appear but is allowed for implicitly in some other terms of the agreement. An example of a case of purchase on credit will assist in the discussion of this point. Let us assume that in such a case the index number, over a period of five successive months, rises each month in arithmetical progression by 1% of the index number proper to the first month. A person who had bought commodities in February on three months' credit would have to pay back in May 0.048 of a gram of fine gold for every dollar over and above the gold content of the dollars in which he had made the bargain. Now, according to present practice, the terms of the transactions entered into in February would make allowances for the expected general rise of prices, in the purchase then determine the views held by the buyer and the seller as to immediate probabilities concerning future prices would already be expressed. Now, since under Fisher's plan the purchase price would still have to be settled by payment of the agreed number of dollars, this rise of prices would be allowed for a second time. Clearly this will not do. In other words, the present ordinary practice concerning purchases on credit and other credit transactions must be modified. All that a person will have to do after the introduction of the commodity standard, who would have bought a commodity in January on three months' credit at $105 under a simple gold standard, is to take account of the expected fluctuations in the value of gold in a different way, in order not to buy dearer than he would have bought in gold dollars. If he correctly foresees these fluctuations as amounting to $3, then he would have to agree to pay a purchase price of only 160 times 105 line over 164.8 dollars equals $101.94. Fisher's project makes a different technique necessary in business. It cannot be claimed that this technique would be any simpler than that used under the pure gold standard. Both with and without Fisher's plan, it is necessary for buyers and sellers to allow for variations in the general level of prices, 
as well as for the particular variations in the prices of the commodities in which they deal. The only difference is in the method by which they evaluate the result of their speculative opinion. We can thus see what value Fisher's scheme has as far as the consequences of variations in the value of money arising in connection with credit transactions are concerned. For long-term credit transactions, in which Fisher's scheme is no advance on the old and oft-discussed tabular standard, which has never been put into execution because of its disadvantages, the use of the commodity standard as a supplement to the gold standard is impractical because of the fundamental inadequacy of all methods of calculating index numbers. For short-term credit transactions, in which variations in the value of money are already taken account of in a different way, it is superfluous. But variations in the objective exchange value of money have another kind of social consequence, arising from the fact that they are not expressed simultaneously and uniformly with regard to all commodities and services. Fisher's scheme promises no relief at all from consequences of this sort. Fisher, indeed, never refers to this kind of consequence of variations in the value of money and seems to be aware only of such effects as arise from their reactions on debt relationships contracted in terms of money. However it may be calculated, an index number expresses nothing but an average of price variations. There will be prices that change more and prices that change less than the calculated average amount, and there will even be prices that change in the opposite direction. All who deal in those commodities whose prices change differently from the average will be affected by variations in the objective exchange value of gold in the way already referred to in Part 2, Chapter 6, Sections 3 and 4. And the adjustment of the value of the dollar to the average movement of commodity prices, as expressed in the chosen index number, will be quite unable to affect this. When the value of gold falls, there will be persons who are favored by the fact that the rise in prices begins earlier for the commodities that they sell than for the commodities that they have to buy. And on the other hand, there will be persons whose interests suffer because of the fact that they must continue to sell the commodities in which they deal at the lower price corresponding to earlier circumstances, although they already have to buy at the higher price. Even the execution of Fisher's proposal could not cause the variations in the value of money to occur simultaneously and uniformly in relation to all other economic goods. Thus, the social consequences of variations in the value of money could not be done away with even with the help of Fisher's commodity standard. Section 13. The Basic Questions of Future Currency Policy Irving Fisher's scheme is symptomatic of a tendency in contemporary currency policy which is antipathetic to gold. There is an inclination in the United States and in Anglo-Saxon countries generally to overestimate in a quite extraordinary manner the significance of index methods. In these countries, it is entirely overlooked that the scientific exactness of these methods leaves much to be desired, that they can never yield anything more than a rough result at best, and that the question whether one or other method of calculation is preferable 
can never be solved by scientific means. The question of which method is preferred is always a matter for political judgment. It is a serious matter to fall into to imagine that the methods suggested by monetary theorists and currency statisticians can yield unequivocal results that will render the determination of the value of money independent of the political decisions of the governing parties. A monetary system in which variations in the value of money and commodity prices are controlled by the figure calculated from price statistics is not the slightest degree less dependent upon government influences than any other sort of monetary system in which the government is able to exert an influence on values. There can be no doubt that the present state of the market for gold makes a decision between two possibilities imperative, a return to the actual use of gold after the fashion of the English gold standard of the 19th century, or a transition to a fiat money standard with purchasing power regulated according to index numbers. The gold exchange standard might be considered as a possible basis for future currency systems only if an international agreement could impose upon each state the obligation to maintain a stock of gold of a size corresponding to its capacity. A gold exchange standard with a redemption fund chiefly invested in foreign bills in gold currencies is, in the long run, not a practicable general solution of the problem. The first German edition of this work, published in 1912, concluded with an attempt at a glimpse into the future history of money and credit. The important parts of its argument ran as follows. It has gradually become recognized as a fundamental principle of monetary policy that intervention must be avoided as far as possible. Fiduciary media are scarcely different in nature from money. A supply of them affects the market in the same way as a supply of money proper. Variations in their quantity influence the objective exchange value of money in just the same way as do variations in the quantity of money proper. Hence, they should logically be subjected to the same principles that have been established with regard to money proper. The same attempts should be made in their case as well to eliminate as far as possible human influences on the exchange ratio between money and other economic goods. The possibility of causing temporary fluctuations in the exchange ratios between goods of higher and lower orders by the issue of fiduciary media and the pernicious consequences connected with a divergence between the natural and money rates of interest are circumstances leading to the same conclusion. Now, it is obvious that the only way of eliminating human influence on the credit system is to suppress all further issue of fiduciary media. The basic concept of Peel's Act ought to be restated and more completely implemented than it was in the England of his time by including the issue of credit in the form of bank balances within the legislative prohibition. At first, it might appear as if the execution of such radical measures would be bound to lead to a rise in the objective exchange value of money. But this is not necessarily the case. It is not improbable that the production of gold and the increase in the issue of bank credit are at present increasing considerably faster than the demand for money and are consequently leading to a steady diminution of the objective exchange value of money.
And there can be no doubt that a similar result follows from the apparently one-sided fixing of prices by sellers, the effect of which, in diminishing the value of money, has already been examined in detail. The complaints about the general increase in the cost of living, which will continue for a long time yet, may serve as a confirmation of the correctness of this assumption, which can be neither confirmed nor refuted statistically. Thus, a restriction of the growth of the stock of money in the broader sense need not unconditionally lead to a rise in the purchasing power of the monetary unit. It is possible that it might have the effect of completely or partly counteracting the fall in the value of money which might otherwise have occurred. It is not entirely out of the question that the monetary and credit policy of the future will attempt to check any further fall in the objective exchange value of money. Large classes of the population, wage and salary earners, feel that the continuous fall in the value of money is unjust. It is most certain that any proposals that promise them any relief in this direction will receive their warmest support. What these proposals will be like, and how far they will go, are matters that it is difficult to foresee. In any case, economists are not called upon to act as prophets. Elsewhere in the course of the argument, it was claimed that it would be useless to try and impose the monetary system at all in the way envisaged by the tabular standard. We must abandon all attempts to render the organization of the market even more perfect than it is, and content ourselves with what has been attained already. Or rather, we must strive to retain what has been attained already. And that is not such an easy matter as it seems to appear to those who have been more concerned to improve the apparatus of exchange than to note the dangers that implied its maintenance at its present level of perfection. It would be a mistake to assume that the modern organization of exchange is bound to continue to exist. It carries within itself the germ of its own destruction. The development of the fiduciary media must necessarily lead to its breakdown. Once common principles for their circulation credit policy are agreed to by the different credit-issuing banks, or once the multiplicity of credit-issuing banks is replaced by a single world bank, there will be no longer any limit to the issue of fiduciary media. At first, it will be possible to increase the issue of fiduciary media only until the objective exchange value of money is depressed to the level determined by the other possible uses of the monetary metal. But in the case of fiat money and credit money, there is no such limit. And even in the case of commodity money, it cannot prove impassable. For once the employment of money substitutes has superseded the employment of money, for actual employment in exchange transactions mediated by money, and we are by no means very far from this state of affairs, the moment the limit was passed, the obligation to redeem the money substitutes would be removed, and so the transition to the bank credit money would easily be completed. Then the only limit to the issue would be constituted by the technical costs of the banking business. In any case, Long before these limits are reached, the consequences of the increase in the issue of fiduciary media will make themselves felt acutely. Since then, we have experienced the collapse, sudden enough, of the monetary systems in a whole series of European states. 
the inflation of the war and post-war periods, exceeding everything that could have been foreseen, has created an unexampled chaos. Now we are on the way to mastering this chaos and to returning to a new organization of the monetary system, which will be all the better, the less it differs from the system in force before the war. The organization of exchange that will thus be achieved again will exhibit all the shortcomings that have continually been referred to with emphasis throughout the present book. It will be a task for the future to erect safeguards against the inflationary misuse of the monetary system by the government and against the extension of the circulation of fiduciary media by the banks. Yet such safeguards alone will not suffice to avert the dangers that menace the peaceful development of the function of money and fiduciary media in facilitating exchange. Money is part of the mechanism of the free market in a social order based on private property in the means of production. Only where political forces are not antagonistic to private property in the means of production is it possible to work out a policy aiming at the greatest possible stability of the objective exchange value of money? Part 4. Monetary Reconstruction Chapter 1. The Principle of Sound Money Section 1. The Classical Idea of Sound Money the principle of sound money that guided 19th-century monetary doctrines and policies was a product of classical political economy. It was an essential part of the liberal program as developed by 18th-century social philosophy and propagated in the following century by the most influential political parties of Europe and America. The liberal doctrine sees in the market economy the best even the only possible system of economic organization of society. Private ownership of the means of production tends to shift control of production to the hands of those best fitted for this job, and thus to secure, for all members of society, the fullest possible satisfaction of their needs. It assigns to the consumers the power to choose those purveyors who supply them in the cheapest way with the articles they are most urgently asking for, and thus subjects the entrepreneurs and the owners of the means of production, these the capitalist and landowners, to the sovereignty of the buying public. It makes nations and their citizens free and provides ample sustenance for a steadily increasing population. As a system of peaceful cooperation under the division of labor, the market economy could not work without an institution warranting to its members protection against domestic gangsters and external foes. Violent aggression can be thwarted only by armed resistance and repression. Society needs an apparatus of defense, a state, a government, a police power. Its undisturbed functioning must be safeguarded by continuous preparedness to repel aggressors. But then a new danger springs up. How keep under control the men entrusted with the handling of the government apparatus, lest they turn their weapons against those whom they were expected to serve? The main political problem is how to prevent the rulers from becoming despots and enslaving the citizenry. Defense of the individual's liberty against the encroachment of tyrannical governments is the essential theme of the history of Western civilization. 
The characteristic feature of the Occident is its people's pursuit of liberty, a concern unknown to Orientals. All the marvelous achievements of Western civilization are fruits grown on the tree of liberty. It is impossible to grasp the meaning of the idea of sound money if one does not realize that it was devised as an instrument for the protection of civil liberties against the despotic inroads on the part of governments. Ideologically, it belongs in the same class with political constitutions and bills of rights. The demand for constitutional guarantees and for bills of rights was a reaction against arbitrary rule and the non-observance of old customs by kings. The postulate of sound money was first brought up as a response to the princely practice of debasing the coinage. It was later carefully elaborated and perfected in the age which, through the experience of the American continental currency, the paper money of the French Revolution and the British Restriction Period, had learned what a government can do to a nation's currency system. Modern crypto-despotism, which arrogates itself in the name of liberalism, finds fault with the negativity of the concept of freedom. The censure is spurious as it refers merely to the grammatical form of the idea and does not comprehend that all civil rights can be as well defined in affirmative as in negative terms. They are negative as they are designed to obviate an evil, namely omnipotence of the police power, and to prevent the state from becoming totalitarian. They are affirmative as they are designed to preserve the smooth operation of the system of private property, the only social system that has brought about what is called civilization. Thus the sound money principle has two aspects. It is affirmative in approving the market's choice of a commonly used medium of exchange. It is negative in obstructing the government's propensity to meddle with the currency system. The sound money principle was not so much derived from the classical economist analysis of the market phenomena as from their interpretation of historical experience. It was an experience that could be perceived by a much larger public than the narrow circles of those conversant with economic theory. Hence, the sound money idea became one of the most popular points of the liberal program. Friends and foes of liberalism considered it one of the essential postulates of a liberal policy. Sound money meant a metallic standard. Standard coins should be, in fact, a definite quantity of the standard metal as precisely determined by the law of the country. Only standard coins should have unlimited legal tender quality. Token coins and all kinds of money like paper should be, on presentation and without delay, redeemed in lawful standard money. So far there was unanimity among the supporters of sound money, but then the battle of the standards arose. The defeat of those favoring silver and the unfeasibility of bimetallism eventually made the sound money principle mean the gold standard. At the end of the 19th century, there was all over the world unanimity among businessmen and statesmen with regard to the indispensability of the gold standard. Countries which were under a fiat money system or under the silver standard considered adoption of the gold standard the foremost goal of their economic policy. 
Those who disputed the eminence of the gold standard were dismissed as cranks by the representatives of the official doctrine, professors, bankers, statesmen, editors of the great newspapers and magazines. It was a serious blunder of the supporters of sound money to adopt such tactics. There is no use in dealing in a summary way with an ideology, however foolish and contradictory it may appear. Even a manifestly erroneous doctrine should be refuted by careful analysis and the unmasking of the fallacies implied. A sound doctrine can win only by exploding the delusions of its adversaries. The essential principles of the sound money doctrine were, and are, impregnable, but their scientific support in the last decades of the 19th century was rather shaky. The attempts to demonstrate their reasonableness from the point of view of the classical value theory were not very convincing, and made no sense at all when this value concept had to be discarded. But the champions of the new value theory for almost half a century restricted their studies to the problems of direct exchange and left the treatment of money and banking to routinists unfamiliar with economics. There were treatises on catalactics which dealt only incidentally and cursorily with monetary matters, and there were books on currency and banking which did not even attempt to integrate their subject into the structure of a catalactic system. Finally, the idea evolved that the modern doctrine of value, the subjectivist or marginal utility doctrine, is unable to explain the problems of money's purchasing power. It is easy to comprehend how, under such circumstances, even the least tenable objections raised by the advocates of inflationism remained unanswered. The gold standard lost popularity because, for a very long time, no serious attempts were made to demonstrate its merits and to explode the tenets of its adversaries. Section 2. The Virtues and Alleged Shortcomings of the Gold Standard the excellence of the gold standard is to be seen in the fact that it renders the determination of the monetary unit's purchasing power independent of the policies of governments and political parties. Furthermore, it prevents rulers from eluding the financial and budgetary prerogatives of the representative assemblies. Parliamentary control of finances works only if the government is not in a position to provide for unauthorized expenditures by increasing the circulation amount of fiat money. Viewed in this light, the gold standard appears as an indispensable implement of the body of constitutional guarantees that make the system of representative government function. When in the 50s of the 19th century gold production increased considerably in California and Australia, people attacked the gold standard as inflationary. In those days, Michel Chevalier, in his book The Probable Depreciation of Gold, recommended the abandonment of the gold standard, and Beranger dealt with the same subject in one of his poems. But later these criticisms subsided. The gold standard was no longer denounced as inflationary, but on the contrary as deflationary. Even the most fanatical champions of inflation like to disguise their true intentions by declaring that they merely want to offset the contractionist pressure which the allegedly insufficient supply of gold tends to produce. Yet, 
It is clear that over the last generations there has prevailed a tendency of all commodity prices and wage rates to rise. We may neglect dealings with the economic effects of a general tendency of money prices and money wages to drop, for there is no doubt that what we have experienced over the last hundred years was just the opposite, viz. a secular tendency toward a drop in the monetary unit's purchasing power, which was only temporarily interrupted by the aftermath of the breakdown of a boom intentionally created by credit expansion. Gold became cheaper in terms of commodities, not dearer. What the foes of the gold standard are asking for is not to reverse a prevailing tendency in the determination of prices, but to intensify very considerably the already prevailing upward trend of prices and wages. They simply want to lower the monetary unit's purchasing power at an accelerated pace. Such a policy of radical inflationism is, of course, extremely popular. But its popularity is to a great extent due to the misapprehension of its effects. What people are really asking for is a rise in the prices of those commodities and services they are selling, while the prices of those commodities and services which they are buying remain unchanged. The potato grower aims at higher prices for potatoes. He does not long for a rise in other prices. He is injured if these other prices rise sooner or in greater proportion than the price of potatoes. If a politician addressing a meeting declares that the government should adopt a policy which makes prices rise, his hearers are likely to applaud. Yet each of them is thinking of a different price rise. From time immemorial, inflation has been recommended as a means to alleviate the burdens of poor, worthy debtors at the expense of rich, harsh creditors. However, under capitalism, the typical debtors are not the poor, but the well-to-do owners of real estate, of firms, and of common stock. People who have borrowed from banks, savings banks, insurance companies, and bondholders. The typical creditors are not the rich, but people of modest means, who own bonds and savings accounts or have taken out insurance policies. If the common man supports anti-creditor measures, he does it because he ignores the fact that he himself is a creditor. The idea that millionaires are the victims of an easy money policy is an atavistic remnant. For the naive mind, there is something miraculous in the issuance of fiat money. A magic word spoken by the government creates out of nothing a thing which can be exchanged against any merchandise a man would like to get. How pale is the art of sorcerers, witches, and conjurers when compared with that of the government's treasury department? The government, professors tell us, can raise all the money it needs by printing it. Taxes for revenue, announced a chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, are obsolete. Well, how wonderful! and how malicious and mythanthropic are those stubborn supporters of outdated economic orthodoxy who ask governments to balance their budgets by covering all expenditures out of tax revenue. These enthusiasts do not see that the working of inflation is conditioned by the ignorance of the public and that inflation ceases to work as soon as the many become aware of its effects upon the monetary unit's purchasing power. In normal times, that is, in periods in which the government does not tamper with the monetary standard, people do not bother about monetary problems. 
Quite naively, they take it for granted that the monetary unit's purchasing power is stable. They pay attention to changes occurring in the money prices of the various commodities. They know very well that the exchange ratios between different commodities vary, but they are not conscious of the fact that the exchange ratio between money on the one side and all commodities and services on the other side is variable too. When the inevitable consequences of inflation appear and prices soar, they think that commodities are becoming dearer and fail to see that money is getting cheaper. In the early stages of an inflation, only a few people discern what is going on, manage their business affairs in accordance with this insight, and deliberately aim at reaping inflation gains. The overwhelming majority are too dull to grasp a correct interpretation of the situation. They go on in the routine they acquired in the non-inflationary periods. Filled with indignation, they attack those who are quicker to apprehend the real causes of the agitation of the market as profiteers, and lay the blame for their own plight on them. This ignorance of the public is the indispensable basis of the inflationary policy. Inflation works as long as the housewife thinks, I need a new frying pan badly. But prices are too high today. I shall wait until they drop again. It comes to an abrupt end when the people discover that the inflation will continue, that it causes the rise in prices, and that therefore prices will skyrocket indefinitely. The critical stage begins when the housewife thinks, I don't need a new frying pan today, I may need one in a year or two, but I'll buy it today because it will be much more expensive later. Then the catastrophic end of the inflation is close. In its last stage, the housewife thinks, I don't need another table, I shall never need one, but it's wiser to buy a table than keep these scraps of paper that the government calls money one minute longer. Let us leave the problem of whether or not it is advisable to base a system of government finance upon the intentional deception of the immense majority of the citizenry. It is enough to stress the point that such a policy of deceit is self-defeating. Here the famous dictum of Lincoln holds true. You can't fool all of the people all of the time. Eventually, the masses come to understand the schemes of their rulers. Then the cleverly concocted plans of inflation collapse. Whatever compliant government economists may have said, inflationism is not a monetary policy that can be considered as an alternative to a sound money policy. It is, at best, a temporary makeshift. The main problem of an inflationary policy is how to stop it before the masses have seen through their rulers' artifices. It is a display of considerable naivete to recommend openly a monetary system that can work only if its essential features are ignored by the public. The index number method is a very crude and imperfect means of measuring changes occurring in the monetary unit's purchasing power. As there are in the field of social affairs no constant relations between magnitudes, no measurement is possible, and economics can never become quantitative. But the index number method, notwithstanding its inadequacy, plays an important role in the process which, in the course of an inflationary movement, makes the people inflation conscious. Once the use of index numbers becomes common, 
the government is forced to slow down the pace of inflation and to make the people believe that the inflationary policy is merely a temporary expedient for the duration of a passing emergency, one that will be stopped before long. While the government economists still praise the superiority of inflation as a lasting scheme of monetary management, governments are compelled to exercise restraint in its application. It is permissible to call a policy of intentional inflation dishonest, as the effects sought by its application can be attained only if the government succeeds in deceiving the greater part of the people about the consequences of its policy. Many of the champions of interventionist policies will not scruple greatly about such cheating. In their eyes, what the government does can never be wrong. But their lofty moral indifference is at a loss to oppose an objection to the economist's argument against inflation. In the economist's eyes, the main issue is not that inflation is morally reprehensible, but that it cannot work except when resorted to with great restraint, and even then only for a limited period. Hence, resort to inflation cannot be considered seriously as an alternative to the permanent standard, such as the gold standard is. The pro-inflationist propaganda emphasizes nowadays the alleged fact that the gold standard collapsed and that it will never be tried again. Nations are no longer willing to comply with the rulers of the gold standard game and to bear all the costs which the preservation of the gold standard requires. First of all, there is need to remember that the gold standard did not collapse. Governments abolished it in order to pave the way for inflation. The whole grim apparatus of oppression and coercion, policemen, customs guards, penal courts, prisons, in some countries even executioners, had to be put into action in order to destroy the gold standard. Solemn pledges were broken, retroactive laws were promulgated, provisions of constitutions and bills of rights were openly defied, and hosts of servile writers praised what the government had done and hailed the dawn of the fiat money millennium. The most remarkable thing about this allegedly new monetary policy, however, is its complete failure. True, it substituted fiat money in the domestic markets for sound money and favored the material interests of some individuals and groups of individuals at the expense of others. It furthermore contributed considerably to the disintegration of the international division of labor. But it did not succeed in eliminating gold from its position as the international or world standard. If you glance at the financial page of any newspaper, you'll discover at once that gold is still the world's money, and not the variegated products of the diverse government printing offices. These scraps of paper are the more appreciated, the more stable their price is in terms of an ounce of gold. Whoever today dares to hint at the possibility that nations may return to a domestic gold standard is cried down as a lunatic. This terrorism may still go on for some time, but the position of gold as the world standard is impregnable. The policy of going off the gold standard did not relieve a country's monetary authorities from the necessity of taking into account the monetary unit's price in terms of gold. What those authors who speak about the rules of the gold standard game have in mind is not clear. 
Of course, it is obvious that the gold standard cannot function satisfactorily if to buy or to sell or to hold gold is illegal, and hosts of judges, constables, and informers are busily enforcing the law. But the gold standard is not a game. It is a market phenomenon, and as such a social institution. Its preservation does not depend on the observation of some specific rules. It requires nothing else than the government abstain from deliberately sabotaging it. To refer to this condition as a rule of an alleged game is no more reasonable than to declare that the preservation of Paul's life depends on compliance with the rules of the Paul's life game because Paul must die if somebody stabs him to death. What all the enemies of the gold standard spurn as its main vice is precisely the same thing that in the eyes of the advocates of the gold standard is its main virtue, namely, its incompatibility with a policy of credit expansion. The nucleus of all effusions of the anti-gold authors and politicians is the expansionist fallacy. The expansionist doctrine does not realize that interest i.e. the discount of future goods as against present goods, is an originary category of human valuation, actual in any kind of human action and independent of any social institutions. The expansionists do not grasp the fact that there never were and there never can be human beings who attach to an apple available in a year or in a hundred years the same value they attach to an apple available now. In their opinion, interest is an impediment to the expansion of production and consequently to human welfare that unjustified institutions have created in order to favor the selfish concerns of moneylenders. Interest, they say, is the price people must pay for borrowing. Its height, therefore, depends on the magnitude of the supply of money. If laws did not artificially restrict the creation of additional money, the rate of interest would drop ultimately even, to zero. The contractionist pressure would disappear. There would no longer be a shortage of capital, and it would become possible to execute many business projects which the restrictionism of the gold standard obstructs. What is needed to make everyone prosperous is simply to defy the rules of the gold standard game, the observance of which is the main source of all our economic ills. These absurd doctrines greatly impressed ignorant politicians and demagogues when they were blended with nationalist slogans. What prevents our country from fully enjoying the advantages of a low-interest-rate policy, says the economic isolationist, is the adherence to the gold standard. Our central bank is forced to keep its rate of discount at a height that corresponds to conditions on the international money market and to the discount rates of foreign central banks. Otherwise, speculators would withdraw funds from our country for short-term investment abroad, and the resulting outflow of gold would make the gold reserves of our central bank drop below the legal ratio. If our central bank were not obliged to redeem its banknotes in gold, no such withdrawal of gold could occur, and there would be no necessity for her to adjust the height of the money rate to the situation of the international money market, dominated by the world-embracing gold monopoly. The most amazing fact about this argument is that it was raised precisely in debtor countries for which the operation of the international money and capital market meant an inflow of foreign funds 
and consequently the appearance of a tendency toward a drop in interest rates. It was popular in Germany, and still more in Austria in the 70s and 80s of the 19th century, while it was hardly ever seriously mentioned in those years in England or in the Netherlands, whose banks and bankers lent amply to Germany and Austria. It was advanced in England only after the First World War when Great Britain's position as the world's banking center had been lost. Of course, the argument itself is untenable. The inevitable eventual failure of any attempt at credit expansion is not caused by the international intertwinement of the lending business. It is the outcome of the fact that it is impossible to substitute fiat money and the bank's circulation credit for non-existing capital goods. Credit expansion initially can produce a boom, but such a boom is bound to end in a slump, in a depression. What brings about the recurrence of periods of economic crises is precisely the reiterated attempts of governments and banks supervised by them to expand credit in order to make business goods by cheap interest rates. Section 3. The Full Employment Doctrine The inflationist or expansionist doctrine is presented in several varieties, but its essential content remains always the same. The oldest and most naive version is that of the allegedly insufficient supply of money. Business is bad, says the grocer, because my customers, or prospective customers, do not have enough money to expand their purchases. So far he is right. But when he adds that what is needed to render his business more prosperous is to increase the quantity of money in circulation, he is mistaken. What he really has in mind is an increase of the amount of money in the pockets of his customers, and prospective customers, while the amount of money in the hands of other people remains unchanged. He asks for a specific kind of inflation, namely an inflation in which the additional new money first flows into the cash holdings of a definite group of people, his customers, and thus permits him to reap inflation gains. Of course, everybody who advocates inflation does it because he infers that he will belong to those who are favored by the fact that the prices of the commodities and services they sell will rise at an earlier date and to a higher point than the prices of those commodities and services they buy. Nobody advocates an inflation in which he would be on the losing side. This spurious grocer philosophy was once and for all exploded by Adam Smith and Jean-Baptiste Say. In our day it has been revived by Lord Keynes, and under the name of full employment policy is one of the basic policies of all governments which are not entirely subject to the Soviets. Yet Keynes was at a loss to advance a tenable argument against Say's law. Nor have his disciples, or the hosts of economists, pseudo and otherwise, in the offices of the various governments, the United Nations, and diverse other national or international bureaus done any better. The fallacies implied in the Keynesian full employment doctrine are, in a new attire, essentially the same errors which Smith and Say long since demolished. Wage rates are a market phenomenon, are the prices paid for a definite quantity of labor of a definite quality. If a man cannot sell his labor at the price he would like to get for it, he must lower the price he is asking for it, 
or else he remains unemployed. If the government or labor unions fix wage rates at a higher point than the potential rate of the unhampered labor market, and if they enforce their minimum price decree by compulsion and coercion, a part of those who want to find jobs remain unemployed. Such institutional unemployment is the inevitable result of the methods applied by present-day self-styled progressive governments. It is the real outcome of measures falsely labeled as pro-labor. There is only one efficacious way towards a rise in real wage rates and an improvement in the standard of living of the wage earners to increase the per-head quota of capital invested. This is what laissez-faire capitalism begins about as far as its operation is not sabotaged by government and labor unions. We do not need to investigate whether or not the politicians of our age are aware of these facts. In most universities, it is not good form to mention them to the students. Books that are skeptical with regard to the official doctrines are not widely bought by the libraries or used in courses, and, consequently, publishers are afraid to publish them. Newspapers seldom criticize the popular creed because they fear a boycott on the part of the unions. Thus, politicians may be utterly sincere in believing that they have won social gains for the people and that the spread of unemployment is one of the evils inherent in capitalism and is in no way caused by the policies of which they are boasting. However this may be, it is obvious that the reputation and the prestige of the men who are now ruling the countries outside the Soviet bloc and of their professorial and journalistic allies are so inseparably tied up with the progressive doctrine that they must cling to it. If they do not want to forsake their political ambitions, they must stubbornly deny that their own policy tends to make mass unemployment a permanent phenomenon and must try to put on capitalism the blame for the undesired effects of their procedures. The most characteristic feature of the full unemployment doctrine is that it does not provide information about the way in which wage rates are determined on the market. To discuss the height of wage rates is taboo for progressives. When they deal with unemployment, they do not refer to wage rates. As they see it, the height of wage rates has nothing to do with unemployment and must never be mentioned in connection with it. If there are unemployed, says the progressive doctrine, the government must increase the amount of money in circulation until full employment is reached. It is, they say, a serious mistake to call inflation an increase in the quantity of money in circulation effected under these conditions. It is just full employment policy. We may refrain from frowning upon this terminological oddity of the doctrine. The main point is that every increase in the quantity of money in circulation brings about a tendency of prices and wages to rise. If, in spite of the rise of commodity prices, wage rates do not rise at all, or if their rise lags sufficiently behind the rise in commodity prices, the number of people unemployed on account of the height of the wage rates will drop but it will drop merely because such a configuration of commodity prices and is and is and means a drop in real wage rates
In order to attain this result, it would not have been necessary to embark upon increasing the amount of money in circulation. A reduction in the height of the minimum wage rates enforced by the government or union pressure would have achieved the same effect without at the same time starting all the other consequences of an inflation. It is a fact that in some countries, in the 30s, recourse to inflation was not immediately followed by a rise in the height of money wage rates as fixed by the governments or unions, that this was tantamount to a drop in real wage rates, and that consequently the number of unemployed decreased. But this was merely a passing phenomenon. When, in 1936, Lord Keynes declared that a movement of employers to revise money-wage bargains downward would be much more strongly resisted than a gradual and automatic lowering of real wage rates as a result of rising prices, he had already been outdated and refuted by the march of events. The masses had already begun to see through the artifices of inflation— Problems of the purchasing power and index numbers became an important issue in the union's dealings with wage rates. The full employment argument in favor of inflation was already behind the times at the very moment when Keynes and his followers proclaimed it as the fundamental principle of progressive economic policies. Section 4. The Emergency Argument in Favor of Inflation all the economic arguments advanced in favor of inflation are untenable. Their fallacies have long since been exploded in an irrefutable way. There is, however, a political argument in favor of inflation that requires special analysis. This political argument is only rarely resorted to in books, articles, and political speeches. It does not lend itself to such public treatment. But the underlying idea plays an important role in the thinking of statesmen and historians. Its supporters fully accept all the teachings of the sound money doctrine. They do not share the errors of the inflationist quacks. They realize that inflationism is a self-defeating policy, which must inevitably lead to an economic cataclysm, and that all its allegedly beneficial effects are even from the point of view of the authors of the inflationary policy, more undesirable than the evils which were to be cured by inflation. In full awareness of all this, however, they still believe that there are emergencies which, preemptorily, require or at least justify recourse to inflation. A nation, they say, can be menaced by evils which are incomparably more disastrous than the effects of inflation. If it is possible to avoid the total annihilation of a nation's freedom and culture by a temporary abandonment of sound money, no reasonable objection can be raised against such a procedure. It would simply mean preferring a smaller evil to a greater one. In order to appraise correctly the weight of this emergency argument in favor of inflation, there is need to realize that inflation does not add anything to a nation's power of resistance, either to its material resources or to its spiritual and moral strength. Whether there is inflation or not, the material equipment required by the armed forces must be provided out of the available means by restricting consumption for non-vital purposes, by intensifying production in order to increase output, and by consuming a part of the capital previously accumulated. All these things can be done if the majority of citizens are firmly resolved to offer resistance to the best of their abilities 
and are prepared to make such sacrifices for the sake of preserving their independence and culture. Then the legislature will adopt fiscal methods which warrant the achievement of these goals. They will attain what is called economic mobilization, or a defense economy, without tampering with the monetary system. The great emergency can be dealt with without recourse to inflation. But the situation those advocating emergency inflation have in mind is of a quite different character. Its characteristic feature is an irreconcilable antagonism between the opinions of the government and those of the majority of the people. The government, in this regard supported by only a minority of the people, believes that there exists an emergency that necessitates a considerable increase in public expenditure and a corresponding austerity in private households. But the majority of the people disagree. They do not believe that conditions are so bad as the government depicts them, or they think that the preservation of the values endangered is not worth the sacrifices they would have to make. There is no need to raise the question whether the government's or the majority's opinion is right. Perhaps the government is right. However, we deal not with the substance of the conflict, but with the methods chosen by the rulers for its solution. They reject the democratic way of persuading the majority. They arrogate to themselves the power and the moral right to circumvent the will of the people. They are eager to win its cooperation by deceiving the public about the costs involved in the measures suggested. While seemingly complying with the constitutional procedures of representative government, their conduct is in effect not that of elected officeholders, but that of guardians of the people. The elected executive no longer considers himself the people's mandatory. He turns into a Fuhrer. The emergency that brings about inflation is this. The people, or the majority of the people, are not prepared to defray the costs incurred by their rulers' policies. They support these policies only to the extent that they believe their conduct does not burden themselves. They vote, for instance, only for such taxes as are to be paid by other people, viz. the rich, because they think that these taxes do not impair their own material well-being. The reaction of the government to this attitude of the nation is, at least sometimes, directed by the sincere wish to serve what it considers to be the true interests of the people in the best possible way. But if the government resorts for this purpose to inflation, it is employing methods which are contrary to the principles of representative government, although formally it may have fully complied with the letter of the Constitution. It is taking advantage of the masses' ignorance. It is cheating the voters instead of trying to convince them. It is not just an accident that in our age inflation has become the accepted method of monetary management. Inflation is the fiscal complement of statism and arbitrary government. It is a cog in the complex of policies and institutions which gradually lead towards totalitarianism. Western liberty cannot hold its ground against the onslaughts of Oriental slavery if the peoples do not realize what is at stake and are not ready to make the greatest sacrifices for the ideals of their civilization. Recourse to inflation may provide the government with the funds which it could neither collect by taxation nor borrow from the savings of the public because the people and its parliamentary representatives objected. 
Spending the newly created fiat money, the government can buy the equipment the armed forces need. But a nation, reluctant to make the material sacrifices necessary for victory, will never display the requisite mental energy. What warrants success in a fight for freedom and civilization is not merely material equipment, but first of all, the spirit that animates those handling the weapons. This heroic spirit cannot be bought by inflation. Chapter 2 Contemporary Currency Systems Section 1 The Inflexible Gold Standard The mark of all the varieties of the gold standard and the gold exchange standard as they existed on the eve of the First World War was the gold parity of the country's monetary unit, precisely determined by a duly promulgated law. It was understood that this parity would never be changed. In virtue of the parity law, the unit of the national currency system was practically a definite quantity of the metal gold. It was of no consequence whether or not banknotes had been endowed with legal tender power. They were redeemable in gold, and the central banks really did redeem them fully on demand. The difference between the standard that was later called the orthodox or the classical gold standard and the gold exchange standard was a difference of degree. Under the former, there were gold coins in the cash holdings of the individual citizens and firms, and they were, together with banknotes, checks, and fractional coins, employed in business transactions. Under the gold exchange standard, no gold was used in transacting domestic business. But the central bank sold gold bullion and foreign exchange against the domestic currency at rates that did not exceed the legal parity by more than the gold point margin would be under the classical gold standard. Thus, the countries under the gold exchange standard were no less integrated into the system of the international gold standard than those under the classical gold standard. Section 2. The Flexible Standard the Flexible Standard, a development of the period between the First and Second World War, originated from the Gold Exchange Standard. Its characteristic features are 1. The domestic standard's parity as against gold and foreign exchange is not fixed by a law, but simply by the government agency entrusted with the conduct of monetary affairs. 2. This parity is subject to sudden changes without previous notice to the public. It is flexible. But this flexibility is practically always employed for lowering the domestic currency's exchange value as against gold and those foreign currencies which did not drop against gold. If the downward jump of parity was rather conspicuous, it was called a devaluation. If it was slight only, it was usual to speak of a newly manifested weakness of the currency concerned. 3. The only method available for preventing a currency's exchange value from dropping below the parity chosen is unconditional redemption of any amount offered. But the term redemption has, in the ears of the self-styled unorthodox statesman, an unpleasant connotation. It reminds him of the past when the holder of a bank note had a legally warranted right to redemption at par. The modern bureaucrat prefers the term pegging. 
In fact, in this connection, pegging and redeeming mean exactly the same thing. They mean that the currency concerned is prevented from dropping below a certain point by the fact that any amount offered for sale is bought at this price by the redeeming or pegging agency. Of course, this point, the parity, is not fixed by a law under the flexible standard, and the agency is free to decline to buy an amount offered at this rate. Then the price of foreign exchange begins to rise as against this parity. If the government does not intend to adopt the freely vacillating standard, the pegging is soon resumed at a lower level, i.e., the price of foreign exchange is now higher in terms of the domestic currency. Such an event is sometimes referred to as raising the price of gold. 4. In some countries, the conduct of pegging operations is entrusted to the central bank, in others to a special agency called Foreign Exchange Equalization Account, or a similar name. Section 3. The Freely Vacillating Currency If the government practices restraint in the issuance of additional amounts of its credit or fiat money, and if public opinion assumes that the inflationary policy will be stopped altogether in a not-too-distant future, an inflationary currency system can prevail for a series of years. The country experiences all the effects resulting from a currency the unit of which vacillates in exchange value as against the international gold standard. With regard to these effects, the freely vacillating currency may be called a bad currency, but it can last and is not inevitably headed for a breakdown. The characteristic mark of this freely vacillating currency is that the owner of any amount of it has no claim whatever against the treasury, a bank, or any other agency. There is no redemption either de jure or de facto. The pieces are not money substitutes, but proper money in themselves. It sometimes happened, especially in the European inflations of the 20s, that the government, frightened by a speedy decline in its currency's price in terms of gold or foreign exchange, tried to counteract the decline by selling on the market a certain amount of gold and foreign exchange against domestic currency. It was a rather nonsensical operation. It would have been much simpler and much more effective if the government had never issued those amounts which it later bought back on the market. Such ventures did not affect the course of events. The only reason they must be mentioned is that governments and their agents sometimes falsely referred to them as pegging. The outstanding instance of a freely vacillating currency today is the United States dollar, the New Deal dollar. It is not redeemable in gold or any foreign exchange. The administration is committed to an inflationary policy, increasing, more and more, the amount of notes in circulation and of bank deposits subject to check. If the Treasury had been permitted to act according to the designs of its advisers, the dollar would have long since gone the way of the German mark of 1923. But lively protests on the part of a few economists alarmed the nation and enjoined restraint on the treasury. The speed of the inflation was slowed down, yet the future of the dollar is precarious, dependent on the vicissitudes of the continuing struggle between a small minority of economists on the one hand and hosts of ignorant demagogues and their unorthodox allies on the other hand.
Section 4. The Elusive Standard The elusive standard is based on a falsehood. The government decrees that there exists a parity between the domestic currency and gold or foreign exchange. It is fully aware of the fact that on the market there prevail exchange ratios lower than the illusory parity it is pleased to ordain. It knows that nothing is done to make the illusory parity an effective parity. It knows that there is no convertibility, but it clings to its pretense and forbids transactions at a ratio deviating from its fictitious exchange rate. He who sells or buys at any other ratio is guilty of a crime and severely punished. Strict enforcement of such a degree would make all monetary transactions with foreign countries cease. Therefore, the government goes a step further. It expropriates all foreign exchange owned by its subjects and indemnifies the expropriated by paying them the amount of domestic currency which, according to the official degree, is an equivalent of the confiscated foreign exchange holdings. These confiscations convey to the government the national monopoly of dealing with foreign exchange. It is now the only seller of foreign exchange in the country. In compliance with its own decree, it should sell foreign exchange at the official rate. On the market not hampered by government interference, there prevails a tendency to establish and to maintain such an exchange ratio between the domestic currency, A, and foreign exchange, B, that it does not make any difference whether one buys or sells merchandise against A or against B. As long as it is possible to make a profit buying a definite commodity against B and selling it against A, there will be a specific demand for amounts of B originating from merchants selling amounts of A. This specific demand will cease only when no further profits can be reaped on account of price discrepancies between the prices expressed in terms of each of these two currencies. The market rate is maintained by the fact that there is no longer an advantage for anybody in paying a higher price for foreign exchange. Buying either of A against B or of B against A at a higher price, expressed in the first case in terms of B and in the second in terms of A, then the market price would not bring specific profits. Arbitrage operations tend to cease at this price. This is the process that the purchasing power parity theory of foreign exchange describes. The policy, pretentiously called foreign exchange control, tries to counteract the operation of the purchasing power parity principle and fails lamentably. Confiscating foreign exchange against an indemnity below its market price is tantamount to an export duty. It tends to lower exports and thus the amount of foreign exchange that the government can seize. On the other hand, selling foreign exchange below its market price is tantamount to subsidizing imports and thereby to increasing the demand for foreign exchange. The elusive standard and its main tool, foreign exchange control, result in a state of affairs which is rather inappropriately called shortage of foreign exchange. Scarcity is the essential feature of an economic good. Goods which are not scarce in relation to the demand for them are not economic goods, but free goods. Human action is not concerned with them, and economics does not deal with them. No prices are paid for such free goods, and nothing can be obtained in exchange for them. 
To establish the fact that gold or dollars are in short supply is to pronounce a truism. The state of affairs which those talking of a scarcity of dollars want to describe is this. At the fictitious parity, arbitrarily fixed by the government and enforced by the whole governmental apparatus of oppression and compulsion, demand for dollars exceed the supply of dollars offered for sale. This is the inescapable consequence of every attempt on the part of government or other agency to enforce a maximum price below the height at which the unhampered market would have determined the market price. The Ruritanians would like to consume more foreign goods than they can buy by exporting Ruritanian products. It is a rather clumsy way of describing this situation to declare that the Ruritanians suffer from a shortage of foreign exchange. Their plight is brought about by the fact that they are not producing more and better things either for domestic or for foreign consumption. If the dollar buys at the free market 100 Ruritanian Ruhrs and the government fixes a fictitious parity of 50 Ruhrs and tries to enforce it by foreign exchange control, things become worse. Ruritanian exports drop and the demand for foreign goods increases. Of course, the Ruritanian government will then resort to various measures allegedly devised to improve the balance of payments. But no matter what is tried, the scarcity of dollars does not disappear. Foreign exchange control is today primarily a device for the virtual expropriation of foreign investments. It has destroyed the international capital and money market. It is the main instrument of policies aiming at the elimination of imports and thereby at the economic isolation of the various countries. It is thus one of the most important factors in the decline of Western civilization. Future historians will have to deal with it circumstantially. In referring to the actual monetary problems of our day, it is enough to stress the point that it is an abortive policy. Chapter 3 the Return to Sound Money Section 1. Monetary Policy and the Present Trend Toward All-Round Planning The people of all countries agree that the present state of monetary affairs is unsatisfactory and that a change is highly desirable. However, ideas about the kind of reform needed and about the goal to be aimed at differ widely. There is some confused talk about stability and about a standard which is neither inflationary nor deflationary. The vagueness of the terms employed obscures the fact that people are still committed to the spurious and self-contradictory doctrines whose very application has created the present monetary chaos. The destruction of the money order was the result of deliberate actions on the part of various governments. The government controlled central banks, and in the United States the government-controlled Federal Reserve System were the institutions applied in this process of disorganization and demolition. Yet, without exception, all drafts for an improvement of currency systems assigned to the government's unrestricted supremacy in matters of currency and designed fantastic images of super-privileged super-banks. Even the manifest futility of the International Monetary Fund does not deter authors from indulging in dreams about a world bank fertilizing mankind with floods of cheap credit. The inanity of all these plans is not accidental, 
It is the logical outcome of the social philosophy of their authors. Money is the commonly used medium of exchange. It is a market phenomenon. Its sphere is that of business transacted by individuals or groups of individuals within a society based on private ownership of the means of production and the division of labor. This mode of economic organization, the market economy or capitalism, is at present unanimously condemned by governments and political parties. Educational institutions from universities down to kindergartens, the press, the radio, the legitimate theater, as well as the screen, and publishing firms are almost completely dominated by people in whose opinion capitalism appears as the most ghastly of all evils. The goal of their policies is to substitute planning for the alleged planlessness of the market economy. The term planning, as they use it, means, of course, central planning by the authorities enforced by police power. It implies the nullification of each citizen's right to plan his own life. It converts the individual citizens into mere pawns in the schemes of the planning board, whether it is called Politburo, Reichsverskraft Ministerium, or some other name. Planning does not differ from the social system that Marx advocated under the name of socialism and communism. It transfers control of all production activities to the government and thus eliminates the market altogether. Where there is no market, there is no money either. Although the present trend of economic policies leads towards socialism, the United States and some other countries have still preserved the characteristic features of the market economy. Up to now, the champions of government control of business have not yet succeeded in attaining their ultimate goal. The Fair Deal Party has maintained that it is the duty of the government to determine what prices, wage rates, and profits are fair and what not, and then to enforce its rulings by the police power and the courts. It furthermore maintains that it is a function of the government to keep the rate of interest at a fair level by means of credit expansion. Finally, it urges a system of taxation that aims at the equalization of incomes and wealth. Full application of either the first or the last of these principles would by itself consummate the establishment of socialism. But things have not yet moved so far in this country. The resistance of the advocates of economic freedom has not yet been broken entirely. There is still an opposition that has prevented the permanent establishment of direct control of all prices and wages and the total confiscation of all incomes above a height considered fair by those whose income is lower. In the countries on this side of the Iron Curtain, the battle between the friends and foes of totalitarian all-around planning is still undecided. In this great conflict, the advocates of public control cannot do without inflation. They need it in order to finance their policy of reckless spending and of lavishly subsidizing and bribing the voters. The undesirable but inevitable consequence of inflation, the rise in prices, provides them with a welcome pretext to establish price control and thus step by step to realize their scheme of all-round planning. The illusory profits which the inflationary falsification of economic calculation makes up here are dealt with as if they were real profits. 
In taxing them away under the misleading label of excess profits, parts of the capital invested are confiscated. In spreading discontent and social unrest, inflation generates favorable conditions for the subversive propaganda of the self-styled champions of welfare and progress. The spectacle that the political scene of the last two decades has offered has been really amazing. Governments without any hesitation have embarked upon vast inflation and government economists have proclaimed deficit spending and expansionist monetary and credit management as the surest way towards prosperity, steady progress, and economic improvement. But the same governments and their henchmen have indicted business for the inevitable consequences of inflation. While advocating high prices and wage rates as a panacea and praising the administration for having raised the national income, of course expressed in terms of a depreciating currency, to an unprecedented height, they blamed private enterprise for charging outrageous prices and profiteering, while deliberately restricting the output of agricultural products in order to raise prices, statesmen have had the audacity to contend that capitalism creates scarcity and that, but for the sinister machinations of big business, there would be plenty of everything. And millions of voters have swallowed all this. There is need to realize that the economic policies of self-styled progressives cannot do without inflation. They cannot and never will accept a policy of sound money. They can abandon neither their policies of deficit spending nor the help that their anti-capitalist propaganda receives from the inevitable consequences of inflation. It is true they talk about the necessity of doing away with inflation, but what they mean is not to end the policy of increasing the quantity of money in circulation, but to establish price control, i.e. futile schemes to escape the emergency arising inevitably from their policies. Monetary reconstruction, including the abandonment of inflation and the return to sound money, is not merely a problem of financial technique that can be solved without change in the structure of general economic policies. There cannot be stable money within an environment dominated by ideologies hostile to the preservation of economic freedom. Bent on disintegrating the market economy, the ruling parties will certainly not consent to reforms that would deprive them of their most formidable weapon, inflation. Monetary reconstruction presupposes, first of all, total and unconditional rejection of those allegedly progressive policies which, in the United States, are designated by the slogans New Deal and Fair Deal. Section 2. The Integral Gold Standard Sound money still means today what it meant in the 19th century, the gold standard. The eminence of the gold standard consists in the fact that it makes the determination of the monetary unit's purchasing power independent of the measures of government. It wrests from the hands of the economic czars their most redoubtable instrument. It makes it impossible for them to inflate. This is why the gold standard is furiously attacked by all those who expect that they will be benefited by bounties from the seemingly inexhaustible government purse. What is needed, first of all, is to force the rulers to spend only what, by virtue of duly promulgated laws, they have collected as taxes. 
whether governments should borrow from the public at all, and, if so, to what extent, are questions that are irrelevant to the treatment of monetary problems. The main thing is that the government should no longer be in a position to increase the quantity of money in circulation and the amount of checkbook money, not fully, i.e. 100%, covered by deposits paid in by the public. No back door must be left open where inflation can slip in. No emergency can justify a return to inflation. Inflation can provide neither the weapons a nation needs to defend its independence nor the capital goods required for any project. It does not cure unsatisfactory conditions. It merely helps the rulers whose policies brought about the catastrophe to exculpate themselves. One of the goals of the reform suggested is to explode and to kill forever the superstitious belief that governments and banks have the power to make the nation or individual citizens richer out of nothing and without making anybody poorer. The short-sighted observer sees only the things the government has accomplished by spending the newly created money. He does not see the things the non-performance of which provided the means for the government's success. He fails to see that inflation does not create additional goods, but merely shifts wealth and income from some groups of people to others. He neglects, moreover, to take notice of the secondary effects of inflation, malinvestment and decumulation of capital. Notwithstanding the passionate propaganda of the inflationist of all shades, the number of people who comprehend the necessity of entirely stopping inflation for the benefit of the public treasury is increasing. Keynesianism is losing face, even at the universities. A few years ago, governments proudly boasted of their unorthodox methods of deficit spending, pump priming, and raising the national income. They have not discarded these methods, but they no longer brag about them. They even occasionally admit that it would not be such a bad thing to have balanced budgets and monetary stability. The political chances for a return to sound money are still slim, but they are certainly better than they have been in any period after 1914. Yet most of the supporters of sound money do not want to go beyond the elimination of inflation for fiscal purposes. They want to prevent any kind of government borrowing from banks issuing banknotes or crediting the borrower on an account subject to check. They want to prevent any kind of government borrowing from banks issuing banknotes or crediting the borrower on any account subject to check, but they do not want to prevent in the same way credit expansion for the sake of lending to business. The reform they have in mind is, by and large, bringing back the state of affairs prevailing before the inflations of the First World War. Their idea of sound money is that of the 19th century economists with all the errors of the British banking school that disfigured it. They still cling to the schemes whose application brought about the collapse of the European banking systems and currencies and discredited the market economy by generating the almost regular recurrence of periods of economic depression. There is no need to add anything to the treatment of these problems, as provided in Part 3 of this volume, and also in my book, Human Action. If one wants to avoid the recurrence of economic crises, one must avoid the expansion of credit that creates the boom and inevitably leads into the slump. Even if, for the sake of argument, we neglect to refer to these issues, 
one must realize that conditions are no longer such as the 19th century champions of bank credit expansion had in mind. These statesmen and authors considered the government's financial needs as the main and practically the only threat to the privileged banks or bank solvency. Ample historical experience had proved that government could and did force the banks to lend to them. Suspension of the banknotes convertibility and legal tender provisions had transformed the hard currencies of many countries into questionable paper money. The logical conclusions to be drawn from these facts would have been to do away with privileged banks altogether and to subject all banks to the rule of common law and the commercial codes that oblige everybody to perform contracts in full faithfulness to the pledged word. Free banking would have spared the world many crises and catastrophes, but the tragic error of 19th century bank doctrine was the belief that lowering the rate of interest below the height it would have been on an unhampered market is a blessing for a nation and that credit expansion is the right means for the attainment of this end. Thus arose the characteristic duplicity of the bank policy. The central bank or banks must not lend to the government but should be free, within certain limits, to expand credit to business. The idea was that in this way one could make the central banking function independent of the government. Such an arrangement presupposes that government and business are two distinct realms of the conduct of affairs. The government levies taxes, but it does not interfere with the way the various enterprises operate. If the government meddles with central bank affairs, its objective is to borrow for the treasury and not to induce the banks to lend more to business. In making bank loans to the government illegal, the bank's management is enabled to gauge its credit transactions in accordance with the needs of business only. Whatever the merits or demerits of this point of view may have been in the older days, it is obvious that it is no longer of any consequence. The main inflationary motive of our day is the so-called full employment policy, not the Treasury's incapacity to fill its empty vaults from sources other than bank loans. Monetary policy is considered, wrongly of course, as an instrument for keeping wage rates above the height they would have reached on an unhampered labor market. Credit expansion is subservient to the unions. If a hundred or seventy years ago the government of a western nation had ventured to extort a loan from the central bank, the public would unanimously have sided with the bank and thwarted the plot. But for many years there has been little opposition to credit expansion for the sake of creating jobs, i.e., for providing business with the money needed for the payment of the wage rates which the unions, strongly aided by the government, force business to grant. Nobody took notice of warning voices when England in 1931 and the United States in 1933 entered upon the policy for which Lord Keynes, a few years later in his general theory, tried to concoct a justification. And when in 1936 Bloom, in imposing upon French employers the so-called Matignon agreements, ordered the Banque de France to lend freely the sums businesses needed for complying with the dictates of the unions, Inflation and credit expansion are the means to obfuscate the fact that there prevails a nature-given scarcity of the material things on which the satisfaction of human wants depends. 
The main concern of capitalist private enterprise is to remove this scarcity as much as possible and to provide a continuously improving standard of living for an increasing population. The historian cannot help noticing that laissez-faire and rugged individualism have to an unprecedented extent succeeded in their endeavors to supply the common man more and more amply with food, shelter, and many other amenities. But, however remarkable these improvements may be, there will always be a strict limit to the amount that can be consumed without reducing the capital available for the continuation and, even more, the expansion of production. In older ages, social reformers believed that all that was needed to improve the material conditions of the poorer strata of society was to confiscate the surplus of the rich and to distribute it among those having less. The falsehood of this formula, despite the fact that it is still the ideological principle guiding present-day taxation, is no longer contested by any reasonable man. One may neglect stressing the point that such a distribution can add only a negligible amount to the income of the immense majority. The main thing is that the total amount produced in a nation, or in the whole world over a definite period of time, is not a magnitude independent of the mode of society's economic organization. The threat of being deprived by confiscation of a considerable, or even the greater part of the yield of one's own activities, slackens the individual's pursuit of wealth, and thus results in a diminution of the national product. The Marxian socialists once indulged in reveries concerning a fabulous increase in riches to be expected from the socialist mode of production. The truth is that every infringement of property rights and every restriction of free enterprise impairs the productivity of labor. One of the foremost concerns of all parties hostile to economic freedom is to withhold this knowledge from the voters. The various brands of socialism and interventionism could not retain their popularity if people were to discover that the measures whose adoption is hailed as social progress curtail production and tend to bring about capital decumulation. To conceal these facts from the public is one of the services inflation renders to the so-called progressive policies. Inflation is the true opium of the people, administered to them by anti-capitalist governments and parties. Section 3. Currency Reform in Ruritania When compared with conditions in the United States or in Switzerland, Ruritania appears a poor country. The average income of a Ruritanian is below the average income of an American or a Swiss. Once, in the past, Ruritania was on the gold standard, but the government issued little sheets of printed paper to which it assigned legal tender power in the ratio of one paper Ruhr to one gold Ruhr. All residents of Ruritania were made to accept any amount of paper Ruhrs as the equivalent of the same nominal amount of gold roars. The government alone did not comply with the rule it had decreed. It did not convert paper roars into gold roars in accordance with the ratio one to one. As it went on increasing the quantity of paper roars, the effect resulted which Gresham's Law describes. The gold roars disappeared from the market. They were either hoarded by Ruritanians or were sold abroad. Almost all the nations of the earth have behaved in the way the Ruritanian government did, 
but the rates of the inflationary increase of the quantities of their national fiat money have been different. Some nations were more moderate in issuing additional quantities, some less. The result is that the exchange ratios between the various nations' local fiat money currencies are no longer the same ratios that prevailed between their currencies in the period before they went off the gold standard. In those old days, five gold roars were equal to one gold dollar. Although today's dollar is no longer the equivalent of the weight of gold it represented under the gold standard, i.e. before 1933, 100 paper roars are needed to buy one of these depreciated dollars. A short time ago, 80 paper roars could buy one dollar. If the present rates of inflation both in the United States and in Ruritania do not change, the paper roar will drop more and more in terms of dollars. The Ruritanian government knows very well that all they have to do in order to prevent a further depreciation of the paper roar as against the dollar is to slow down the deficit spending they finance by continued inflation. In fact, in order to maintain a stable exchange rate against the dollar, they would not be forced to abandon inflation altogether. They would only have to reduce it to a rate in due proportion to the extent of American inflation. But, they say, it is impossible for them, being a poor country, to balance their budget with a smaller amount of inflation than the present one for such a reduction would enjoin upon them the necessity of undoing some of the results of social progress and of relapsing into the conditions of social backwardness of the United States. They have nationalized railroads, telegraphs, and telephones, and operate various plants, mines, and branches of industry as national enterprises. Every year, the conduct of affairs of almost all these public undertakings produces a deficit that must be covered by taxes collected from the shrinking group of non-nationalized and non-municipalized businesses. Private business is a source of the Treasury's revenue. Nationalized industry is a drain upon the government's funds. But these funds would be insufficient in Ruritania if not swelled by more and more inflation. From the point of view of monetary technique, the stabilization of a national currency's exchange ratio as against foreign, less inflated currencies, or against gold, is a simple matter. The preliminary step is to abstain from any further increase in the quantity of domestic currency. This will, at the outset, stop the further rise in foreign exchange rates and the price of gold. After some oscillations, a somewhat stable exchange rate will appear, the height of which depends on the purchasing power parity. At this rate, it no longer makes any difference whether one buys or sells against the currency A or the currency B. But this stability cannot last indefinitely. While an increase in the production of gold or an increase in the issuance of dollars continues abroad, Ruritania now has a currency, the quantity of which is rigidly limited. Under these conditions, there can no longer prevail full correspondence between the movement of commodity prices on the Ruritanian markets and those on foreign markets. If prices in terms of gold or dollars are rising, those in terms of Ruhrs will lag behind them or even drop. This means that the purchasing power parity is changing. A tendency will emerge towards an enhancement of the price of the Ruhr as expressed in gold or dollars, 
When this trend becomes manifest, the propitious moment for the completion of the monetary reform has arrived. The exchange rate that prevails on the market at this juncture is to be promulgated as the new legal parity between the ruhr and either gold or the dollar. Unconditional convertibility at this legal rate of every paper ruhr against gold or dollars, and vice versa, is henceforward to be the fundamental principle. The reform, thus, consists of two measures. The first is to end inflation by setting an insurmountable barrier to any further increase in the supply of domestic money. The second is to prevent the relative deflation that the first measure will, after a certain time, bring about in terms of other currencies, the supply of which is not rigidly limited in the same way. As soon as the second step has been taken, any amount of roars can be converted into gold or dollars without any delay, and any amount of gold or dollars into roars. The agency, whatever its appellation may be, that the reform law entrusts with the performance of these exchange operations needs for technical reasons a certain small reserve of gold or dollars. But its main concern, at least in the initial stage of its functioning, how to provide the roars necessary for the exchange of gold or foreign currency against roars. To enable the agency to perform this task, it has to be entitled to issue additional roars against a full 100% coverage by gold or foreign exchange bought from the public. It is politically expedient not to charge this agency with any responsibilities and duties other than those of buying and selling gold or foreign exchange according to the legal parity. Its task is to make this legal parity an effective real market rate, preventing, by unconditional redemption of roars, a drop of their market price against legal parity, and, by unconditional buying of gold or foreign exchange, an enhancement of the price of roars as against legal parity. At the very start of its operations, the agency needs, as has been mentioned, a certain reserve of gold or foreign exchange. This reserve has to be lent to it either by the government or by the central bank, free of interest, and never to be recalled. No business other than this preliminary loan must be negotiated between the government and any bank or institution dependent on the government, on the one hand, and the agency, on the other hand. The total amount of roars issued before the start of the new monetary regime must not be increased by any operations on the part of the government. Only the agency is free to issue additional new roars rigidly complying in such issuance with the rule that each of these new roars must be fully covered by gold or foreign exchange paid in by the public in exchange for them. The government's mint may go on to coin and to issue as many fractional or subsidiary coins as seem to be needed by the public. In order to prevent the government from misusing its monopoly of mintage for inflationary ventures and flooding the market, under the pretext of catering to people's demand for change with huge quantities of such tokens, two provisions are imperative. To these fractional coins only a strictly limited legal tender power should be given for payments to any payee but the government. Against the government alone they should have unlimited legal tender power, and the government moreover must be obliged to redeem in roars without any delay and without any cost to the bearer, any amount presented, either by any private individual, firm, or corporation, or by the agency. 
Unlimited legal tender power must be reserved to the various denominations of banknotes of one ruhr and upwards, issued either before the reform or, if after the reform, against full coverage in gold or foreign exchange. Apart from this exchange of fractional coins against legal tender ruhrs, the agency deals exclusively with the public and not with the government or any of the institutions dependent on it, especially not with the central bank. The agency serves the public and deals exclusively with that part of the public that wants to avail itself of its own free accord of the agency's services. But no privileges are accorded to the agency. It does not get a monopoly for dealing in gold or foreign exchange. The market is perfectly free from any restriction. Everybody is free to buy or sell gold or foreign exchange. There is no centralization of such transactions. Nobody is forced to sell gold or foreign exchange to the agency or to buy gold or foreign exchange from it. When these measures are once achieved, Ruritania is either on the gold exchange standard or on the dollar exchange standard. It has stabilized its currency as against gold or the dollar. This is enough for the beginning. There is no need, for the moment, to go further. No longer threatened by a breakdown of its currency, the nation can calmly wait to see how monetary affairs in other countries will develop. The reform suggested would deprive the government of Ruritania of the power to spend any Ruhr above the sums collected by taxing the citizens or by borrowing from the public, whether domestic or foreign. Once this is achieved, the specter of an unfavorable balance of payment fades away. If Ruritanians want to buy foreign products, they must export domestic products. If they do not export, they cannot import. But, says the inflationist, what about the flight of capital? Will not unpatriotic citizens of Ruritania and foreigners who have invested capital within the country try to transfer their capital to other countries, offering better prospects for business? John Badman, a Ruritanian, and Paul Yank, an American, have invested in Ruritania in the past. Badman owns a mine, Yank a factory. Now they realize that their investments are unsafe. The Ruritanian government is committed to a policy that not only confiscates all the yields of their investments, but step by step the substance, too. Badman and Yank want to salvage what still can be salvaged. They don't want to sell against Ruhrs and to transfer the proceedings by buying dollars and exporting them. But their problem is to find a buyer. If all those who have the funds needed for such a purchase think like them, it will be absolutely impossible to sell even at the lowest price. Badman and Yank have missed the right moment. Now it is too late. But perhaps there are buyers. Bill Sucker, an American, and Peter Semple, a Ruritanian, believe that the prospects of the investments concerned are more propitious than Badman and Yank assume. Sucker has dollars ready. He buys Ruhrs, and against these runs Yank's factory. Yank buys the dollars Sucker has sold to the agency. Semple has saved Ruhrs and invests his savings in purchasing Badman's mine. It would have been possible for him to employ his savings in a different way, to buy producers' or consumers' goods in Ruritania. The fact that he does not buy these goods brings about a drop in their prices, or prevents a rise which would have occurred if he had bought them. 
It disarranges the price structure on the domestic market in such a way as to make exports possible that could not be affected before, or even to prevent imports which were affected before. Thus, it produces the amount of dollars which Batman buys and sends abroad. A specter that worries many advocates of foreign exchange control is the assumption that the Ruritanians engaged in export trade could leave the foreign exchange proceeds of their business abroad, and thus deprive their country of a part of its foreign exchange. Miller is such an exporter. He buys commodity A in Ruritania and sells it abroad. Now he chooses to go out of business and to transfer all his assets to a foreign country. But this does not stop Ruritania's exporting A. As according to our assumption, there can be profits earned by buying A in Ruritania and selling it abroad, the trade will go on. If no Ruritanian has the funds needed for engaging in it, foreigners will fill the gap. For there are always people in markets not entirely destroyed by government sabotage who are eager to take advantage of any opportunity to earn profits. Let us emphasize this point again. If people want to consume what other people have produced, they must pay for it by giving the sellers something they themselves have produced or by rendering them some services. This is true in the relation between the people of the state of New York and those of Iowa, no less than in the relation between the people of Ruritania and those of Lapitania. The balance of payments always balances. For if the Ruritanians, or New Yorkers, do not pay, the Lapitanians, or Iowans, will not sell. Section 4. The United States Return to a Sound Currency With Washington politicians and Wall Street pundits, the problem of a return to the gold standard is taboo. Only imbecile or ignorant people, say the professorial and journalistic apologists of inflation, can nurture such an absurd idea. These gentlemen would be perfectly right if they were merely to assert that the gold standard is incompatible with the methods of deficit spending. One of the main aims of a return to gold is precisely to do away with this system of waste, corruption, and arbitrary government. But, they are mistaken if they would have us believe that the re-establishment and preservation of the gold standard is economically and technically impossible. The first step must be a radical and unconditional abandonment of any further inflation. The total amount of dollar bills, whatever their name or legal characteristic may be, must not be increased by further issuance. No bank must be permitted to expand the total amount of its deposits subject to check or the balance of such deposits of any individual customer, be he a private citizen or the U.S. Treasury, otherwise than by receiving cash deposits in legal tender banknotes from the public or by receiving a check payable by another domestic bank subject to the same limitations. This means a rigid 100% reserve for all future deposits, i.e., all deposits not already in existence on the first day of the reform. At the same time, all restrictions on trading and holding gold must be repealed. The free market for gold is to be re-established. Everybody, whether a resident of the United States or of any foreign country, will be free to buy and to sell, to lend and to borrow, to import and to export, and, of course, to hold any amount of gold, 
whether meant it or not meant it, in any part of the nation's territory as well as in foreign countries. It is to be expected that this freedom of the gold market will result in the inflow of a considerable quantity of gold from abroad. Private citizens will probably invest a part of their cash holdings in gold. In some foreign countries, the sellers of this gold exported to the United States may hoard the dollar bills received and leave the balances with American banks untouched. But many or most of those sellers of gold will probably buy American products. In this first period of the reform, it is imperative that the American government and all institutions dependent upon it, including the Federal Reserve System, keep entirely out of the gold market. A free gold market could not come into existence if the administration were to try to manipulate the price by underselling. The new monetary regime must be protected against malicious acts on the part of the officials of the Treasury and the Federal Reserve System. There cannot be any doubt that officialdom will be eager to sabotage a reform whose main purpose is to curb the power of the bureaucracy in monetary matters. The unconditional prohibition of the further issuance of any piece of paper to which legal tender power is granted refers also to the issuance of the type of bills called silver certificates. The constitutional prerogative of Congress to decree that the United States is bound to buy definite quantities of a definite commodity, whether silver or potatoes or something else, at a definite price exceeding the market price, and to store or to dump the quantities purchased, must not be infringed. But such purchases are henceforth to be paid out of funds collected by taxing the people or by borrowing from the public. It is probable that the price of gold established after some oscillations on the American market will be higher than $35 per ounce, the rate of the Gold Reserve Act of 1934. It may be somewhere between 36 and 38 perhaps even somewhat higher. Once the market price has attained some stability, the time has come to decree this market rate as the new legal parity of the dollar and to secure its unconditional convertibility at this parity. A new agency is to be established, the Conversion Agency. The United States government lends to it a certain amount, let us say $1 billion, in gold bullion computed at the new parity, free of interest and never to be recalled. The conversion agency has two functions only. First, to sell gold bullion at the parity price to the public against dollars without any restriction. After a short time, when the Mint will have coined a sufficient quantity of new American gold coins, the conversion agency will be obliged to hand out such gold pieces against paper dollars and checks drawn upon a solvent American bank. Second, to buy, against dollar bills at the legal parity, any amount of gold offered to it. To enable the conversion agency to execute this second task, it is to be entitled to issue dollar bills against a 100% reserve in gold. The Treasury is bound to sell gold, bullion, or new American coins to the conversion agency at legal parity against any kind of American legal tender bills issued before the start of the reform, against American token coins, or against checks drawn upon a member bank. To the extent that such sales reduce the government's gold holdings, the total amount of all varieties of legal tender paper sheets 
issued before the start of the reform and of member bank deposits subject to check is to be reduced. How this reduction is to be distributed among the various classes of these types of currency can be left, apart from the problem of the banknotes of small denominations, to be dealt with later, to the discretion of the Treasury and the Federal Reserve Board. It is essential for the reform suggested that the Federal Reserve System should be kept out of its way. Whatever one may think about the merits or demerits of the Federal Reserve legislation of 1913, the fact remains that the system has been abused by the most reckless inflationary policy. No institution and no man connected in any way with the blunders and sins of the past decades must be permitted to influence future monetary conditions. The Federal Reserve System is saddled with an awkward problem, viz. the huge amount of government bonds held by the member banks. Whatever solution may be adopted for this question, it must not affect the purchasing power of the dollar. Government finance and the nation's medium of exchange have in the future to be two entirely separate things. The banknotes issued by the Federal Reserve System, as well as the silver certificates, may remain in circulation. Unconditional convertibility and the strict prohibition of any further increase of their amount will have radically changed their catalactic character. It is this alone that counts. However, a very important change concerning the denomination of these notes is indispensable. What the United States needs is not the gold exchange standard, but the classical old gold standard decried by the inflationists as orthodox. Gold must be in the cash holdings of everybody. Everybody must see gold coins changing hands, must be used to having gold coins in his pockets, to receiving gold coins when he cashes his paycheck, and to spending gold coins when he buys in a store. This state of affairs can be easily achieved by withdrawing all bills of the denominations of five, ten, and perhaps also twenty dollars from circulation. There will be, under the suggested new monetary regime, two classes of legal tender paper bills, the old stock and the new stock. The old stock consists of all those paper sheets that, at the start of the reform, were in circulation as legal tender paper, without regard to their appellation and legal quality other than legal tender power. It is strictly forbidden to increase this stock by the further issuance of any additional notes of this class. On the other hand, it will decrease to the extent that the Treasury and the Federal Reserve Board decree that the reduction in the total amount of legal tender notes of this old stock plus bank deposits subject to check existing at the start of the reform has to be effected by the final withdrawal and destruction of definite quantities of such old stock legal tender notes. Moreover, the Treasury is bound to withdraw from circulation against the new gold coins and to destroy, within a period of one year after the promulgation of the new legal gold parity of the dollar, all notes of five, ten, and perhaps also twenty dollars. It does not require any special mention that the new stock legal tender notes to be issued by the conversion agency must be issued only in denominations of one dollar or fifty dollars and upward. Old British banking doctrine banned small bank notes, in their opinion, notes smaller than five pounds, because it wanted to protect the poorer strata of the population, 
supposed to be less familiar with the conditions of the banking business and therefore more liable to be cheated by wicked bankers. Today, the main concern is to protect the nation against a repetition of the inflationary practices of governments. The gold exchange standard, whatever argument may be advanced in its favor, is vitiated by an incurable defect. It offers to governments an easy opportunity to embark upon inflation unbeknown to the nation. With the exception of a few specialists, nobody becomes aware in time of the fact that a radical change in monetary matters has occurred. Laymen, that is, 9,999 out of 10,000 citizens, do not realize that it is not commodities that are becoming dearer, but their legal tender that is becoming cheaper. What is needed is to alarm the masses in time. The working man, in cashing his paycheck, should learn that some foul trick has been played upon him. The President, Congress, and the Supreme Court have clearly proved their inability, or unwillingness, to protect the common man, the voter, from being victimized by inflationary machinations. The function of securing a sound currency must pass into new hands, into those of the whole nation. As soon as Gresham's law begins to come into play and bad paper drives good gold out of the pockets of the common man, there should be a stir. Perpetual vigilance on the part of the citizens can achieve what a thousand laws and dozens of alphabetical bureaus with hordes of employees never have and never will achieve the preservation of a sound currency. The classical or orthodox gold standard alone is a truly effective check on the power of the government to inflate the currency. Without such a check, all other constitutional safeguards can be rendered vain. Section 5. The Controversy Concerning the Choice of the New Gold Parity some advocates of a return to the gold standard disagree on an important point with the scheme designed in the preceding section. In the opinion of these dissenters, there is no reason to deviate from the gold price of $35 per ounce as decreed in 1934. This rate, they assert, is the legal parity, and it would be iniquitous to devalue the dollar in relation to it. The controversy between the two groups, those advocating the return to gold at the previous parity, whom we call the restorers, and those recommending the adoption of a new parity consonant with the present market value of the currency that is to be put upon a gold basis, we may call them stabilizers, is not new. It has flared up whenever a currency depreciated by inflation has had to be returned to a sound basis. The restorers look upon money primarily as the standard of deferred payments. A consistent restorer would have to argue in this way. People have in the past, i.e. before 1933, made contracts in virtue of which they promised to pay a definite amount of dollars, which at the time meant standard dollars, containing 25.8 grains of pure gold, nine-tenths fine. It would be manifestly unfair to the creditors to give the debtors the right to fulfill such contracts by the payment of the same nominal number of dollars containing a smaller weight of gold. However, the reasoning of such consistent restorers would be correct only if all existing claims to deferred payments had been contracted before 1933, and if the present creditors of such contracts were the same people 
or their heirs, who had originally made the contracts. Both these assumptions are contrary to fact. Most of the pre-1933 contracts have already been settled in two decades that have elapsed. There are, of course, also government bonds, corporate bonds, and mortgages of pre-1933 origin. But in many, or in even most cases, these claims are no longer held by the same people who held them before 1933. Why should a man, who, in 1951, bought a corporate bond issued in 1928, be indemnified for losses which not he himself, but one of the preceding owners of this bond, suffered? And why should a municipality, or a corporation that borrowed depreciated dollars in 1945, be liable to pay back dollars of greater gold weight and purchasing power? In fact, there are in present-day America hardly any consistent restorers who would recommend a return to the old pre-Roosevelt dollar. There are only inconsistent restorers who advocate a return to the Roosevelt dollar of 1934, the dollar of 15 and 521st grains of gold, nine-tenths fine. But this gold content of the dollar, fixed by the President in virtue of the Gold Reserve Act of January 30, 1934, was never a legal parity. It was, as far as the domestic affairs of the United States are concerned, merely of academic value. It was without any legal tender validity. Legal tender under the Roosevelt legislation was only various sheets of printed paper, these sheets of paper could not be converted into gold. There was no longer any gold parity of the dollar. To hold gold was a criminal offense for the residents of the United States. The Roosevelt gold price of $35 per ounce, instead of the old price of $20.67 per ounce, had validity only for the government's purchases of gold and for certain transactions between the American Federal Reserve and foreign governments and central banks. Those juridical considerations that the consistent restorers could possibly advance in favor of a return to the pre-Roosevelt dollar parity are of no avail when advanced in favor of the rate of 1934 that was not a parity. It is paradoxical indeed that the inconsistent restorers try to justify their proposal by referring to honesty. For the role the gold content of the dollar they want to restore played in American monetary history was certainly not honest in the sense in which they employ this term. It was a makeshift in a scheme which these very restorers themselves condemn as dishonest. However, the main deficiency of any form of the restorers' argument, whether they consistently advocate the McKinley dollar or inconsistently the Roosevelt dollar, is to be seen in the fact that they look upon money exclusively from the point of view of its function as the standard of deferred payments. As they see it, the main fault, or even the only fault, of an inflationary policy is that it favors the debtors at the expense of the creditors. They neglect the other more general and more serious effects of inflation. Inflation does not affect the prices of the various commodities and services at the same time and to the same extent. Some prices rise sooner, some lag behind. While inflation takes its course and has not yet exhausted all its price-affecting potentialities, there are in the nation winners and losers. Winners, popularly called profiteers if they are entrepreneurs, 
are people who are in the fortunate position of selling commodities and services, the prices of which are already adjusted to the changed relation of the supply of and the demand for money, while the prices of commodities and services they are buying still correspond to a previous state of this relation. Losers are those who are forced to pay the new higher prices for the things they buy, while the things they are selling have not yet risen at all or not sufficiently. The serious social conflicts which inflation kindles, all the grievances of consumers, wage earners, and salaried people it originates, are caused by the fact that its effects appear neither synchronously nor to the same extent. If an increase in the quantity of money in circulation were to produce at one blow proportionally the same rise in the prices of every kind of commodities and services, changes in the monetary unit's purchasing power would, apart from affecting deferred payments, be of no social consequence. They would neither benefit nor hurt anybody, and would not arouse political unrest. But such an evenness in the effects of inflation, or for that matter of deflation, can never happen. The great Roosevelt-Truman inflation has, apart from depriving all creditors of a considerable part of principal and interest, gravely hurt the material concerns of a great number of Americans. But one cannot repair the evil done by bringing about a deflation. Those favored by the uneven course of the deflation will only, in rare cases, be the same people who were hurt by the uneven course of inflation. Those losing on account of the uneven course of the deflation will only in rare cases be the same people whom the inflation has benefited. The effects of a deflation produced by the choice of the new gold parity at $35 per ounce would not heal the wounds inflicted by the inflation of the last two decades. They would merely open new sores. Today, people complain about inflation. If the schemes of the restorers are executed, they will complain about deflation. As for psychological reasons, the effects of deflation are much more unpopular than those of inflation. A powerful pro-inflation movement would spring up under the disguise of an anti-deflation program and would seriously jeopardize all attempts to re-establish a sound money policy. Those questioning the conclusiveness of these statements should study the monetary history of the United States. There, they will find ample corroborating material. Still more instructive is the monetary history of Great Britain. When, after the Napoleonic Wars, the United Kingdom had to face the problem of reforming its currency, it chose the return to the pre-war gold parity of the pound and gave no thought to the idea of stabilizing the exchange ratio between the paper pound and gold as it had developed on the market under the impact of the inflation. It preferred deflation to stabilization and to the adoption of a new parity consonant with the state of the market. Calamitous economic hardships resulted from this deflation. They stirred social unrest and begot the rise of an inflationist movement as well as the anti-capitalistic agitation from which, after a while, Engels and Marx drew their inspiration. After the end of the First World War, England repeated the error committed after Waterloo. It did not stabilize the actual gold value of the pound. It returned in 1925 to the old pre-war and pre-inflation parity of the pound. As the labor unions would not tolerate an adjustment of wage rates to the increased gold value and purchasing power of the pound, a crisis of British foreign trade resulted. 
The government and the journalists, both terrorized by the union leaders, timidly refrained from making any allusion to the height of wage rates and the disastrous effects of the union tactics. They blamed a mysterious overvaluation of the pound for the decline in British exports and the resulting spread of unemployment. They knew only one remedy, inflation. In 1931, the British government adopted it. There cannot be any doubt that British inflationism got its strength from the conditions that had developed out of the deflationary currency reform of 1925. It is true that, but for the stubborn policy of the unions, the effects of the deflation would have been absorbed long before 1931. Yet the fact remains that in the opinion of the masses, conditions gave an apparent justification to the Keynesian fallacies. There is a close connection between the 1925 reform and the popularity that inflationism enjoyed in Great Britain in the 30s and 40s. The inconsistent restorers advance in favor of their plans the fact that the deflation they would bring about would be small, since the difference between a gold price of $35 and a gold price of $37 or $38 is rather slight. Now, whether this difference is to be considered as slight or not is a matter of arbitrary judgment. Let us, for the sake of argument, accept its qualification as slight. It is certainly true that a smaller deflation has less undesirable effects than a bigger one. But this truism is no valid argument in favor of a deflationary policy, the expediency of which is undeniable. Concluding Remarks the present unsatisfactory state of monetary affairs is an outcome of the social ideology to which our contemporaries are committed and of the economic policies which this ideology begets. People lament over inflation, but they enthusiastically support policies that could not go on without inflation. While they grumble about the inevitable consequences of inflation, they stubbornly oppose any attempt to stop or to restrict deficit spending. The suggested reform of the currency system and the return to sound monetary conditions presuppose a radical change in economic philosophies. There cannot be any question of the gold standard as long as waste, capital decumulation, and corruption are the foremost characteristics of the conduct of public affairs. Cynics dispose of the advocacy of a restitution of the gold standard by calling it utopian. Yet we have only the choice between two utopias, the utopia of a market economy, not paralyzed by government sabotage, on the one hand, and the utopia of totalitarian all-round planning, on the other hand. The choice of the first alternative implies the decision in favor of the gold standard. This has been The Theory of Money and Credit, written by Ludwig von Mises, narrated by Jim Van. Copyright 2009 by Ludwig von Mises Institute. Production Copyright 2017 by Ludwig von Mises Institute.